Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Chapter 5. Is there hope? To view the flowchart in this chapter, please refer to the supplemental PDF that accompanies this audiobook. There is hope, but not for us. Franz Kafka. A short history of hope might go something like this. Luckily, when Pandora opened that box of human afflictions, hope was there to soften the blow. Marcus Aurelius, stoic that he was, had no use for it. Dante, Christian that he was, abandoned it at the gates of hell. Emily Dickinson, poet that she was, wreathed it in feathers. Ernst Bloch, Marxist that he was, weaponized it for the revolution. And Henry Miller, nihilist that he was, likened it to the clap. The brutal logic of the Nazi death camps demonstrated its survival value, while the soft logic of Hallmark sentimentality demonstrated its commercial value. Rebecca Solnit helped keep it alive in a dark time. But the times are even darker today, as Paul Hope Beyond Hope Kingsnorth has made all too plain. With late capitalism hell-bent on ecocide, can hope still serve us? That would be a very short history of hope. In comparison, what follows is a marathon of historical detail and philosophical logic. Hope in the, like, really dark. To be truly radical is to make hope possible, rather than despair convincing. Raymond Williams Everything's coming together, says 350.org co-founder Jamie Henn, while everything's falling apart. Indeed it is, and we are all living on that crazy cusp. Except most days, it's just a whole lot more obvious how things are falling apart, and not at all obvious whether we can get things together strongly enough and soon enough to avoid the very worst of our possible futures. In the face of looming catastrophe, climate and otherwise, we don't know whether to double down on hope or give up hope completely. We're not hopeful because things, like the facts, are pretty hopeless. But we're not hopeless either because, well, we love life, have a heart that still beats and some part of us will always remain an irrepressible hope machine. It's a paradox, but that's how we do. And so, we need a strategy. We need a way to walk our paradoxical path, a way to twin our warring selves. Over a decade ago, Rebecca Solnit showed us how to hope in the dark, but things are darker now. These days, we need a way to hope in the, like, really dark. What kind of hope can still serve us? As there are many kinds. Per Espen Stokeness distinguishes four kinds of hope. Passive hope, heroic hope, stoic hope, and grounded hope. Passive hope is super positive, almost Pollyanna-ish. It naively trusts that technology will fix things, or that since the Earth's climate has changed before, we'll be fine. 
The basic attitude here is don't worry, be happy, because somehow it's all going to work out, which, though it gives you more peace of mind, leaves little reason to act. Heroic hope, while also hyper-optimistic, is far more action-oriented. It lives by the credo, the best way to predict the future is to invent it. It takes a yes-we-can, there's-no-limit-to-human-ingenuity, just-do-it attitude. Despite their striking differences, passive and heroic hope share one important quality. They both depend on results. When actual outcomes turn sour and dark or threaten to, this kind of optimism-based hope can quickly crumble and turn into pessimism. Optimism, Stokeness says, has, scientifically, a weak case. We should expect any hope that depends on results to get crushed by objective reality, especially these days. So now what? Fortunately, we have two other kinds of hope to turn to. Stoic hope says, we can handle it. We've survived tough times before. Whatever happens, we can make it through. We can rebuild. And, if worse really does come to worse, I'll drown with my boots on. Unfortunately, Stoic hope, though sturdy and resilient, is not particularly proactive or strategic, and we need to be both. Enter what Stokeness calls grounded hope. This kind of hope embraces the full paradox of our predicament. It says, yes, it's hopeless, and I'll give it my all anyway. This kind of hope is not dependent on outcomes, nor attached to optimism or pessimism. Instead, it's grounded in our character and our calling. It recognizes the full difficulty of our situation, yet still chooses to be hopeful. Grounded Hope channels the pivotal insight of Vaclav Havel. Hope is an orientation of the spirit, an orientation of the heart. It is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense, regardless of how it turns out. Grounded Hope offers us no guarantee that we'll ever walk on out of the darkness, but it shows us how to walk through it. Here, one simply does what is right and what is necessary, and the doing and the walking are their own reward. It recalls Tim to Christopher's understanding of hope as the will to hold on to our values in the face of difficulty. Embedded in all this is a crucial distinction between optimism and hope. Although we often conflate them in everyday speech, she's an optimistic person, I'm hopeful about our chances, they're not the same at all. During a celebrated interview with Archbishop Desmond Tutu, David Frost commented, I always think of you as an optimist. Tutu replied, I'm not an optimist. I'm a prisoner of hope. If they were people, optimism would be a very likable and somewhat overly caffeinated director of marketing. Hope, a sailor caught in a storm. Optimism needs results and a rationale. Hope is its own rationale. Prominent non-optimist Richard Heinberg bombarded at his day job at the Post-Carbon Institute by what he calls the toxic knowledge of our dark climate future, admits he's not hopeful in the way that most people mean it. Instead, he adopts an approach he dubs strategic hope. No matter how bad things get, he says, and no matter how much worse they're likely to get, I know there's always something I can do to make things better. In this way, and by playing his violin three hours every day, he's able to keep his head and heart in the game. In the face of looming climate catastrophe, eco-philosopher Kathleen Dean Moore notes how we tend to polarize into one of two camps, either blind despair no matter what I do, it's not going to make a difference, or blind hope. I'm just going to trust that somehow it's all going to work out. In either case, there's no reason to do anything. Both of these positions, argues Moore, are moral abdications, 
and together they suggest a false dichotomy. Instead, Moore suggests that we respond to a lack of hope by doing what's right because it's right, not because you will gain from it. There is freedom in that. There is joy in that. And ultimately, there is social change in that, she says. Now, it's one thing to provide hopeless people with a way to act ethically, and quite another thing to accept that the world is objectively unsavable. So which is it? Rebecca Solnit weighs in on this question in her 2004 Cree de Corps, Hope in the Dark. Writing during the depths of the Iraq War and the Bush presidency, she sees darkness all around, but it's darkness in the best sense of dark, unknown and full of possibility, a darkness as much of the womb as the grave. She writes beautifully, uh, doesn't she always, about how hope is a wild affirmation in this darkness, history an unpredictable trickster, activism a fluid, soulful, courageous project, and how revolutions are days of creation. For her, hope and despair are not simple opposites. One is not good and the other bad. Despair, she says, can also be liberating. To illustrate, she uses the metaphor of a door and a wall. Blind hope faces a blank wall waiting for a door in it to open. Doors might be nearby, but blind hope keeps you from locating them. In this geography, despair can be fruitful, can turn you away from the wall. False hope, says Solnit, can be a yes to deprivation, an acquiescence to a lie. Official hope can be the bullying that tells the marginalized to shut up because everything is fine or will be. Meanwhile, despair can lead to the location of alternatives, to the quest for doors, or to their creation. The great liberation movements hacked doorways into walls, or the walls came tumbling down. Hopefulness is risky, says Solnit, since it is, after all, a form of trust, trust in the unknown and the possible. But these days, what exactly is still possible? Solnit was writing in 2004 when things were only dark. Now things are like, really dark. Yes, Bush is gone, even Trump is gone. But we're 20 years deeper into the maw of climate chaos's relentless timeline. Up against its implacable math, what chance does Solnit's angel of alternate history really have? If we're basically past the threshold where we can prevent catastrophe, what kind of hope is there? But Solnit's hope is not a naive kind of hope. Far from it. It is a sober, hard-earned, long-game hopefulness, profoundly grounded in the complexities and uncertainties of how change happens. For her, hope just means another world might be possible, not promised, not guaranteed. The planet will heat up, she acknowledges. Species will die out. But how many, how hot, and what survives depends on whether we act. Pessimism of the intellect. Optimism of the will. I'm a pessimist, but there's no point in being miserable about it. Cormac McCarthy. I am an optimist. It does not seem to be much use being anything else. Winston Churchill. In trying to distinguish optimists from pessimists, we often say that there's two kinds of people, those who see the glass as half empty and those who see the glass as half full. How can two people see the same glass in such opposite ways? Well, because they're not just seeing it that way, they're making it that way. Pessimism, notes radical historian Howard Zinn, becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. It reproduces itself by crippling our willingness to act. Does this make pessimism wrong? Not really. Optimism, after all, is a self-fulfilling prophecy, too. What I hope for is more hope, says James Richardson. Hope, says Jim Wallace, 
is believing in spite of the evidence, then watching the evidence change. So really, the question isn't which view is more true, but rather which self-fulfilling prophecy do you want to sign up for? The one where the world gets worse and confirms your worst opinions of it, and you get the thin satisfaction of being able to say, I told you so. Or the one where the world gets better and confirms your best opinions of it, and you still get the satisfaction of being able to say, I told you so. Huh, if only it were so simple. Because, of course, the world doesn't always get better. In fact, given climate change, we know it's definitely going to get worse. So, if I told you so is what you're in it for, then pessimism is clearly the way to go. Saddle up, Eeyore. Time to ride. But what if the choice between optimism and pessimism isn't about the likelihood of one outcome or another? What if optimism is an ethic and an attitude, not a belief, as progressive blogger Josh Marshall wrote the morning after Trump's election? For Marshall, being optimistic in the face of adversity is a choice, an ethical choice, a choice that requires spiritual effort and a mustering of will. When I was young, some author, Eric Fromm, made the point that courage is not the absence of fear, but rather doing what you need to do in spite of being afraid. I soon learned this was a cliché, but I didn't care because it was a cliché that changed my life for the better. It made me feel courageous, or at least potentially courageous, because I had fears, and there'd been a time or two when I'd stepped up in spite of my fears. Can we think of optimism and pessimism in a similar way? We tend to gush. Oh, you're always so optimistic about someone who is naturally enthusiastic, for whom a positive outlook comes easily. And sure, this kind of person might be good for the species and sometimes fun to be around, but are they morally superior to the more depressive among us? I mean, how much credit really should an optimistic person get for being optimistic? On the other hand, consider someone who by nature trends more gloomy, yet through an admirable act of will, discipline, and imagination, and in spite of how clearly they see the dark facts of the situation, still finds a way to hope and act from that hope. These are the people, I think, who deserve our greatest respect and admiration. If the mayor is going to throw a ticker tape parade or give out keys to the city, forget the smiling astronauts and sports heroes. It's these can-do pessimists who should be honored. An optimist, says Peter Ustinov, turning our usual understanding upside down, is one who knows exactly how bad a place the world can be. A pessimist is one who finds out anew every morning. In other words, a pessimist is someone who feels entitled to a better world. You did promise me a rose garden, says the pessimist. I keep looking around for it, but it's not there. This pessimist is actually a disappointed ex-optimist who wakes up every morning feeling betrayed by reality. Meanwhile, an optimist is someone who knows and crucially accepts how bad things are and still believes she can do something to make a difference. Every morning she asks herself, what can I do to make this steaming pile of shit we call our world a little bit better? Because I know I can. In this reading, the optimist is actually a hard-headed realist, while the pessimist is a disappointed idealist who can't get over his disappointment. So, is the glass half full or half empty? The answer, of course, is both and. Stokeness suggests we think of optimism and pessimism not as personality traits or belief systems or moods, but as tools. Tools we must choose wisely. Absolute pessimism and absolute optimism are faulty tools, he says. Both lead to very poor scenarios. 
locking us into a fundamentalist storyline that can lead only to salvation or damnation, and contributing to the manic-depressive cycle activists are all too familiar with. Instead of letting our pessimism come up with ever more reasons to despair, then turning to optimism to repress that despair, Stokeness suggests, we use both in parallel to help us imagine plausible futures and plan for them. Yes, we must feel our despair. After all, it is real, and one of our many antennae that tell us what is broken in the world. But we must also act. No easy task, of course. How do we set about it? My heart is on fire, goes the Zen Buddhist adage, but my eyes are as cold as ashes. When I am despairing and need to act, this is the wisdom teaching I turn to. It spans my full soul. It names the contradictory qualities, commitment yet detachment, fierce engagement along with a letting go of results and ego that I need to embrace. There's a pop culture version of this. Clear eyes, full hearts can't lose. Along with millions of grown men and women across America, Coach Taylor's locker room pep talk works me into a heart-swelling mess of tears, hope, and smashing shoulder guards, even though the climate pragmatist in me knows that no matter how clear our eyes are with realism and how full our hearts are with idealism, we could still definitely lose. In a similar spirit, Italian revolutionary Antonio Gramsci commands us to embrace pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. Here, he neatly and fiercely captures our twin tasks, and you would be neat and fierce too if all your words had to be written on toilet paper and snuck out of a fascist prison. Innovative leader of the 1920s-era Italian Communist Party and Mussolini's most dangerous foe, Antonio Gramsci would die in that prison. He knew something about struggle and hope in a difficult time. He understood that we need to be lucid, critical, precise, and hard-headed about the material reality of our circumstances, however dire it may be. And at the same time, we need to be passionately committed to our vision of a better, or at least less worse, world. Taking his commandment to heart, I try with one hand to honor the truth of what is, and with the other to reach for the dream of what could be. This is never easy. In Gromsky's era of rising fascism, it was devastatingly difficult. In our era of rising seas and rising fascism, we too will need both clear eyes and full hearts, especially if, instead of can't lose, the only pep-talk finale a climate-informed Coach Taylor could in good faith give us is clear eyes, full hearts, we could definitely fucking lose. These disparate wisdom teachings, Zen spiritual instruction, high school football locker room spiel, and moral strategic commandment from an Italian communist are all telling me the same thing. The glass is not half empty or half full. The glass is half empty and half full. This is, of course, literally true. Think about it. And also true in our souls. I, for one, need both halves, my optimism and pessimism both, in order to act in the world. You don't need to save the world. It's already made other plans. Imagine a job description that goes something like this. Ideal candidate cannot abide injustice, is willing to put their shoulder to the wheel of history to make the world a better place. In lieu of pay will accept intangible rewards, including disappointment, defeat, and the crushing of all their hopes and dreams. Would you answer such an ad? I did in my youth, though that last sentence was in fine print and I didn't read it till decades later. Fine print or no, 
Millions of us answer that ad every day, and who can blame us? The world is a wretched fucking mess. It needs to be saved from itself, so the folks who give a damn step up. We run for office. We march for justice. We volunteer in our community. We divest from the bad and invest in the good. We stand up for what's right and refuse to stand for what's wrong. We fight and sing and march and chant and organize and strategize and knock on doors and take to the streets and whatever else we need to do to try and bring about a better world. And underneath it all, powering it all, we hope. What a strange burden, this hope. What a weight to carry around. Because maybe the world doesn't want to be saved. Maybe the world has already made other plans. In ways both terrible and beautiful, maybe it's just going to do what it will. The world is not our project. It is a mystery. A stubborn cosmic puzzle. A human all-too-human mess. As unpredictable as it is tragically predictable. Maybe it's not in its nature to be saved. Least of all by you. As this suspicion takes hold, it threatens to undermine all our visions of a better tomorrow. We recoil in horror and heartbreak. But why not embrace it as we would a welcome death? After all, the only one dying here is us as Savior. The only world we're letting go of is one already neutered by our hopes for it. This necessary humbling by reality leaves us missionless and lost, but also free, terrifyingly free, of that strange burden of having to hope. Fuck hope, we say because it's exactly this terror of losing hope that's been hounding us all along. And in saying this, we must now find the courage for a new task, to be without hope and still true to ourselves. It's the culminating act in an already long and strange process of acceptance. In Hegelian terms, we begin with an urgent thesis. The world is fucked. I must and can save it. Hope will be my engine. But sooner or later we run into an immovable antithesis. The world will not be saved. It is what it is. And as such, it's somehow perfect even in its imperfection. In any case, hope has no place here. This paradox confounds us. Hope holds up a lantern of the possible, but marries us to a ghost world. A world in our heads that always chafes at the world around us. No hope snuffs out that golden light while freeing us to love the world just as it is, in all its concrete suchness, both good and bad. And yet, we still find ourselves bidden to make the world better, and we know in our bones that it's right and good that we are so bidden. With our conscience a battlefield of these two truths, we struggle towards a synthesis. Isn't my attempt to save the world, no matter how riven with failure and disappointment, also part of the world, and thus part of what is perfect about the world? Yes. And so I must somehow accept all of it, the world and its fuckedness. How I'm called to save it, as well as the fundamental hopelessness of this task. It seems I must become a happy, hopeless warrior. Which leaves each of us to wonder, what fool, having seen the fine print in the ad, would still choose to sign up? And also, what fool would not? I dedicate myself to an impossible cause. We are all incurable. Archbishop Oscar Romero when asked why he was attending to the sick at a hospital for incurables. We have broken nature. We have broken the world. Even the moral logic of struggle has been broken. Gandhi said, first they ignore you, then they ridicule you, then they fight you, and then you win. 
But in the shadow of climate catastrophe, we may have to update that too. First they ignore you, then they ridicule you, then they fight you, and then a 6 degrees Celsius increase in the Earth's temperature wipes out all complex life forms. Martin Luther King said, The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. But from where we stand now, it may be more accurate to say, the arc of the moral universe might be long, and it might bend towards justice, but we're never going to find out because total ecosystem collapse. Or as Bill McKibben put it in Rolling Stone, the arc of the physical universe appears to be short, and it bends toward heat. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I used to run on hope. I used to sign those petitions, show up at those demos, knock on my neighbor's doors, because I believed we could change things. I still show up, but the reasons have shifted. So what if we're making progress on police brutality, a friend active in Black Lives Matter said to me recently. Given where the climate is heading, the police might as well shoot us all now. She was joking, of course, but there are days when it seems our cause, maybe all our causes, are impossible. Look across the full sweep of human history, with its wars and rebellions, its dark and shining moments. Overall, it ain't pretty. Every revolution is replaced with the slime of a new bureaucracy. Every time you manage to overthrow slavery, there's a Jim Crow 2.0 waiting for you. With the possible exception of indoor plumbing, smallpox vaccinations, contact lenses, and, okay, pretty much all modern medical technology, things don't seem to have changed too much for the better. At some point, you just stop pretending that they will. And so, instead of fearing this loss of faith, I now welcome it as a revelation. Our situation is hopeless. Our cause is impossible. Which leaves us with a stark choice. Do we dedicate ourselves to an impossible cause? Or do we pull back and just look after our own? The choice, once you've sat quietly with this question, is clear. You must dedicate yourself to an impossible cause. Why? because we are all incurable, because solidarity is a form of tenderness, because the simple act of caring for the world is itself a victory. We must take a stand, not because it will necessarily lead to anything, but because it is the right thing to do. We never know what can or can't be done, only what must be done. I dedicate myself to an impossible cause. Meetings with Remarkable Hopers and Doomers Joanna Macy Be of service not knowing whether you're a hospice worker or a midwife. Dedicating yourself to an impossible cause is no easy trick. Reckoning with the climate crisis, 
with its intersecting layers of everything from race to earth chemistry to bad timing, can be overwhelming. It's easy to become demobilized by denial or despair. With everything that's on our existential plates, it's understandable why so many of us wall ourselves off from the truth and consequently from each other. While Gopal acknowledged that catastrophe is inevitable, he followed it right up with, but change is also inevitable. Transition is inevitable. And he laid out some strategies to guide us forward. But how do we proceed at the heart level? How do we break down the walls inside our psyches, reconnect with our neighbors, and take those first steps towards a just transition together? Cue my next encounter. In Berkeley, California, one neighborhood over from Gopal's homestead, with eco-Buddhist, whole systems theorist, and author of Active Hope, Joanna Macy. Born in 1929 with a lifetime of environmental advocacy and empowerment work now behind her, Joanna Macy could be rightly called the grand dame of spiritual activism. In the 70s, she fought the nuclear industry and the threat of nuclear war. In the 80s, toxic polluters. In the 90s and double zeros, corporate globalization. And now looming climate catastrophe. Sifting those experiences through her scholarly work in systems theory and the Buddha Dharma, she developed a potent, heart-centered approach to social change, which she has since outlined in a host of books, articles, interviews, and most notably, a set of practices she calls the work that reconnects. The work that reconnects is both a general approach and a specific set of techniques to bring people together to confront the painful realities of our time and find a more life-affirming footing for taking them on. Participants don't get over their personal despair, but by feeling it and sharing it with others, usually in a multi-day workshop format, they access their passion and compassion to work for change. By acknowledging the terrible costs of ecocide and injustice, they uncover their motivation to both resist and build a better world. Since pioneering this approach decades ago, she's trained thousands of people in it, including my kayaktivist friend Lois. In her book, Active Hope, Macy writes the greatest danger of our times is the deadening of our response. And much of what follows are wisdom tools for how to stay awake in a time such as ours. The central framework is a spiral with four ever-cycling stages. Gratitude, which grounds us in love for life and helps us be more present. Honoring our pain, in which we have the courage to share our private anguish and turn it outwards as compassion. Seeing with new eyes, in which we feel the larger web of connections and our own power to change. And finally, going forth, where we draw upon the full impact of these transformations to become more resilient as we head off to undertake social change. The work that reconnects contains a large repertoire of practices for each of these moments in the spiral process. It's a radical, soulful, and very accessible framework. And threaded through all of it is the critical distinction between passive and active hope. Passive hope is, well, passive. You're sitting there hoping, and if the odds look bad, there's no point in trying to do anything. Active hope, on the other hand, is a practice. It's about becoming active participants in bringing about what we're hoping for. And crucially, since active hope doesn't require our optimism, we can apply it even in areas where we feel hopeless, which seems to be exactly the kind of hope we need these days. I wanted to know more about this hopeless hope. How did it work? Not in the abstract, but for her? Was she actually hopeless? If so, 
what life strength allowed her to sustain her engagement. While active hope was brimming with positive, engaged energy, some of her more recent articles and interviews had a darker tone. When asked in one of them about several scientists who thought we may have already entered into runaway climate change, she said, I suspect that they are right. Logically, they are right. We don't have a snowball's chance in hell, before going on to make a strong case for acting with passionate dedication to life, regardless how lucky we are to be alive now that we can measure up in this way. To my delight, Joanna knew of me too. Upon witnessing the climate ribbon, she'd remarked upon the resonances it had with her own work. Also, someone had once given her a copy of my book, Daily Afflictions, for her birthday, and she was quite fond. Her assistant told me via email of at least one passage from it. So I had an in. And a good thing, too. She was not officially doing interviews anymore. I came to her South Berkeley home for early afternoon tea. She was an even more spry and sparkling version of her author photo, and seemed as curious to meet me as I was to meet her. She reminded me of Maud from the cult classic Harold and Maud. Harold, Maud, you're so good with people. Maud, well, they're my species. She had Maud's joy and spunk, and something else, a kindness, both in her eyes and in her at times fragile voice. She heated water for tea and laid out a spread of cucumbers and dates from her neighbor's garden. I was the one taking up her time, but here she was taking care of me. Would you like honey? A knife to cut the cucumbers. Is your recorder thing working? And she continued to check in on me in this way throughout the interview. She radiated kindness and a sorrow-laced wisdom. We spoke of Lois for a few minutes, then jumped in. Not surprisingly, she asked me about my work before I could ask her about hers. Joanna. So, tell me what you're working on now. Andrew. It's a book about our climate predicament. Working title, I Want a Better Catastrophe. Joanna. Yeah, that sounds about right. It certainly looks like the Western Antarctic ice sheet is going to melt and fall in. Then what? Andrew. Right. Then what? Joanna. My apocalyptic sense is very strong. I feel we have very little time. I rarely hear any people, except, say, Richard Heinberg, talk honestly about how fast our window is closing before all is lost. A lot of us really think it's too late. So how do you keep on going? Andrew. Exactly. Social movements run on hope. You want to be able to invite people into something positive and meaningful and to building a new and better world, not just how to cope with a world that's going to become unspeakably worse. Yet if you're paying attention to what's happening to the planet, you know that unspeakably worse is a possibility, even a probability, if not already an inevitability, to hear some folks tell it. So I feel like I'm constantly navigating between my private sense of doom and keeping up a positive public face. It's a struggle, a predicament, a paradox, even a cheat. And part of what I'm trying to figure out by writing this book and talking to you is how to navigate it in good faith. Joanna, it's hard to invite people into more honesty than they're accustomed to more honesty than our culture generally tolerates. In America, there's this very strong need to be hopeful and comfortable. You get the message early on that if you want to get ahead, don't talk about the really dark stuff. If you want to have friends, don't tell them how bleak it is. But inviting people into their honesty can be very liberating, and letting people know they're not alone in all this can be very empowering. Andrew, you designed the work that reconnects to do just that. How did you get started with it? Joanna, 
It was back in the 70s when the nuclear threat, which never went away, mind you, felt much like the climate threat does today. I realized I had all this information, the apocalyptic consequences of a nuclear accident, as well as how radioactive reactors are even when they're not having an accident. I'd been pulling it together for a lawsuit, and I wanted to tell people about it, but nobody wanted to hear. Well, that was very odd, I thought. Is it that people don't care? I soon realized, no, they do care. In fact, most folks already knew how bad it was, and it hurt them to know. I quickly realized that to harangue people about it is the last thing you should do. What you need to do is let them talk. You need to create ways for people to tell you how bad they already know it is. Andrew. And also that there's paths forward, or at least ways to cope, that they may not have imagined. Joanna. Yes. My scholarly work is in systems theory and the Buddha Dharma, and some of my early experiments were grounded in meditation practice. One practice was focused on how people can tolerate pain, moral pain. In the practice of meditation, you feel physical pain. My nose is itching. My knees are cramped. Whatever. And you learn to just be with that pain. So I wondered, if we can learn to be with that personal physical pain, can we also learn to be with the pain in the world? I began inventing ways to give people a chance to speak what they already knew. Open sentences were one of the first techniques. People worked in pairs, asking each other to fill in the sentence. When I think about my world, what I'm scared of happening is. Or, as I look at my world, what breaks my heart is. It was a very simple technique, but just speaking these sentences aloud to one another was very powerful for people. You're immediately in the thick of the conversation, in the reality of it all, in a way that would never happen on its own. If you asked folks to just sit down and talk about what they're worried about, it wouldn't happen. But that open sentence opens everything up. When I did my first public workshop, I had written an article called How to Deal with This Bear. I'd written the article on the heels of a year-and-a-half-long dark night of the soul. I'd come out of it, and I thought I'd learned a lot about despair and how to deal with it. The idea was to write the article and get on with the rest of my life. Andrew. The best laid plans. Joanna. Yes, exactly. I was going to put it all behind me. Well, it was published in New Age Journal, and hundreds of letters came in response. These letters were boxed and sent to me in Sri Lanka where I was doing a year of field work and Buddhist community organizing. Here's the most interesting part. None of the letters complained that I hadn't told them what to do, because I hadn't. All I had done was shared a few processes, pretty embryonic at the time, for how to deal with despair and what it can do for you to walk through that gate. No one complained that I hadn't told them how to stop nuclear war, or how to stop clear-cutting, or how to fix any of the other things wrong with the world. They just said, thank you. That's all. It was all, thank you. Each one in a different way said, thank you for showing me I'm not crazy. Thank you for showing me I'm not alone. They were very moving to read. On the heels of the article, I was asked to do a workshop. I said, okay, I'll do one. I entitled it, From Despair to Empowerment, which turned out to be the first and last time I ever used those words, from and to, because I realized you don't leave it behind you. From then on, it was always despair and empowerment, because the question of how to deal with your despair is ongoing. You see, this was 1980, and Ronald Reagan was running for president, and although the nuclear arms race with the USSR had already begun, 
everything seemed so normal. I was astonished that anybody would even come. But they did. A broad group of folks, from business people to hippies, and I was terrified because I thought, I really don't know how to do this. Anyway, even before it was over, people were asking me to do another one here and another one there. Andrew, you were learning as you went. Joanna, yes, and what I was discovering in those early years was how essential it was to do this in a group. People see that they're not the only one, and coming out of the workshop, people were charged up to work together, to get out there and change things. That was what I expected, and it was worth everything. But then something else happened. Something changed in the way they spoke. It was a shift in identity. I saw them start to move beyond their self-interest to speak as the earth. It was as if the earth was working through us. This I had not expected, and it blew me away. It was a liberation from the separate ego. And once that happens, then you're ready to do so much more. Your caring is so big. Andrew. And how has the work evolved since? Joanna. The work now is very centered in gratitude. We don't go right into our pain for the world. We've stopped using the word despair. Andrew. And why is that? Joanna. There are so many other more immediate feelings. There's anger. There's fear, dread, and overwhelm. There's deep, deep sorrow. In speaking the grief, you realize that it's not the kind of grief or rage or fear that can be equated with what you encounter in your own life or even in your family. It's categorically different from the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. You're grieving for the whole show. You're grieving for our entire world. Jesus Christ! Once you allow that in, it brings you into a realization that you are vastly more than a separate person, that you're a doorway or window into a much vaster identity, and you can count on that identity to help you. It can work through you. You can undertake things. You could say, oh, run for city council, or stop a pipeline. You realize there's something ready to move through you. It's like grace. In my Christian childhood, we used to think that grace was something from God. But grace comes from whatever you're acting on behalf of. If you're acting on behalf of the earth, the earth is right there at your back, ready to come right on through you and for you. It's been a very beautiful journey. Andrew, your journey from Christian grace to eco-Buddhism? Joanna, well, that, yes, but everything. When we started working together on Active Hope, my British co-author, Chris Johnstone, who is not a Buddhist, told me I needed to keep two Buddhist terms, bodhicitta and bodhisattva. But, he said, you need to explain it in one simple phrase. Well, I told him, here's three. The bodhisattva is someone who has a boundless heart, someone who realizes there's no private salvation, someone who acts on behalf of all beings. Andrew. And bodhicitta? Joanna. The motivation to act for the sake of the whole. And more and more, I see people stepping up into both of these roles. Andrew, tell me what you're seeing. Joanna, there's something incredible happening. So many people acting on behalf of the whole. They're from all walks of life, whether it's people organizing farm workers here in California or people opening their homes to refugees in Greece and elsewhere. They're all over. Something is happening, and I'm beginning to see it as an evolutionary juncture. We are evolutionally showing a capacity to act on behalf of the earth. That's certainly been true of noble people in the past, but not in such numbers. Andrew. 
Do you think of yourself as a kind of midwife, one of many, of course, of the great turning? Joanna. After that first workshop, a seasoned activist turned to me and said, Why are you doing this? Why? I started to say something like, So people can be more effective agents of social change. But what came right from my solar plexus was, So that when things come apart, we will not turn on each other. Now I think if that were all I had to offer, it would be enough. If we're going to go out, let's do it well. Maybe if we know how to do it well, then it's all worth it. We have such an incredible history, so many noble souls, so much creativity, so much shared endurance, so many fighters for justice. If we go out well, it could be beautiful, and you'd be proud. When you wake up, when you truly wake up to the moment we're in, and especially when you wake up together, you don't say, oh, I wish it would last forever. You don't care about that, because all of time has come together for you. You don't say, actually, I wanted all this to go on for another hundred years, because you are in the present moment, in all its fullness. Andrew. So you do the work both to help people become stronger, more resilient fighters for justice, and also good caretakers of each other in the here and now, even if we're going down. Joanna. I'm thrilled when I see people do beautiful, innovative, brave, creative stuff to talk back to the big jerks in power. I love that. And we absolutely also need to learn how not to turn on each other if things fall apart. Andrew. You're saying, since we don't know how things are going to turn out, we must prepare for both possible futures? We must teach ourselves now how to serve the whole whichever way things go? Joanna. Exactly. Andrew. But some of us don't sit well with that kind of uncertainty. We want to know, does our species have a future worth living or not? Just to be able to orient ourselves. But we actually don't know, you're saying, and you've designed the work that reconnects to straddle that uncertainty. Joanna. Maybe it's some moral cowardice on my part, but I don't think I actually can tell which way it's going to go. We can't tell because the natural world and the social world exhibit emergent properties. We may be much closer to an outbreak of sanity than we realize. Andrew. In your work, you talk about uncertainty as a source of awakening and creativity. Joanna. Yes, I believe we can be wonderfully strengthened by uncertainty. Andrew. So what about the people who are so certain that they just say, look, our time is up, we're done for, deal with it? Joanna. That's what I've heard from Guy McPherson. For one thing, it's boring. There we go again. Who are we to say that, for heaven's sakes? It doesn't help. It's boring. You're boring to be around. You're boring to be with yourself. If you're just sitting there, so certain that it's all over, then at some level, you're glad about it. See, I told you so. We're all going down. In the Buddhist path, there's great importance placed on the don't-know mind. The central teaching of the Lord Buddha is the radical inner existence of all things. Everything plays back and forth from all sides. Everything is contingent upon everything else. So, to claim that you know the outcome is hilarious and pathetic. Andrew. You can mic drop pretty hard for an octogenarian. Joanna. Ha! Huh? Andrew. Now, this is all so much more challenging for people with kids, isn't it? Joanna. Yes, absolutely. I have three children. In spite of growing up elsewhere, they've all settled here in California. And we all just had a big birthday celebration the night before last. Andrew. Your daughter lives downstairs, you said. Joanna. Yes, and my son Jack lives on our same block, six streets down. 
He works in the Department of the Environment for San Francisco County and City. We don't bother talking about how this might be the end. He knows how dire it is. And he's got these two beautiful, brilliant daughters, 15 and 18. It's heartbreaking and also beautiful to see him being such a devoted father while knowing so much. He's constantly working at the edges. He spearheaded the city to go zero waste. Now there's cities around the globe doing it. Right now, he's doing a lot of work around carbon sequestration in the soil. There's no way we can reduce our emissions quickly enough, he says, so the only way we're going to make it through is by massively scaling up some form of carbon sequestration. He's the only one of the children I've co-led workshops with. Andrew, how did that come about? Joanna, when he was at college at Tufts, I did my first workshop in Boston. My daughter, then in high school, was visiting him, so they were both in town. She said, hey, mom, we're here and you're here. You're doing a workshop. We're going to come. I said, you don't need to. I realized I didn't want them to. I didn't want to hear their despair or have them hear mine. Instead, I said, Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Have you seen the aquarium? But I couldn't stop them. They invited themselves. Everyone else in the workshop, probably 18 or 20 of us, in a dusty room up over Copley Square, were just blown away that I was bringing these two teenage kids. Then I got on with things and basically forgot they were there. In the middle of the day, we did a despair ritual. People were softened up. It was very raw. I was brave back then. They were in different places in the grief circle. My daughter went to anger, and my son went to grief. He wept about species loss. He just sobbed. I was struck that they both went to what was least socially acceptable for their gender. Andrew, that your kids and people in general are willing to take risks like that. Is that what gives you hope? Joanna, oh, so much gives me hope. I'm a happy girl. But what I love about the work I do is that it makes us see that hope is less important. We in the West, particularly us Americans, enshrine hope. We're constantly taking our pulse as to whether we're hopeful or hopeless whether we're optimistic. I think that's a waste of time. In the Buddha Dharma, the term hope doesn't even exist. The point is to be present. In the West, the figure of hope overshadows so much else. It overmanages the present moment and the pulse of life. What gives me hope? What maybe gives me hope is that I'm glad to be alive. I love the world. I love life. Andrew, what do you say to those who ask, if there's no hope, if we have no chance, why should I spend my life fighting for an impossible cause, a hopeless cause? Joanna, because it's too late for you to do otherwise. You're already worrying about how much trouble we're in. So there would always be in your mind, in your heart mind, 
the realization that you're avoiding something. And so you're not going to be fully present. You're going to be at odds with yourself. Instead, I found that just about the most fun in life is to work with people on something that matters, even when you lose. At this point, with all that's going on, if somebody isn't concerned, I'm not going to bother with them. There are enough people who are concerned. We don't need to have 100% of people on board. It'd just be so tedious to try to convince someone who's become such an escape artist to themselves, who's put a bag over his or her head. And yes, there's a lot of them. But why should I decide I'm their moral rescuer? I'd much rather find people, and there are so many people, who are still alive enough to care. Andrew, choose your battles and choose who to serve. Joanna, there's a certain necessary triage. Andrew, I read an interview with you in Eco-Buddhism webzine from 2014 in which you quote a Korean Buddhist monk who says, Sunsets are beautiful too. Does that ring a bell? Joanna, yes, it certainly does. Andrew, so what do you say to the people who have decided that their truest purpose now is watching, witnessing the sunset? That the game is over, for our species, or at least our civilization. And our truest purpose right now is to witness the going down, to experience the beauty of nature before it's all gone. Joanna, it doesn't bother me. It's okay to make that choice. But there's so much more we could do. We could use this last time better. We could start by treating people better. It's embarrassing to go out as a species when we're treating each other and the world so poorly. I would like to go out with my hands washed and my face washed, and not just be a creep. Andrew, not just fall back to a smaller circle of concern. Joanna, yes, we need to keep the whole in mind. We need to have more pride in ourselves. If this is the end, I want to be my best self. Andrew, is that a moral commandment or more of an aesthetic commitment? Joanna, who knows? If it's the end, I want to do it well. Who in the hell anywhere is ever again going to hear a line of Shakespeare, a phrase of Mozart, the sound of Bach? It's been a great run, so let's go out with pride instead of just going. I'll grab what I can. Andrew, you're saying if it's over, let's at least exit the stage with dignity, with nobility, with head held high. Joanna, and have somebody doing some wonderful somersaults along the way. We've been able to do incredible stuff as earthlings, and with our friends, our older friends, the elephants, the owls, the mountains, for Christ's sake, let's treat them decently at the end. Let's pull it together. We should have funerals for the mountaintops, you know. You need funerals for things, too. And if you're going to a funeral, you wouldn't go with food smeared all over your vest. You'd have some beautiful music. You'd want it to be like, boy, they couldn't save their planet but they did have a certain something. Andrew, one of the attitudes that surfaced in the conversations I've held is, I'm going to drown with my boots on. There's a dignity in it, similar maybe to the kind of dignity you're talking about here. And there's also a commitment to fight to the end because who knows what's possible. Or, as you say in the eco-Buddhism interview, it looks bleak. Big deal. It looks bleak. Joanna, right. No whining. This moment is all that we have. Let's love one another and do all that we can for one another. Andrew, well, I know you must go, and this seems like a strong place to end. Joanna, yes, but let's end with your daily afflictions. Can you read the piece about the agony of being connected to everything? Andrew, ah, whoa, okay. 
That'd be an absurd, incredible honor. Joanna, read it. That'd be a beautiful close to our time. And I read her the passage. Here it is in full. The agony of being connected to everything in the universe. What is to give light must endure burning. Victor Frankl Many of us have set out on the path of enlightenment. We long for a release of self in some kind of mystical union with all things. But the moment of epiphany when we finally see the whole pattern and sense our place in the cosmic web can be a crushing experience from which we never fully recover. Compassion hurts. When you feel connected to everything, you also feel responsible for everything, and you cannot turn away. Your destiny is bound with the destinies of others. You must either learn to carry the universe or be crushed by it. You must grow strong enough to love the world, yet empty enough to sit down at the same table with its worst horrors. To seek enlightenment is to seek annihilation, rebirth, and the taking up of burdens. You must come prepared to touch and be touched by each and everything in heaven and hell. I am one with the universe, and it hurts. After I read the closing line, we repeated it out loud together in unison. Joanna smiled. She knew better than most how hard it was to stay open and connected, especially in a time such as ours. She dedicated her life to waking people up to that adventure. I was glad to offer her a little something in return. I ate the last two slices of cucumber, and we moved the teacups and saucers to the sink. We hugged, took a selfie to send to Lois, and said our goodbyes. I was soon out on the sidewalk in front of her home. The mid-afternoon sunlight was breaking around some cloud cover. I took off a layer and decided to walk Berkeley's well-trimmed, traffic-calm streets. There was much to ponder. As with so many of these meetings, I hadn't known quite what to expect. I called them meetings with doomers and hopers, but few had fit neatly into either category. Joanna maybe least of all. My apocalyptic sense is very strong, she'd said early on. Then halfway through, we may be much closer to an outbreak of sanity than we realize. By the end, however, we were discussing the existential etiquette for attending a funeral for our own species, and I wondered what really is in store for us. We might be facing hospice earth, or we might be on the cusp of a great turning. There is certainly no shortage of terrible evidence to support the former. And in our interview, Joanna wondered aloud whether it was moral cowardice that has prevented her from accepting that that's how it's going to go down. Ultimately, she asserted that we don't know. And according to her read of systems theory, we can't definitively know. And so we must prepare for both. To properly follow Joanna's path, it seems one must attempt to be of service not knowing whether you're a hospice worker or a midwife. We must prepare ourselves for the end of all things while still fighting for a new beginning, all the while both loving life and honoring what we're losing. It is not simple to prepare simultaneously for such radically different roles. It requires some skill in the art of living and loving, the ability to turn uncertainty into an ally, as well as some care in what stories we choose to tell ourselves. To see Joanna straddling it all with such grace and humor and tea and cucumbers gave me, well, hope, or at least, something that felt like hope. Not the optimistic kind of hope. More like Joanna's, life is a beautiful gift so let's honor it by doing all we can kind of hope. What aileth thee? Everybody, says Joanna Macy, is going around as if it's normal to be preparing for the apocalypse. 
as if it were tolerable to not be fully alive. In our era of mass denial and self-deceit, it can be terrifying to look around and speak the simple truth of what we see. How do we begin to do this? Consider the legend of the Fisher King, as Joanna told it to me. Parsifal, a knight of the round table, is on a quest. He finds himself in a wasteland, the first reference to wasteland in all of Western literature. Nothing can grow here. Eventually he comes to the castle of the Fisher King. He finds the ruler wounded in the groin. He too has lost the powers of regeneration. There's a prophecy that the curse that is blighting the land will be lifted if a knight comes to the castle and simply asks, What is the matter here? Parsifal is brought before the king. Being a knight, he knows the proper etiquette. He knows you don't ask questions. So he receives the hospitality of the ruler and the court, and although he sees that something is very wrong, he says nothing. And lo, the castle vanishes before his eyes. Continuing on his quest, he eventually leaves the wasteland and runs across Country the Witch, who excoriates him for being such a lousy knight because he had neither the courage nor compassion to ask the king what was the matter. Parsifal is distraught. He falls into a terrible depression. Seeing that Parsifal is determined to return to the wasteland and redeem himself, Kundry finally consents to give him directions. Parsifal makes his way back to the wasteland, which is now more wasted than ever. He makes it to the castle of the Fisher King, who is sicker than ever. Without pausing, he goes straight into the hall of the king. There's an event going on. It's all very formal and forced. No one is talking about the sickness that has seized the land. Parsifal kneels by the royal hammock on which the king rests and says, My lord, what aileth thee? Light comes to the king's face, color to his cheeks, strength into his legs. As he stands, he and his courtiers look out the window where green shoots are already sprouting throughout what was the wasteland. The spell is broken. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Like the Fisher King, we too live in a kingdom in denial. The castle of our civilization also sits amidst the wasteland. A wasteland we ourselves have spawned. But by asking an honest and compassionate question, what aileth thee? In effect, insisting that, no, it's not normal to be preparing for the apocalypse. No, it's not okay to only be half alive. Parsifal breaks the spell. And we can too. Like Parsifal, or Greta Thunberg for that matter, we must learn to have the bad manners to speak the truth of our dark time, as well as the good heart to see them through it. To set off on our quest, we don't need to have it all figured out. 
we simply need to recognize that things are broken and be willing to do what we can to repair the damage. The first step is simple. With honesty and compassion, ask the question on all our minds. Then listen, and let that heartbroken human connection transform you, heal you, guide you. Do we need hope for this task? No, says Joanna. In the Buddha Dharma, the term doesn't even exist. It's an empty concept. The point is to be present. The pulse of life and connection is enough. And yet, deep in our hearts, so many of us are still asking, is there hope? Meetings with Remarkable Hopers and Doomers Dr. Jamie Heck Witness the whole human story through tragic eyes. On the question of hope, Gopal had no time for wishful thinking or uncertain ditherings. For him, hope rolled you hard into action or was worthless. He was certain we were going to survive. Joanna, meanwhile, practiced an active hope, even if she wasn't sure there actually was any. In the wake of these interviews, any kind of hope would have sufficed, because my next meeting was in Los Angeles with someone who had none. My train rolled south out of Oakland down California's coast, through layers of beauty and destruction, both seen and unseen. On my right, the Pacific Ocean, blue and vast. Yet beneath its sparkling surface, a process of carbon-driven acidification was slowly choking the life out of it. And just a few hundred miles beyond its postcard horizon swilled a gyre of plastic garbage four times bigger than California itself. To my left, the rolling hills and fog-bound forests of mid-coast California belied another story. Only 3% of the original old-growth forests that stood in 1849, when white people arrived in force, were still standing, while drought and forest fire and the uncertainties of climate change threatened the rest. As I rolled into Los Angeles, traffic clogged clover leaves, paved over arroyos, and policed enclaves of rich and poor rose up all around me. This built environment felt like an immovable monument to the tragedy of the commons and our ecocidal future. The world began in Eden, Phil Ox tells us, and ended in Los Angeles. In his song of that same name, he sings, So this is where the Renaissance has led to, and we will be the only ones to know. So take a drive and breathe the air of ashes. Welcome to Los Angeles, city of tomorrow. On the other hand, I could neither see nor smell the infamous smog that choked L.A. when Ox had sung those lines. Thanks to tougher air quality standards, pollution is down 85% since the 1970s, and the number of ozone advisories has dropped from a high of 184 in 1976 to near zero. Although the worst of the pollution that remains continues to have an outsized impact on black and brown and poor communities, with forward-looking environmental policies including mandatory rooftop solar on all new building construction and an ambitious effort to generate 50% of its electricity from renewables by 2025 and 100% by 2045, the state has become a global climate leader. For the person I was here to meet, however, these late-game efforts and signs of progress did not outweigh the larger trends. He was convinced the world was ending, not just here in Los Angeles, but everywhere, and he might not be wrong. Right or wrong, he had a unique and uniquely tragic perspective on how to live with that awareness, which I was keen to hear about in person. By training a psychoanalyst and historian of literature, Jamie Hecht was also one of the most soulful collapse bloggers on the Internet.
We had a mutual friend in common who put us in touch. And now here I was, in defiance of local custom, walking the thirty or so minutes from my mid-city couch surf to his apartment. Alongside his psychological insights, what most struck me in Jamie's online essays was their compassion. Whoever feels, he writes, in Five Reasons Why Some People Insist on Discussing Collapse and Even Extinction, the obvious emotional reality that elephants are non-human persons, they have self-awareness, love their children, mourn their dead, live by matriarchy, form deep social bonds, weep when sad, play joyfully, communicate, and so on, cannot bear the unbearable knowledge that these people are now being rapidly murdered out of existence. Part of it was his heartbroken honesty. Here he is in the same essay laying out the case for why some of us are driven to speak the truth about our situation, even at substantial emotional cost. American civilization is an abusive parent who provides more material goods than most, but lies about just how violently he acquired those goods. In such a family, some kids will prefer to keep the stuff and repress their own guilt and terror. This is not just so they can keep the presence. They do it because if they don't, their dad's illusory goodness will disappear, and they will be flooded with a painful ambivalence that they are not equipped to process or contain. The abusive parent has an addiction, oil, which doesn't just drive the bully in charge, it also powers the profligate lifestyle that is all the kids have ever known. While some kids will need to stay with the abuser's program, other kids will find a way to speak the truth. Speaking that truth will both risk the wrath of the abusive father and alienate the kids who are still trying to love him. But in a regime of endless lies and unacknowledged open secrets, speaking the truth can feel so important as to drive us to risk ostracism and punishment. We have to do it. The oil addiction metaphor was familiar, but rarely had I seen it worked through with such psychological precision. What I had most wanted to discuss with him, however, was another essay, Collapse Awareness and the Tragic Consciousness, in which Jamie wonders aloud how to make meaning in a doomed world. How, he asks, do we bear the unbearable knowledge that we are staring at a near future of catastrophic warming, no matter what we do? His argument is multilayered and relentless. First, he acknowledges the difficulties and emotional costs involved. It is traumatic to realize this, he says, and so one simply does not discuss it. To do so, he argues, delivers us over to terrible feelings of helplessness. I can't stop climate change. Humiliation. Exxon is more powerful than all of us combined. And anime. What matters in a doomed world? But for those of us who can't look away, he sounds his central theme. The phenomenon of collapse is so frightening that the trauma of realizing it has to be mastered in a way that derives meaning. He then explores the tricky interplay of hope and meaning, admitting that until just a few years ago, he believed that it was still possible to transition our civilization towards a harm-reducing culture. And even though most people continue to believe it possible still, he argues that possible or not, it is vanishingly improbable not as a lottery win or a bet at a roulette wheel is unlikely, where the problem space happens to include a large number of equally unlikely outcomes, but as victory is unlikely in a war between equal armies after one side is decimated while the other is unscathed. As he brought the allegory home, my blood ran cold. Maybe the last ten green-shirted soldiers will somehow slaughter their remaining thousand black-shirted opponents. It is philosophically possible, 
but everything speaks against its occurrence. He then lays out the options. 1. Recalibrate one's hopes, scaling them down so that the smallest of victories will count as a great yes from the universe, or 2. Go back to the data in a search either for hope or for that dark certainty which makes despair into a solid resting place. Or, 3. Use your remaining uncertainty to trigger the equivalent of a restore function in an electronic device that deletes the painful knowledge and restores the comfortable illusions we once held. Or, 4. Rest one's case within the limits of human knowledge, i.e., acknowledge that nobody really knows exactly when things are going to become utterly unlivable. If one finds these options unsatisfying, he offers another alternative, the tragic consciousness. It's a phrase, Jamie explains, that literary scholars and critics have invented to describe the paradoxical effect of the tragic drama, where the observer experiences a strangely elevated mood after watching a sympathetic figure get destroyed by the gods, by society, by the entailments of his or her own mistakes. The material is miserable, and yet it elates us. The effect has something to do with what Aristotle called catharsis, where the story purges us of pity, which we feel for the figure on the stage, since he is doomed where we are safe, and terror, which we feel for ourselves, since we identify with him on the basis of a shared humanity, and a shared, i.e. mortal, predicament. But catharsis is only a part of it. He writes, the tragic consciousness seems to require that we become witness to the whole story. It is this narrative completeness that grounds a story's moral complexity and answers the question of how a reasonable person could possibly come to this, which he notes is the same question psychotherapists are asked to consider when they get a client who challenges their sense of decency, and also similar to what is demanded of us in the practice of nonviolence, where we are asked to consider how our opponents got to where they are, how they acquired their racism or greed or cruelty, etc., in order to love the human beings beneath the history. Once we know the full story, whether through tragedy, therapy, or nonviolent practice, the ugliness has a meaning. Once we can sufficiently set aside our feelings of anxiety and blame and shame and see the full story, Jamie suggests, we can contemplate our species' emergence, rise, and crashing decline as a story, weirdly graced with an aesthetic and narrative completeness. When it is too late for prudence or virtue, Jamie argues, wisdom loses its ethical character and becomes a mostly aesthetic phenomenon. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. When we focus on the paths not taken, we experience the disaster as a waste, a stupid mistake, a crime.
It is all of those things. But when we push the counterfactual away and focus on what did happen, the picture changes. It becomes tragic. And from there, the essay rolls tragedy and reality together in a conclusion that deserves to be quoted at length. Choose a tragic hero, and you will find that his or her hubris was avoidable, but only in a different world, or with a different inner character. Tragic heroes do what they do for manifold reasons, the heart of which is human nature. We are the animal that does this. So it is with our destruction of the planet we loved. All animals in an isolated environment, like a vat, an island, or the earth, do as we did. When they consume the available resources in a finite system until they overshoot the system's carrying capacity and begin to die off. If we are unusual in that we became aware of what we were doing, we are also unusual, though again not alone, in our tendency to ignore warnings when our identity is involved. We did not lower our energy consumption because it would have been a return to weakness, childhood, helplessness, all the things industrial civilization fears and hates the most. Just as in Greek drama or Shakespearean tragedy, this fear of the wrong thing determines our fate and defines us in the universe. For me these days, and perhaps for you, coping is a two-handed job. One hand holds the despair which must somehow be held, contained, regulated, bounded. The other holds the tools with which we must make our attempts to adapt. Here was an incredibly thoughtful person, who after much research, contemplation, and angsting, had become convinced we were on the cusp of imminent catastrophe and very possibly extinction. Whether I dismissed his approach as a premature surrender, or respected it as a terrible kind of knowing, and I did both in the weeks leading up to our meeting, I was curious what kind of man Jamie would turn out to be. What was it like for him to know deep in his heart that we are doomed? I didn't have to agree with all his conclusions or share his sense of powerlessness to suspect I had much to learn from his dogged sensitivity to our predicament. He met me at the door and welcomed me in. His apartment, actually his office, art studio, and home all rolled into one, was small and dark and full of books. It felt more like New York than L.A. The canon of Western literature and psychoanalysis had their shelves. So, too, did the canon of collapse. There was Derek Jensen leaning on James Hansen. Sally Weintraub's collection of psychoanalytic and interdisciplinary perspectives on climate change stood uneasily between the endgame and Craig Dilworth's Too Smart for Our Own Good. On yet another shelf, George Marshall was holding forth on why our brains are wired to ignore climate change, as Guy McPherson wondered whether the American dream had become a nightmare, and Dale Jameson warily told us why the struggle against climate change failed and what it means for our future. The impossible news went on for four full shelves, a shrine to Jamie's obsession and dedication. He may have been an amateur collapse theorist, but he could probably put more than a few professionals to shame. He offered me a beer and grabbed one himself, and we started talking. The most noticeable thing about Jamie was his voice. It had an intellectual, almost British lilt that at first encounter could easily come off as pretentious and airy. But once I got used to it, I realized, no, the lilt was speculative, reflective, as if he was holding each of his ideas up to the light for his own critical inspection. He was intense and curious, his intellect fluid and wide-ranging. It was obvious that he loved the life of the mind. 
When people ask me what I think about things, he said, almost as a way of introduction, I tend to name-drop books in an effort to fan out the subject and increase its available surface area. After some of this fanning out and some personal backstory in both directions, we zeroed in. Andrew, in one of your essays, you describe yourself as a bleeding-heart doomer. What do you mean exactly, and what were the stages that led you there? Jamie, the bleeding-heart part, which I appear to have said at some point, has to do with the politics of empathy, and the doomer part has to do with how impressed I am by the evidence that the habitat for our species on this planet is profoundly compromised, and is in a cascading process of contraction and likely collapse. And that ain't good. Not for us, and not for all the other species. Now, given that all things begin and end in eternity, there had to be a generation on the scene when things became unworkable. Whether that was going to happen hundreds of thousands of years in the future, or right now and over the next coming decades, it had to happen eventually. Given the evidence, and I find much of it from Guy McPherson to Lester Brown and the World Watch Institute, convincing that we are among the handful of generations present at the unraveling, we can, I think, reflect that somebody had to draw that straw, and we happen to be among their number. Why this perspective is soothing to me, I don't know, but I find it really reassuring. An end had to come at some point, and when it did, somebody had to be there to witness it turns out it is us and our children and perhaps their children but not too much further out than that it stings like a wasp andrew i may not share your conclusions but it still feels too real if that makes any sense jamie it is too real it's not amenable enough to the frames we try to put around it to handle it it tends to dissolve whatever perspective or emotions we try to bring to it in order to tolerate it it's like trying to hold radioactive material. You need one of those special glove box setups to even handle the stuff. Andrew, if Tesla can make a battery to handle half of Australia's electric grid, you'd think they could make a glove box to better hold our hearts, no? Jamie, the goal, it seems to me, is to live in such a way that your one shot at happiness is not utterly destroyed. How am I to live in the truth on a doomed planet and not lose my shot at happiness? The answer has to be some kind of compartmentalization in the mind. You've got to find a part of yourself which can tolerate these truths, so another part of yourself can be spared that struggle. Of course, we all know that compartmentalization comes at a cost. If the compartmentalization is deep enough, it reaches all the way down as a vertical split into the unconscious, and then you really pay a tax for it. However, it seems to me that a more conscious and deliberate compartmentalization a more cultivated and informed compartmentalization might be the road forward. In this way, part of your mind is in the business of dealing with these facts, and the rest of you is set up for a very different and sometimes contradictory goal, which is to not miss your one shot at happiness. You live in the truth insofar as you occasionally touch base with the facts, but you live for the good in that you cultivate happiness largely through relationships with other people. Truth isn't everything. Andrew this deliberate compartmentalization is a life hack for dealing with our impossible situation, a way for us to still live both in the truth and for the good, in spite of what we know. Jamie. Yes, remember, Plato defined philosophy as having three main branches, the true, the beautiful, and the good, where truth was dealt with by the epistemology, beauty by aesthetics, and goodness by ethics. Andrew. 
channeling Nietzsche. We compartmentalize so that we do not perish from the truth. Jamie. More or less. Andrew. But in your estimation, the truth is going to kill us anyway. Jamie. I wish I could say something more satisfying than that, but it's the best I can do. Andrew. You've read widely and thought deeply about social and environmental collapse and our prospects as a species going forward, and you're quite convinced we only have a few generations left. I don't want to debate your conclusions. My interest here is not to definitively determine which future we're going to get, but rather to explore how to be human across a range of our possible futures. Jamie. I respect that. And just for the record, I've read and listened to Guy McPherson's critics, and I was praying that they would convince me that Guy was wrong. Andrew. We all want to live in a world where he is wrong. Jamie. Yeah, including Guy. He himself devoutly wishes to be proven wrong. The thing is, a fellow like Richard Heinberg, who is profoundly aware of the energy profile of our civilization, or Joseph Tainter, the preeminent scholar of the collapse of complex societies, or Dmitry Orlov, and I could name several more. While they may not say it as baldly as Guy, they know that what's already baked into the cake is severe enough that our current set of living arrangements will not endure, and that we probably face conditions in which our population will be, at the very least, reduced to something much, much closer to our natural carrying capacity on this planet in the absence of cheap and abundant fossil fuels. It makes sense to be nervous. Andrew, speaking of being nervous, you've described anxiety as an understandable, if not always useful emotion given our circumstances. Care to elaborate? Jamie. Freud wrote about several different kinds of anxiety, and one of them he called signal anxiety, which is an apprehension about some threat in the real world. The function of signal anxiety is to alert you to the presence of those dangers so you can do something about them before the impending harm happens, or more to our point, before it has become inevitable that such harm will happen. Andrew. So a very useful kind of anxiety. Jamie. Some of the anxiety we feel about climate change is signal anxiety because it motivates us to do stuff in the hope that it will change things. But we find ourselves in a predicament, which by definition is not amenable to a solution. Andrew, unlike a problem, which might be. Jamie, right. Now, if you're in a predicament, signal anxiety is no longer of any use. It's outlived its usefulness. Since our mission in the world is to live in such a way that we can be both happy and ethical, it makes sense, then, to distinguish between that portion of the anxiety which can lead to an improved outcome and that which can't. Andrew. The trick, of course, is that people draw that boundary line between what anxiety is useful and what isn't, in very different places. It depends so much on whether you think we have a chance to turn things around or at least survive or not. Many would argue, including me, that there's still much that can be done. Jamie. A big part of what Guy McPherson spends his time doing is spelling out how his message of near-term human extinction is not quietest, that he's encouraging people to live what he calls a life of excellence, which includes striving to oppose the forces that face us with destruction, even in the knowledge that we will not succeed. Andrew, and you? Jamie. In Jewish tradition, there is this very old notion that you're not responsible for fixing the world, but you are responsible for trying. When I was younger, I used to say that it's almost impossible to fix the world. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. But the fact that it is just barely possible, even infinitesimally possible, demands that we try. Some of my dearest heroes are people who gave their lives for the good and indeed the true and the beautiful, but chiefly the good. I am not among their number. I wish to survive. Not only because I have a child, and sisters, and parents, and friends, and all that. But because I love life, and want to be here even though so much of life hurts really bad. Nor do I want to live a life of despair, even though the facts appear to warrant it. I decline to accept a despair which would deliver me over to bitterness and agony. Sure, there is an inherent bitterness and agony in confronting these facts for the first time. And then, as you begin to live with them, more bitterness and agony. Ultimately, however, because conditions in this part of the world at this historical moment, especially for beneficiaries of white privilege, have not yet declined to a point of being unbearable, I still have detectable options available for the pursuit of feelings of well-being. And I avail myself of those options and those feelings, even though I know that the incredibly complex, high-energy systems upon which we all depend for the continuity of our being are likely to come apart in the next few decades, or perhaps even sooner. Kierkegaard says this age is both comic and tragic. Tragic because it is perishing. Andrew. And comic because it continues, right? Jamie. Right. Andrew. I read that in one of your essays and literally laughed out loud. Jamie, you can't lie to yourself, but you can shift the emphasis onto the parts of reality that you can tolerate, and it behooves you to do that. If you want, you can die in the teeth of the truth, but it might be better to acknowledge that the truth is over there, and I see it, and I won't journey into its belly and be digested. That's different from pretending that it doesn't exist. Andrew, I assume you're familiar with the notion of therapeutic distance. Jamie, no, actually. Tell me about it. Andrew, it's the idea that a therapist should hold the middle distance, close enough to have an empathic regard and rapport with the patient, but far enough away to not get sucked in. Jamie, exactly. Much of what I try and impart to my clients as a psychotherapist is to neither repress your feelings nor let them take you over. Andrew, not so different from how you suggest dealing with collapse awareness. Jamie, yes. What I want to do is take a deep breath and then sink low enough in the pool that I can feel the bottom and push off from it. I want to know what's down there. I want to know how bad it truly is. I want to avoid a scenario in which my fear and anxiety prevent me from looking at the truth. 
but I also want to avoid a situation where I am hypnotized by the truth the way that a rabbit is hypnotized by a snake. I don't want to run from it, and I don't want to be eaten by it. I want to see it, and then I want to get the fuck back to going about my business. Andrew, a healthier approach than, say, wallowing in the bad news or hitting other people over the head with how bad it is. Jamie, there's a very particular mode that you and I know a lot about, which is, oh fuck, I know the world is coming to an end far quicker than is generally known or acknowledged, and I am alone in the unbearable state of mind which that awareness imposes on me. I want to help people get out of that spot. I can't do it by telling them, hey, you know what, biochar is a viable solution. Even though I think biochar is a viable solution, because I also think inertia and capitalism will make it almost impossible for biochar to be deployed on the scale and at the speed to sequester enough carbon for us to survive. Andrew, so how do you get folks out of that spot? Jamie, well, one way is to normalize our predicament by saying, I too am aware of this, and yet I show up for interpersonal relationships and community and ice cream and religion and art. Andrew, I met with Joanna Macy earlier this week. I'm sure you know her work. You two are extremely different people, but she says much the same thing. She wouldn't use the word normalize, I imagine, but both the healing and empowerment parts of her practice are based on bringing people together to, basically, look into each other's eyes and say, I too am aware of all this, and here I am, showing up for you and for this moment. It's not so different from what you're recommending. Jamie, I know her work, and yes, in that way, not so different. Andrew, so you act in a Shakespeare company, sing, sculpt, and write poetry. You're a psychoanalyst, a journalist activist, a professor of literature. You speak how many languages? Anyway, you wear several more hats than the rest of us mere mortals even know how to put on. Do these overlapping lenses or antenna give you any special insights into our situation, into our predicament? Jamie, in a flow state, you can cope with damn near anything. Artistic practice is one way to get into a flow state, as are religion, sexuality and relationship, communion with wild nature, cultivation of plants, meditation, maybe a certain class of relatively safe drug experiences. The list is long, but very finite. Andrew. Extreme sports? Jamie. Maybe. It's not my thing, but yeah, when you get into a flow state, you can tolerate damn near anything. The game plays itself, as William James said. Part of it is the pragmatic business of feeling good because you're doing something that you're good at. And your unconscious takes over, and you get to observe yourself in this flow state. But I think it's more profound than that. These experiences of creativity, sexuality, and religion are veridical. Which is to say, I think that they are not merely expressive, but revelatory. It's as obvious to my left brain that there is no God as it is obvious to my right brain that there is. Andrew. That's quite a paradox, isn't it? Jamie. To my left brain, however, it's not a paradox. It's a contradiction in terms. It's absurdity. Andrew. And can this left brain, right brain split help us navigate the moment we're living in? Jamie. The right brain has access to truths which transcend our predicament. The left brain just doesn't. It chokes to death on the facts and it can't get beyond them. It is stuck on an account of love which stops at dopamine, an account of music which stops at the score. Whereas, if you invite the left brain and the right brain into a room and say, I am going to expose you to Beethoven's first symphony, 
and you provide them each with a copy of the score, and then you play the music over the speakers, the left brain will go into the corner with the score, utterly ignore what comes over the speakers, and say, I've got the document. It's all here in black and white. I have mastered it. Meanwhile, the right brain will be utterly uninterested in the score, but be swayed like a branch in a flooded river by the passion of the music. Who is right? Well, of course, each of them is in possession of a crucial part of the truth. But ultimately, it's the right brain that knows what matters most. The right brain knows, oh, we destroyed the biosphere. It is tragic. We are here to witness it. The left brain only knows that it's a totally regrettable disaster. There's nothing but bitterness, regret, and shame. The right brain can see this as a tragic predicament and say, oh, there were too many of us. Because of the commercial exploitation of fossil fuels, we became like the unreflecting animals whom we held in contempt. This is hubris pursued by Nemesis. The gods are in charge after all. Oh well, soon we will lie down in the dust with our ancestors. Andrew, you're channeling Sophocles here, and Shakespeare. Jamie, well, those are my folks, and that's whom you need if you're going to cope with this shit. Andrew, in your essay... You talk a lot about the difficulty, yet the necessity of making meaning in this moment. You suggest that the tragic consciousness is the only way to give our awareness of collapse, the reality that feels like too much reality, its proper due. Jamie. As we mature, we discover that the body will die, and that everyone we love, including ourselves, is ultimately perishing. The tradition in the humanities, particularly the poetic tradition, asserts a value of another kind the acknowledgement and the perpetuation not of the human living body, but of the human image which compensates for the loss of organic biological life. Says Shakespeare in Sonnet 18, So long as men can breathe or eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. Andrew, the this being the poem itself, and by extension human culture, yes? Jamie, yes. And the trouble with climate change is it says, Fuck you to all that. It says you will no longer be able to exchange the cultural continuity of the human image for the loss of organic life of the human body, because the human image is no longer culturally continuous. It will be brought up short. Andrew, by the collapse of civilization, by our own extinction, Jamie. Yes, and here enters the salience of that wonderful book, The World Without Us, by Ellen Wiseman which speculates about just how the seemingly permanent infrastructure we've created is likely to decay in the absence of our maintenance of it. That book adds a beautiful piece to our puzzle, because once you realize how fucked we are, the next thing you often wonder is whether the biosphere will be able to flow over and around what we have inflicted upon it. If the book is any guide, and I think it is, it will take an incredibly long time, and it will be an incomplete process but the biosphere will eventually reassert itself. Andrew. And this gives you a kind of solace. Jamie. I take a great deal of heart from that reflection. I really do. Andrew. More than a few of the people I've spoken with who, as you do, assume it's all over except for the dying, take heart from that reflection. I call it the, we're fucked, but this rock is going to be fine, um, 100 million years from now, attitude. And I get it. I can see why it's a reassuring attitude if you think it's already all over. In fact, it reassures me on my worst days. If, however, we still have a chance to turn things around, it can be a profoundly demobilizing point of view. 
So much hangs on where we draw that line. Jamie. Extinction happens. This won't be the first mass extinction by a long shot. Andrew. Sure. The Permian mass extinction took out 97% of the species that existed on the Earth at the time. Jamie. There's a book about it called When Life Nearly Died. And yet, I don't feel the least obligation to work through, in my spirit, the mind-bending loss which that extinction entailed, nor any of the other five mass extinction events. The sixth one, however, is happening while I am on the scene. I am participating in it by occasionally flying back to New York maybe once a year to see my family. I'm implicated in it. I'm vulnerable to it. It affects me in a way that the previous five extinction events don't. But from the perspective of eternity, all six are the same. Andrew. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. But we don't live from the perspective of eternity. We live from the perspective of humanity. Jamie. That's why the right brain is so important, especially now. Because it makes tangential contact with eternity. A tangent makes contact with a circle at only one point, but it makes contact. Andrew. There's a Zen expression. My heart is on fire, but my eyes are as cold as ashes. It's an invitation into non-dualism, into holding both parts of a paradox, into operating in two contradictory modes at the same time. Jamie. The right brain's jewel is the left brain's trash. Andrew. The awareness that we're heading towards imminent collapse puts us in a predicament. It puts us in an impossible situation. The way to live with it, and in it, is to embrace the whole paradox. Jamie. The right brain has this capacity for paradox. The left brain regards it as mere absurdity, as a mere contradiction in terms. Andrew. The moment we're in is asking our right brain to seriously step up its game. Jamie. It most certainly is. Andrew. How? What does Jamie the psychotherapist have to say? Jamie. I became a psychotherapist in part because of my own experience with depression and mood swings. Andrew. Doctor, heal thyself. Jamie. Exactly. Ralph Waldo Emerson says our moods do not believe in each other. When you've coped with depression... You know how enveloping it can be, and how seductively it can convince you that the darkness which it discloses is the sum total of reality. Then it passes. Andrew. Yep. Been there enough to know that. Jamie. I figured. Andrew. Go on. Jamie. Depression has a way of teaching you that the darkness has its place. It is not the whole story. You can't afford to leave it out, and you also can't afford to give it everything. It must simply have its place. A place at the table, but not the head of the table. A place in the car, but not the driver's seat. You can't get rid of it. But you can generally prevent it from steering you into a level of difficulty you can't tolerate. Andrew. Okay, so who should be driving the car? You're saying despair should be sitting in the back seat, but who's driving? Jamie. Your most compassionate, nurturing, protective, adult self the part of you that can tolerate what you know. Andrew, and protect the part of you that can't?
Jamie. Yes, there's a film, which I regard as a great film, called Melancholia. A planetoid roughly the size of the Earth collides with our world, obliterating the entire human race. In the days leading up to that impact, a man lives out a hypermasculine script of buying propane tanks and all kinds of emergency survivalist gear, while his wife instead pitches a tent and sits in it with their child, awaiting the end without telling the kid what is happening. She's holding herself, holding the truth that she has to tolerate, while holding the kid whom she loves. The man kills himself prior to the impact. The woman awaits it in the wheat field with her child. The person who is driving the psyche is that most adult, most nurturing, protective self who can handle the reality of the situation and say, Come on, I got you, buddy. Come with me. We're going to be okay. But the world is ending. Yes, I know. Everything ends. Come with me. I wish I could say something more nutritious, but that's all I've got. Bowie is dead. Why shouldn't we die someday? We have to anyhow. It's all right. Mortality is a given. It's not some sort of shameful error. Andrew, you're convinced we're definitely going down and fast. You've shut the door. Joanna Macy still holds that door open. She thinks we might make it through, though we very certainly may not. I pressed her on it. Was she just hedging her bets? No. And she's designed her work to prepare us for both possibilities. I sum up her existential invitation as follows. Be of service, not knowing whether you're a hospice worker or a midwife. I think I'm in her camp. Keep fighting for the best catastrophe we can get, while being a tragic, soulful witness to this terrible moment, however it turns out. Jamie. The man who was the pianist on the Titanic played the piano all the way down. That was his destiny, or dharma, as some would say. The potency of the metaphor lies in part in the inertia of the ship headed toward the iceberg. That you can't turn an ocean liner around just by recognizing that it's headed in the wrong direction. Andrew. If you knew soon enough. Jamie. If you knew soon enough, and you had the attention of the people whose labor you required, you might be able to turn the ship around, yes. But lacking either the time or people's attention, your knowledge would be that of Cassandra. There's a line in the Oedipus Tyrannus which I translated, where Tiresias the prophet says, Damn! Damn! How terrible it is to understand where understanding is useless. Andrew. How terrible it is to have signal anxiety when the signal is useless. Jamie. Right. If understanding were useful, our anxiety would be signal anxiety, alerting us to a problem that we could then solve. But, while signal anxiety must be respected in a predicament, as I said before, it is not useful. Andrew, so, what do you counsel in a predicament? Jamie, to the degree that they are available, seek out the sources of human well-being, loving relationship, spiritual life, the arts, civic participation, and nature. That's most of what's there. Put yourself at the top of the list of the people who deserve your compassion. See to your own well-being as you would cultivate the well-being of a younger person who depended upon you. Were you your own child, you would not be cruel and exacting, nor always judging and measuring. You would be kind and decent and gentle. To conclude, the best way for people to cope with a broken world is to cultivate their most nurturing and protective adult self and turn it to face the traumatized child self who cannot tolerate the facts. Andrew melancholia, except 
Jamie. Yes. Instead of the mother taking care of the kid, you take yourself by the hand, joining two intrapsychic parts of yourself, and say, come with me. I will be with you no matter how nasty Hurricane Katrina or whatever else becomes. You do the best you can to protect that vulnerable part of yourself just as you're protecting the other people who depend on you. So while you're still here, you can have some kind of access to joy, or at least coping. That's your job. Your job, your dharma in the world, even at the end of the world, is to become a non-miserable person, with less bitterness and scorn for yourself, and with greater capacities for sadness, not depression, and joy. Put more plainly, at the cost of some nuances, your job at the end of the world is to become a happier person. Your job at the end of the world is to become a happier person. Your job at the end of the world is to become a happier person. If I'd come looking for paradoxes, well, here was a doozy. Hell, at the end of the world, it's hard enough to simply be a person, never mind a happy one. I appreciated Jamie's willingness to make what good he could of the darkness he saw, but I couldn't quite tell where his willingness ended and his willfulness began. In spite of his commandment to be happy, was he himself happy, sitting there in his sunless office-slash-studio-slash-apartment, filled with books and artifacts and memento mori? Was it really all over except for the dying to come? He had a first-class intellect, and he'd read his way through most of the collapsed literature, but ultimately, who was he to say? Luke, his bookshelves whispered to me throughout our meeting, join me on the dark side. No, Jamie, no. Thanks for the beers and for inviting me into your home and into your lucid, beautiful, half-defeated soul, but no, no, or at least not yet. For better or worse, there's still some signal in my signal anxiety. And even if we green-clad soldiers are hopelessly outnumbered, even if those thousand black-clad warriors of capital and inertia are closing in, even then we must fight, we must resist, we must do all that we can, right? All the way back up the West Coast on Amtrak's Starlight Express, I was hounded by that question. Cry of right? 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 And I was hounded by wonder, too. Wonder at the inventiveness of the human spirit, for starters. Look at the last three people I'd met with. They were all hashing through the evidence. They were all reckoning quite genuinely with our predicament. And yet look at the vastly different places they had landed and premises they'd chosen. For Gopal, our survival was axiomatic. We were wired for cooperation. We'd survived far worse. We would make it through. It was going to be ugly, but one way or another, we were going to make it through. The critical question for Gopal was how, because the more justice we could bring about, and the more equitably we could share the inevitable suffering, the less terrible would be our fate. For Joanna, our ultimate fate remained unknown, decidedly so. She'd very consciously chosen this uncertainty. Why? Was it her faith in a universe rich in emergent powers? Her Buddhist heart-mind practice of not knowing? Or a wanton decision to live, in spite of it all, in the most beautiful, life-loving way she could imagine? In any case, she was living her life and doing her work in service to our two possible fates, reinvention and extinction both. And then there was Jamie. Almost as strongly as Gopal believed we would survive, Jamie believed we were done for. We all need to tell ourselves a story, 
but we're done for is a grave choice indeed. How much of this choice was on the merits of the evidence, and how much was, well, a choice? A good fit with his character, training, and sensibilities. There's rarely a shortage of evidence once you've decided what you're looking for. So maybe it's not really about the evidence at all. At the end of his Five Reasons essay, Jamie discusses the futility he feels trying to reduce his carbon footprint. When I reach for the feelings of well-being that would come from an experience of personal agency and instead feel totally powerless, I turn to the only thing left on the shelf, my awareness. I can't fix reality, but at least I can keep acknowledging it. Jamie feels powerless, and so he focuses on his awareness, which is more than most of us are willing to do. And by doing it with such lucidity and compassion, he's able to bring up from the bottom of the pool a treasure trove of insights that can help us all through our collapse awareness. But what does he offer the millions of us, myself included, who haven't given up on fixing reality, who are still getting a signal from our signal anxiety and acting on it? If your sense of power, or in this case powerlessness, hangs on trying to police your individual carbon footprint in the face of the vast destructive power of multinational capital, an effort Jamie describes as 99.9% .9 symbolic, well then yes, you're going to turn away from trying to fix reality and just get better at acknowledging it. But if your sense of power is rooted in being part of a community that is doing something about the problem, then you're way more likely to keep on trying to fix reality. I've been part of several social movements. From nuclear arms reduction in the 80s to battling sweatshops in the 90s to the fight for affordable health care in the double zeros. We didn't win all our battles, far from it, but we made a difference. And the beauty of that experience and the sense of power that came with it lifts me up still. Anyone who sticks with their activism into middle age learns how to keep the faith. Yes, you lose the faith, but you also learn how to find it again and lose it again and find it again. You learn a certain eyes-on-the-prize kind of discipline. You find that doing something at the scale of the problem, even if it's more of a predicament than a problem, still helps you face the problem, or predicament. All the time I'm asking myself whether, in the face of our overwhelming ecological crisis, I prefer to have a sense of agency, even if it eventually turns out to be fictitious. And I think I would. If my plane is going down, rather than a helpless and terrified passenger, I'd want to be the pilot focused on furiously trying to regain control, even if it still went down, maybe especially if it still went down. And so, whether warranted by the facts or not, I'm still trying to fix reality, and I'm not alone. Millions of us still believe we can achieve a tipping-point level of awareness and action that will force governments and corporations in the direction of viable solutions. We still have faith, and we still feel we have a reason to have faith in humanity. Then again, turning the truism back upon myself, there's rarely a shortage of evidence once you've decided what you're looking for. Jamie Hecht reread our interview in March 2022 and asked me to add the following to reflect a shift in his perspective since we'd spoken. Again and again, I've been shaken by emerging bad news about the biosphere. Again and again, I've been surprised and relieved when the worst predictions proved untrue, or at least premature. From 2002 to 2006, my friend, Dr. Guy McPherson, if I understood him, seems to have thought we would be in far deeper shit by, say, 2020 than was the case. This does not warrant optimism, but it has shifted my perspective. 
and as Andrew poignantly suggests, our personal circumstances can influence our worldview no less than can the data we confront. My own life is better now. My heart is more open. I read Joanna Macy more receptively today than I did even a few years ago. She did and does a better job with the human side of climate change than I. I'm grateful for this. Guy's biggest concern seemed to be abrupt, rapid, catastrophic climate change triggered by the methane time bomb. It's the thawing Arctic permafrost and the frozen methane crystals in the coastal ocean floor. Warming from CO2 has been releasing more and more of that methane, a superabundant and highly potent greenhouse gas that's been implicated in some of Earth's previous mass extinction events. This may still very well end agriculture and wipe us out, but in the first years of this century, near-term human extinction, NTHE, seemed to me totally inevitable, because, and only because, that seemed to be the task at hand. I developed the position I took in this interview. I was asking myself, suppose the worst is true, what then? The climate crisis is an existential Rorschach test. We tend to think of our civilizational crisis as a reckoning with reality, a moment of truth that will bring out our best or worst selves, a stress test that will show us what we're really made of. And well, it may be, but maybe what we're really made of is simply who we've always been. Folks say that as we grow old, we become more who we are. Having seen two aging parents into the grave, I'd have to agree. What if facing the likely collapse of civilization and the possible extinction of humanity has a similar effect? Yes, it could be a reckoning that inspires us toward fundamental social change and personal transformation. However, it could also just make us more who we are. What is it about Jamie Heck that brings him to his twilight philosophy? Jamie spoke admiringly of one Theodore Ronald Braley, the pianist on the Titanic, and how in the crux of that unexpected moment in the middle of the North Atlantic in 1912, he courageously stepped up into his destiny and dharma and kept on playing as the ship went down. Well, how much was it Jamie's own dharma to see this man as a role model for our time? For Guy McPherson, a strong influence on Jamie, the allegory of the Titanic also looms large. There are no lifeboats on Guy's Titanic. What is it about a Guy McPherson that drives him to be a prophet of doom? If we take Guy's story about himself at face value, we'd have to believe that his relentless rationality and duty-bound dedication to the facts led him to the very harshest of conclusions, and once there, he could hardly do other than become the town crier of doom. In that story, the facts were there. It just took someone singularly dispassionate to be their advocate. But there's another read. Every serious debate needs its outliers, needs someone to anchor the far wing, someone to champion the worst-case scenario, simply in order to cover the whole spectrum and have the full conversation and allow the rest of us to think and feel and imagine and contemplate all the possibilities, including the worst. There's yet another read, almost a dramatic read. This was Guy's destiny, his fate. His whole life long, his stubborn character has been grooming itself to play this part. Climate scientists sifting through the data see the shape and direction of things to come, and they are terrified. Some, like Guy, pronounce a death sentence on the species. Others sound one timber or another of existential alarm. The data, especially as it trickles out to the rest of us, functions a bit like a mirror, like tea leaves telling us how things might go, or even as a cosmic Rorschach test, 
those suggestive inkblot drawings psychologists place in front of their patients to induce free association, where our fears and hopes swirl in and out of focus, showing us what we want and who we are. If we want there to be a sliver of hope, then we find it, and not just because we need there to be a sliver of hope, but also because there's just enough gray area in the data to allow it. Likewise, if some part of our deepest self, transfigured by the crisis, is most at home in a world that is doomed, then we are more likely to read the data that way. There's enough room in the data, enough variables, enough unknowns, to permit many different interpretations. But Jamie and Guy have made a strong choice for the worst one. At some level, I have to wonder whether they actually want to live at the end of the world. There's something pure about it that might appeal to a philosophically inclined personality. I myself feel that pull sometimes. At times, the crisis seems a theater scrim upon which we project our truest self. But maybe it's not our truest self. Maybe it's our most dramatic, or terrified, or heroic, or dissembling self. Maybe it's all our many selves? The crisis is a scrim upon which we do a full shadow puppet show of all the competing persona within us. Yet, that description is too passive, because this process is neither neutral nor just in one direction. It's a fluid and highly combustible encounter between facts and character and story, between reality, or at least that portion of reality we're willing to see, and who we wish to be. As we search for a place to stand, a story to live in, a world we can abide, we fit the facts, each of us according to our own ethics and algorithms, to suit those needs. The facts of climate chaos matter, but exactly what the crisis calls forth from within us, what burden it demands we shoulder, what opportunity we think it gifts us, are largely up to us. For Gopal Dianeni, the crisis is the field on which the age-old battle between extractive capital and life-giving community will be fought. For Joanna Macy, it is an awakening, an invitation to serve people's exquisite beingness in the here and now. For Guy McPherson, it is a stoic acceptance of the near-term extinction of our species. For Jamie Hecht, it is a question of how to know the worst and still be happy. And what about me? In the final analysis, isn't this whole investigation just a Rorschach test by me on myself? Isn't how I frame the facts and how I curate all the various threads and perspectives I come across just my own way of making sense of our situation so that it aligns with my own fundamental sensibility? So that I have a story I can live in? Things are grave, but not terminal. Bleak but still hopeful in a dark, difficult, cosmic, ironic way. Of course they are, because that's me. That's my own existential sweet spot. And so I take Jamie and Guy and these other prophets of total doom seriously because I feel they have something to teach us and because, well, you can never have enough nihilist street cred. But I don't actually want us all to go down, and so I weigh their near-term human extinction predictions as too extreme. Yes, I want there to be a path forward, but not an easy one. I don't want us to be saved in a way that lets us off the hook, that short circuits our necessary reckoning. I don't want some whiz-kid inventor to step in at the last moment with some newfangled tech solution to save the day. Of course I do, but I also don't. No, I want our path forward to be difficult and do its necessary work upon our souls. I want it to redeem us and transform us. There's something puritanic or karmic or, yes, tragic in me that wants us to have to deal with our own mess, 
that wants the repressed to return with a vengeance and deliver her cosmic justice and teach us what we need to learn so that we will live differently on this earth. And so, that is the story I tell. That is the way I curate the facts. Oh, it's bad, folks. It's so bad that only a few of us truth-seeking souls are willing to see it and tell it like it is. And of course, I'm one of them. Hello! Oh, but it's not so bad. It's not extinction-level bad. There's still a path through, but it's a difficult path, and we must have the vision and stamina and death eyes to walk that path. So come, let us go. Bring your resilience and your kindness and your gallows humor, and be ready to be reborn, because this will change everything. Chapter 6 What is Still Worth Doing? We don't have a right to ask whether we're going to succeed or not. The only question we have a right to ask is what's the right thing to do? What does this earth require of us if we want to continue to live on it? Wendell Berry Jamie Hecht was convinced humanity wouldn't last more than three or four generations. Gopal Dianeni was equally convinced we would survive. However, we'd have to survive one of the most catastrophic centuries in human history. Either way, it's a hard sell. Usually, if you're volunteering for a cause and trying to rally support, you'll knock on your neighbor's door with a message of hope and possibility. Something along the lines of, if we act now, neighbor, we can. But how do you adopt that hopeful can-do approach in good faith if you think we're mostly doomed? How are you going to talk to your neighbor then? Do you say, want to sign this petition to wreck the planet in 100 years instead of 50? Or, hey neighbor, I'm here today seeking beauty and dignity and failing to stop the inevitable care to pitch in? Or, my group is learning how to die as a civilization. Want to join? If you truly believe everything is going to hell, what cause could you possibly be signing people up for? We're doomed! Follow me! is tough to rally around. At the end of the world, what actually is still worth doing? And how do you get people to do it with you? What would Paul Kingsnorth do? In 2014, the New York Times ran a long profile on Paul Kingsnorth entitled, It's the End of the World as We Know It, and He Feels Fine. At the time, it was deeply confounding. My comrades and I were gearing up for the largest climate march in history. We were going to bring half a million people into the streets of New York, change the conversation, get a global treaty, and, well, save the world. And here was this guy, this eloquent, heartbroken guy saying, um, nope impossible. That's a fool's errand. If he'd been a PR flack for big oil or a garden variety cynic, we would have paid him no mind. But he had the bona fides. He was a long-time environmental activist. He'd hunkered down in tree sits to block road expansion through his beloved English countryside. He'd been in the streets of Genoa with 300,000 others battling police and trying to shut down the G20 and stop the ravages of corporate globalization. He'd run environmental defense campaigns. He'd been deputy editor at The Ecologist, Britain's leading environmental journal. He'd paid his dues. He'd fought the good fight. And he'd finally had the courage, is that what we should call it? To give up hope and speak the terrible truth of our predicament. And boy, could he speak. His words were poetic and haunting, full of the kind of sadness that can only come from a deep love of life in the natural world. Was it lyrical realism? or sad sack defeatism. We could not decide. We just added his doubts to our own pile and soldiered on. Our climate heroes were Bill McKibben, Chico Mendez, 
Naomi Klein, Vandana Shiva, Rebecca Solnit, dogged, hopeful warriors who told hard truths but kept the faith. Paul's message was different. All of these changes are coming, he said in the New York Times profile that summer. Things that you value are going to be lost, but you still have to live with it. And there's still beauty, and there's still meaning, and there are still things you can do to make the world less bad. After years of trying to save the planet, he'd come to the painful realization that things were only going to unravel further. Rather than continuing to peddle a false hope, he sought out others who'd come to the same heartbreaking conclusions. And in 2009, after a long series of conversations, he and Dougald Hine penned Uncivilization, the Dark Mountain Manifesto. You pick up a manifesto expecting something exciting, a call to arms full of fire and passion and hope and vision and the heroic clash of armies and ideas. You expect some bluster. Uncivilization was blusterless. It was not a call to arms. It was an elegy. An elegy that spoke in grave poetic particulars about loss. We are already responsible for denuding the world of much of its richness, beauty, color, magnificence, and magic, it read. And we show no sign of slowing down. The manifesto was a requiem, not just for the earth, but for civilization, for the certainties and stories we'd always counted on. The idea of progress, the idea that humanity is the center and pinnacle of nature, that civilization is, in spite of all its flaws, on balance a good thing. But the manifesto wasn't just a requiem for the dominant stories of civilization, but also for many of the alternative stories. Progress can be tamed to serve humanity. People are ultimately more powerful than the systems they create. There's always hope, and others, that I'd staked my life and identity on. For those of us still trying to fix things, the manifesto was a wrecking ball to our hopes, a dirge for our dreams. But Paul wasn't starting a doomsday cult. He wasn't saying, we're doomed, follow me. He was saying, we're doomed-ish. If you think so too, let's meet up. Maybe together we can figure out how to be properly alive in this moment and what good we might still do. In his 2012 essay, Dark Ecology, seeing no way to fundamentally halt the destructive momentum of ecocide, Paul counsels us to be honest about where you are in history's great cycle and what you have the power to do and what you don't. After dismissing a host of things, he considers a waste of time, including political reform, eco-terrorism, romanticizing hunter-gathering, new tech, and most of what passes for environmental advocacy. He lists five things that he thinks are not a waste of time. Withdrawing. Preserving non-human life. Getting your hands dirty. Insisting nature has intrinsic value. And building refuges. What would Paul Kingsnorth do? These five things. Let's take each in turn. Withdraw. Withdraw not with cynicism, but with a questing mind, Kingsnorth counsels. And he himself has taken this advice, withdrawing in 2013 to a farmhouse in Ireland with his family. Withdraw to examine your worldview, he advises, because all real change starts with withdrawal. Preserve non-human life. Paul likens our civilization's ecocidal assault on the earth to a colonial conquest. Channeling that analogy, he writes, the human empire is the greatest threat to what remains of life on earth. He asks, what can you do, really do at a practical level about this? His suggestions include buying some land and rewilding it, letting your garden run free, 
and putting your body in the path of a bulldozer. Get your hands dirty. Get away from your laptop and throw away your cell phone, he advises. Get out there and do physical work in clean air surrounded by things you cannot control. It's the only way to learn what's real and what's not. Insist nature has intrinsic value. Shrugging off whatever deep ecology or other labels you might get tagged with, Paul calls upon us to wonder at the sacredness of life. Marvel at what the hell this thing called life could possibly be. Value it for what it is, he says, and have nothing but pity or contempt for people who tell you that its only value is what they can extract from it. Build Refuges Given that ecocide and social collapse will kill off so much of what we most value, Paul wonders what we can preserve and how. Imagining the librarian of a monastery in the Dark Ages, guarding the old books as empires rise and fall outside, Paul asks, can we create places or networks that act as refuges from the unfolding storm? What power do you have to preserve what is of value? Creatures, skills, things, places. None of it is going to save the world, he admits. But then there is no saving the world. And the ones who say there is are the ones you need to save it from. For Paul, the crisis is as big as civilization itself, and we're headed for a big fall. In accordance with these views, he makes his list. For other folks, the crisis is smaller, or fixable, or centered in a single realm, politics, say, or food, or carbon. They likewise make their lists. Towards the end of the essay, Paul notes, it will be apparent by now that I've been talking to myself. He's sounding himself out, making sure that he believes that these five things are indeed still worthwhile, and that he can still do them, with some joy and determination. What about the rest of us? It's never too late to fail to save the world. We cannot halt civilization's ongoing assault on nature, Paul Kingsnorth tells us. While I admire Paul's honesty and eloquence, he's also telling me that nearly everything I'm doing, and nearly everything every one of us in the climate justice movement is doing, is not worth doing. Things are only going to unravel further, he tells me, and I agree. We need to be honest about where we are in history's great cycle, he tells me, and I agree. There is no saving the world, he tells me, and even here, I agree. But here's where we disagree. I believe we must still try, and yes, fail, to save the world. Why? Because in history's great cycle, we're not just on the cusp of a great unraveling. We're also in the decisive decade of the climate emergency. Yes, we're going to fail to save the world. But exactly how bad we fail at it in this next crucial handful of years will matter across that entire great cycle of history, and even beyond, over geologic time. Noticeably absent from Paul's list of things still worth doing, passing a Green New Deal, engineering a fast and just transition to renewable energy, or in fact, pretty much any notion of climate justice. Yet all of these things are still worth doing, even if we fail at them. Because even though we're in a predicament we don't yet know how to solve, we also have a problem we absolutely must solve. And even if that problem is an unsolvable, super-wicked problem, we have to at least try to solve it. Because, even in failing to solve it, we are doing something essential, blunting its worst impacts and buying us all time. Time that is crucial for the Paul Kingsnorths of the world to build their refuges, find a still-livable place to withdraw to, and defend the non-human life they hold so dear.
There is no single solution that will prevent climate catastrophe, but there are many small and medium-sized solutions that can slow it down, mitigate the damage, and help us adapt, which means we need a way to evaluate them. Let me propose that we ask three questions of any proffered solution. One, is it a real solution or fake greenwashing bullshit? Two, is it a just and democratic solution or the same old inequality and exploitation only now powered by renewables? Three, is it an on-time solution? No matter how real or just it may be, is it simply arriving too late to make a difference? One of the groups I've worked with, the NY Renews Coalition, nyrenews.org, is a great case study in the contest between real and false solutions. In 2019, they were the driving force behind the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, CLCPA, a landmark law requiring a zero-emissions mandate by the year 2050, encompassing electricity, transportation, buildings, industry, and agriculture across all of New York State. Unlike net-zero or carbon-neutral approaches that include significant flexibility for polluters to avoid directly reducing emissions, the law explicitly establishes a hard mandate, as well as critical commitments on equity and environmental justice for the most impacted communities. However, in wanting New Yorkers to have a direct say in their own clean energy future, the law left many of the specific policy choices for achieving the emissions targets in the hands of a public decision-making structure and planning process bringing together government advocacy and private sector stakeholders over a two-year period. And now, unfortunately but maybe predictably, the fossil fuel industry is rushing into that process with a host of false solutions including biofuels, biomass, biomethane, aka renewable natural gas, green hydrogen, and waste to energy. In 2021, NY Renews commissioned a 50-page report, False Solutions, Gas and Trash, How the Fossil Fuel Industry is Holding Back a Just Transition, detailing how these industry-promoted solutions are actually causing more greenhouse gas emissions than they reduce, more local pollution, and adverse public health impacts, especially for environmental justice communities, as well as diverting land use from food to energy depleting the Earth's ability to recycle carbon and contributing to water pollution and severe water stress. Green hydrogen, for example, is rarely green, since 95% of it is produced using fossil fuels. Using dirty energy to produce clean energy is generally a poor way to reduce emissions. Meanwhile, biomass, basically woody matter burned directly for energy, while touted as carbon neutral, is anything but since recycling carbon from the atmosphere by regrowing trees takes decades, while wood burning for energy is adding copious emissions today, all while worsening deforestation. In our interview, Gopal Dianeni described capitalism's fundamental response to the climate crisis as a festival of false solutions. For him, a real solution not only has to be real, i.e., not fake greenwashing bullshit like the examples above, but also address the root causes of the crisis. For Gopal, clean energy is not a solution to the climate crisis. The reorganization of the very purpose of the economy is the solution to the climate crisis. While energy needs to be renewable, he says, as much if not more, it needs to be democratized, decentralized, distributed, and decolonized. Justice is not an add-on. It is central. Climate justice is the only way to win, says Gopal because it is from the injustice that the crisis has emerged. Guided by this perspective, 
NY Renews is trying to implement a just transition in the fourth largest state in the country. Every step of the way, they've been met by the self-interested maneuverings and dissembling of a fossil fuel industry that rightly sees such a transition as a threat to their very existence. Fossil fuels will eventually lose, but in the process, they might slow things down so much that we will all lose. Which brings us to our final diagnostic. Is the solution on time? Bill McKibben describes climate change as a timed test. If we don't win very quickly on climate change, then we will never win, he says. Winning slowly is the same as losing. That's the core truth about global warming. It's exactly this crucial time-bound aspect of our climate challenge that led us to launch the climate clock and to use it to try to rally the world to hashtag act in time. The time-bound nature of the crisis was brought home to me recently as I watched a friend step through navigating our climate predicament flowchart. When he came to the what will it take section, he began to circle through the options. What will it take? Fewer showers? Ha, <laughs> yes, that'll help. But only a tiny bit. Stronger policy? Definitely, yep. Better stories? Sure, definitely need those. Serious tech? Yep, but we need so much more. And on he went around the circle from degrowth and resilience to resistance and revolution. Yep, but, yep, and, yep, yep, until he hit everything and everyone. Ah, he said, yes, everything and everyone. And in that moment, his attitude was so upbeat. He had a hopeful, roll-up-your-sleeves-whatever-it-takes kind of energy. But then he followed the flowchart path to the question, is there still time? And his enthusiasm cratered. He wasn't quite sure what to think, or where on the flowchart to go next. I call this the, it's gonna take everyone to change everything, um, yesterday, effect. Our future feels haunted. We sense a dark threshold lurking some number of breaths, some number of footsteps in front of us. A tipping point after which the feedback loop of climate impacts causes runaway warming of the planet, and no amount of subsequent reining in of the fossil fuel industry or lifestyle changes can ever get it back under control. This threshold looms large in our minds as a point of no return, a game-over moment for a habitable planet. There's a range of opinions as to exactly what that threshold is, when we might cross it, whether we can claw our way back, via, among other things, large-scale drawdown of atmospheric carbon, and once crossed, how we might try to survive it. Scientists have flagged 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming as a code red for humanity. We're currently on track for 2.7 degrees Celsius or worse. Some argue we can still change course. Others that it's already too late. But too late for what? Because here we are, it is now, we're still alive, and we're still our brothers and sisters' keepers. Yes, we can't save the world. Yes, we're too late. But there are better and worse ways to be too late to fail to save the world. In fact, there are so many different ways to be too late to fail to save the world that there's got to be one that's right for you. Market-based solutions. If you don't mind solutions that often make the problem worse, and you don't care too much about justice or democracy, and you trust in the invisible hand to convince the fossil fuel industry to protect the planet and the well-being of future generations, neither of which show up on their balance sheets or vote at their shareholder meetings, well, then you can throw your lot in with purely market-based solutions. 
And if you notice yourself justifying this hands-off approach with blind faith in some newfangled tech that's still on the drawing board, along with the boundless capacity of humans to innovate their way out of any problem, then you'll want to get together with Bill Gates, Steven Pinker, and Oded Gaylor, and snort some techno-utopianism. What really matters, however, is not the new things we do, but the old things we stop doing, observes George Monbiot. Renewable power, for instance, is useful in preventing climate chaos only to the extent that it displaces fossil fuels. And the invisible hand of the market is simply unable to do that at the speed required to avoid ecological breakdown. What's needed is a radical political intervention in the market that interrupts business as usual and shutters the big oil and gas. All of the above. If you're open to mixing some government policy in with your market-based solutions, but have a hard time making decisions, you can go with an Obama-style, all-of-the-above approach. Just do it all. Nukes, clean coal, solar, real and fake solutions both. Because, well, anything else is too politically costly, even if it wrecks the planet. Far better, however, to take a some-of-the-above approach. Because some clean tech, wind and solar, for example, are much cleaner and cheaper than others, and scale faster, too. No regrets strategies. If, say, you're in a purple state trying to appeal to an ideologically mixed constituency that might even include some climate deniers who nonetheless prefer drinkable water over non-drinkable water, you might adopt a no-regrets approach. These are efforts like home energy efficiency, anti-pollution measures, wilderness protection, specific infrastructure improvements that generate net social or economic benefits irrespective of whether or not climate change occurs. By building resilience to future climate shocks while also delivering near-term benefits, no-regrets actions are worth doing no matter what climate scenario plays out. Drawdown If your singular focus is stabilizing the planet's climate and moving us off of a fossil fuel economy to a 100% renewable one, then the Drawdown Project Solutions Toolbox is your bag. Initiated in 2017 by ecologist Paul Hawken, Drawdown is a ranked matrix of the 100 most globally impactful solutions to the climate crisis, from better refrigerant management, a surprising number one, to educating girls, number six, to farmland restoration, number 23, to wave and tidal electricity generation, number 29, to smart thermostats, number 57. When combined with as yet untested and unscaled carbon sequestration strategies like direct air capture and intensive silvopasture, they claim to have the potential to not just reduce emissions, but actually draw down enough excess carbon out of the atmosphere to create a stable, livable climate over the long haul. Transition Towns If you believe, along with founder Rob Hopkins, that if we wait for governments, it'll be too little too late. If we act as individuals, it'll be too little. But if we act as communities, it just might be enough just in time then you'll probably want to throw your lot in with transition towns. It's a global movement of communities plotting out their own transitions to a circular economy while simultaneously preparing for a future of extreme weather disasters, compromised ecological conditions, and economic shocks. Just transition. If you agree with Gopal Dianeni that resilient communities can not only better weather the range of adversities coming down the pike, they can also serve as more just and sustainable models that can be scaled up to the regional and national level. Examples span the world from Mississippi, where Cooperation Jackson, with help from People's Assemblies and a revolutionary mayor, is building an eco-socialist solidarity economy, 
to the social economy movements in Spain, to the grassroots political underpinnings of the state of Kerala and southern India. If you agree with Gopal Dayaneni, then there is no meaningful way to tackle the climate crisis without centering justice, and that the very purpose of the economy must shift from profits for the few to a guarantee of the rights of Mother Earth and the right of people to have access to the resources required to create productive, dignified, and ecologically sustainable livelihoods, then a just transition is going to be your bag. We've seen how NY Renews is trying to move such a vision forward in New York State. In Canada, a broad red-green coalition has gotten behind the LEAP Manifesto, a roadmap for transitioning Canada off of fossil fuels to an economy based on caring for the Earth and one another. Meanwhile, across the USA, the Green New Deal offers a framework that in spite of getting scaled back in D.C., has the potential to overcome the usual jobs versus environment versus justice splits and bring on a fast and just transition to a 100% renewable-powered future. Meanwhile, to apply the principles of just transition on a global scale would require the rich countries to own up to some of the climate debts, estimated to reach a staggering $57 trillion by 2035, they owe to the poorer countries for the negative externalities, i.e. social and economic costs, inflicted on the global south by the historic emissions of the global north. Degrowth If you're a less-is-more type who's made a sober assessment that we've already way overshot the limited carrying capacity of the planet, then degrowth might be the solution pathway for you. While few mainstream economists are willing to acknowledge it, given our limited carbon budget, and the general impossibility of infinite growth on a finite planet, there's a growing awareness that a habitable planet will require some degree of planned economic contraction or degrowth amongst the world's richest nations. Proponents have mapped out a strategy of prosperous descent, focused on partially powering down the world's richest economies and helping local communities and ecosystems become more resilient in the face of the many shocks, both ecological and economic, that are unavoidably on their way. One model is the human-centered lean economy, proposed by late British economist David Fleming, whom we met in the How Do You Want to Decline chapter. Another formulation is the Great Simplification, popularized by ecologist and energy analyst Nate Higgins. Degrowth has been defined as an equitable downscaling of production and consumption that increases human well-being and enhances ecological conditions. Not exactly capitalism's strong suit. And while no national economies have yet realigned themselves on this path, prefigurative local examples can be found bubbling up from grassroots movements based on permaculture, voluntary simplicity, local food initiatives, local currencies, worker cooperatives, and eco-villages. You might actually enjoy it, says Samuel Alexander, research fellow at the Sustainable Society Institute. Deep Adaptation If you think social collapse is right around the corner, you might want to prepare yourself for deep adaptation. Professor of Sustainability Leadership Jim Bendel is convinced we're on track for near-term social collapse, but instead of raising the white flag at the end of the world, he's developed a map for navigating climate tragedy that combines resilience, relinquishment, and eventual restoration, giving the growing signs of collapse all around us. His framework is now blossoming into a global social movement. Finally, if none of the above work for you, Strap yourself in for the desperate last resort of large-scale geoengineering, or, as it's referred to in politer society, climate restoration, in which nervous men in lab coats attempt to manipulate our climate back to stability by, say, 
injecting sulfate aerosols into the stratosphere from tethered balloons in order to reflect solar radiation back to space. Aptly described in a recent video explainer as a horrible idea we might have to do. Or, brace yourself for the benevolent eco-dictator option, where a radical, ruthless, charismatic ecologist is swept into power, expropriates the fossil fuel industry, and forces through the extreme measures required to preserve a livable planet. Some of these pathways have been forced on us because we failed to take better ones decades ago. Some are obviously at cross-purposes with one another. Some should only be taken as a very last resort. No one, however, can say they don't have options. Still, the question lingers. Are we too late for any of it to matter? But what do you mean matter? Matter enough to save humanity from itself? We don't know. We just don't know. But to matter at all? Yes, definitely. Every one of these partial solutions that can at least check off the first two boxes, is it real, is it just, matters infinitely. Because every unwanted pipeline that gets stopped by an indigenous community doesn't just mean millions of tons of additional carbon that will not be further poisoning all of our skies. It also means that one more aquifer has been protected, one more historical wrong righted, and one more community has become more resilient and more able to live on land that is sacred to them. No regrets strategies for the win. No matter what happens to the big global mess we have got ourselves into, with coal slurry still poisoning the hollers of West Virginia and millions dying every year from preventable respiratory illnesses tied to climate change, there's every reason to quickly transition off of coal, oil, and gas and make our renewable-powered future as just, democratic, and resilient as we can. If we can do one thing, solve one problem, right one wrong, then of course we should do it, solve it, set it right. Even if we don't yet know how to save the world, or don't even think that's possible anymore. There are still a host of things we can do to reduce or slow down the death and destruction, secure some justice, and certainly some dignity and kindness in the here and now, all of which might also give us a fighting chance down the road. It's never too late to fail to save the world. Why the fuck am I recycling? To recycle or not to recycle? That is the question. Or certainly a question that, with all this talk of fake and real solutions, a lot of us are asking. Not necessarily out loud, but in that secret doubting place inside us every time we drag our paper and plastic to the curb. Why really am I doing this? How in the face of the vast planet-destroying inertia of industrial civilization is my little drop in the recycling bucket doing any good at all? And come to think of it, what really happens to all this stuff once it leaves my curb? These doubts dog Jamie Hecht, and they dog me across all that I do to reduce my carbon footprint. Besides recycling, I also compost. I rarely use the AC except on the worst summer days. I live in a tiny apartment in a multi-unit building in a big city, so I get good efficiencies on winter heating. I don't have kids, I bring my own shopping bags to the grocery store, and I try to reuse the plastic bags and water bottles I inevitably end up with anyway. Knowing that the livestock industry is a huge contributor to deforestation and global warming, I don't eat red meat or poultry except for turkey once a year on Thanksgiving. My microwave is a second-hand donation from a friend, and it's worked fine for the last 15 years. I don't own a car. To get around the city, I mostly walk, bicycle, or take the subway. And I've gotten my flights down to a relatively modest two per year. I've got my footprint slimmed down so far, I'm like a feather on the earth a resource-intensive, middle-class American feather. And why do I do all this? 
I have a friend who takes 10 flights a month for work. Is reducing my flights to two per year or even to zero going to make any difference? Americans put 100 billion, that's billion, with a B, plastic bags into landfills every year. How are the handful I reuse going to change that? And yet, I feel I must do these small things. Only a global ban on single-use plastics is going to stop the plastic pollution killing our oceans. Only a hard cap on fossil fuels, the wholesale adoption of renewables, along with a few other large-scale systemic interventions, is going to reduce carbon emissions at the speed and scale needed. Anything I do to slim down my footprint is just pissing into the wind. But piss I must. Why? It makes me feel better. It gives me a sense of agency. It models good behavior. But more than all this, I think it's actually a kind of prayer. Every returnable bottle I take back to the grocery store, every soup can I rinse out and put in the recycling bin, is a secular offering, a sacred vote of confidence in the future, a moral act that aligns my habits with my values and keeps me on a principled path. It's an act that maybe matters less for its direct material impact than for the work it does upon me, the recycler. But what really happens up the chain after we ritually rinse off our filmy milk jugs and fold our newspapers and place them in the bin and then carry our offerings, always on Friday morning, the mandated day of deliverance, to the curb to meet their remaker? Forgive me, Earth, for I have sinned, we whisper into our recycling box confessionals. The catechism of the three R's is gospel. We say it like a rosary. Reduce, reuse, recycle over our paper and plastic offerings. Our perfectly sorted box will be the first to the curb, and the eco-pieties, or tragic eco-waywardness, of our neighbors will be duly noted. Will our plastic and paper waft up to heaven and be heard? The ways of the recycling authority are mysterious indeed. Most of us realize there's some degree of self-trickery and social performance going on here. We know that fierce political action at the scale of the problem is what's really needed, and we're only recycling to keep up appearances, to stay on the right side of some vaguely felt karmic accounting. But the three R's can actually make a difference. The Jump, TakeTheJump.org, an eco-responsibility movement that launched in 2022 under the slogan, Less Stuff, More Joy, aims to achieve 25% of the carbon emissions reductions needed to stay under 1.5 degrees Celsius by encouraging citizens of wealthy nations to make six shifts in their individual consumer behavior. End clutter. Keep products for at least seven years. Travel fresh. Try not to own a personal vehicle. Eat green. Follow a plant-based diet. Dress retro. Try not to purchase more than three new clothing items per year. Holiday local. Keep flights to one every three years. Change the system. Take at least one action, anything from peaceful protests to switching to a green energy supplier, to nudge the system. Except for flying about six times too frequently and buying a few too many pairs of underwear, I'm happy to say that I check most of these boxes. I'm also happy the jump recognizes that not everyone is in the same position to pursue the program. They're founded on the notion of equal access but different responsibilities and suggest that trying is enough. Just start. Yes, reduce, reuse, recycle is only a fraction of what we need to do. And recycling is only a fraction of that fraction. But with the future of the planet at stake, fractions of fractions count. So let's get cracking on the big system-wide changes we need. But let's also recycle. Let's hold on to our appliances as long as we can. Let's fly less. Let's try to go vegan, or at least consume no animal products before dinner, as author Jonathan Safran Foer modestly suggests.
let's slim down our footprint wherever possible. Doing so is not only good spiritual practice, it's smart politics. Because when our opponents can't trash our ideas, they try to trash our character, often by cynically turning our own eco-morality against us. You want to be able to say to those people, yes, I recycle, thank you very much. Now let's talk about eliminating that $423 billion in fossil fuel subsidies. I've still got some work to do on my three R's, but when I carry my big bag of clinking aluminum and clunking plastic to the curb, when I bicycle uptown instead of grabbing a lift, when I dump my compost into the weekly city collection bins on top of a big pile of mulchy garden and kitchen detritus from hundreds of my neighbors, I feel slightly more aligned with my values. I'm not walking my whole talk, but I am walking a few steps of it. It brings me into better integrity with myself and my values, and models that integrity to the larger world. The father of a good friend of mine was dying of cancer. He took up a macrobiotic diet and meditation, not because he thought it would make a difference, but because he wanted to demonstrate skin in the game. It was a votive act to show he wanted a cure, a therapeutic gesture, unlikely to make a difference to anything but his own peace of mind. He wanted the consolation of thoroughness, the idea that at least he tried with all his might. Our situation is not so different from his. As we face our planetary crisis, we don't know whether anything we're doing will make enough of a difference, but we owe ourselves, our planet, our children, and all future generations this same consolation of thoroughness. Maybe this is why the fuck we recycle. We have met the enemy, and he is us. No, them, but also us, but mostly them. The earth is not dying, it is being killed, and those who are killing it have names and addresses. Utah Phillips We have met the enemy, went the famous 1960s-era Pogo cartoon, and he is us. Pogo creator Walt Kelly was referring to the American experience in Vietnam. Yes, it was a war, but the enemy we thought we were fighting wasn't communism, North Vietnam, or the Viet Cong. It was ourselves. Our folly and paranoia. The illogic and momentum of our military-industrial complex. The unintended consequences of our empire-building grandiosity. The return of our repressed. In Vietnam, we met the enemy, and he was us. In our climate-changing 21st century, we meet the enemy everywhere, and we still can't decide whether he is us or them. Most of us agree that global warming is a man-made catastrophe. But what man made it? Who is this enemy? Is it us or them? And if it's us, how do you declare war on yourself? And if it's them, is it all of them or certain specific bad actors and vested interests? Or maybe it's some out-of-kilter system we've created that we can no longer properly control. Wait, is that an us or a them? It's a tricky question to ask about the most complex problem humanity has ever faced. How we answer it tells us where we think the problem lies, what we think our responsibility is, and how we might go about tackling it. Stripped down, it's an age-old question. Does the fault lie inside ourselves or in the world around us? Team Us, quite reasonably, asks, how can we possibly change the world if we can't change ourselves? Team Them, also quite reasonably, replies, a corrupt system will always produce corrupt behavior. We must change the world first. Team Us, we can't build a healthy society out of broken people. The most effective way to work towards a better world is to rectify our own patterns of domination, selfishness, and denial, and then be a model to others. We must heal our own split psyches. If we don't do this, 
then with whatever power we attain, we will simply revisit those same patterns on others and on Mother Earth. Change starts with oneself, or not at all. Team them. Personal change does not equal political change. No matter how much we recycle or how many meditation retreats we go on, polluters will keep poisoning poor communities unless they are stopped by concerted political action. As individuals, we're all somewhat flawed, but that's no reason not to work together to save the world. Let's start now. Do you have a home team favored in this eternal debate? When it comes to our climate crisis, many of us do. Humanity as a whole is the meteor, Paul Kingsnorth, star player on Team Us, argues. It doesn't mean we're all equally culpable, but as a result of our appetites and our attitudes and the stories we tell ourselves, we are wrecking the planet. His teammate, social philosopher Charles Eisenstein, author of 2018's Climate, A New Story, contends that when we frame our climate predicament as a war and assign an enemy, we're disguising a problem that we don't know how to solve as a problem that we do. He puts it bluntly, fighting the enemy is futile when you inhabit a system that has the endless generation of enemies built into it. That is a recipe for endless war. Instead, says Eisenstein, we need to face the fact that they includes every one of us that participates in this civilization. Sure, responds Team Them. But some of us participate more than others. A lot more. Historically, the developed world is responsible for 79% of all greenhouse gas emissions. The average American still has over 150 times the impact of the average Ugandan. The super-wealthy jet-set around the world from mansion to mansion as if there was no tomorrow, making sure that for the rest of us there won't be. We're not living in the Anthropocene. We're living in the Assholocene. Humans aren't destroying the planet. Assholes are. And the biggest assholes of all assholes are the assholes in power who are permitting, even encouraging, the destruction. Team Us hits back. That's the trouble with the standard leftish social change paradigm, says Paul Kingsnorth. It always divides society into the bad guys in power versus the rest of the oppressed masses who want to change things. But when you look at the ecological crisis we're in, that's not really the situation. We're all part of the problem. We've created this enormous machine, he says, that none of us is actually responsible for. We were born into it. However hard we try, we can't step outside it. If the enemy is an asshole, Timus is saying, that asshole is us. Sure, says Conceivable Future, ConceivableFuture.org co-founder Josephine Ferrarelli. But if we had better options, we could make better choices. The reason that it costs so much carbon to be an American, she argues, is because the system is poorly designed, not because everyone is an asshole. The fault lies, Team Them is saying, with the folks in power. They're the ones spewing junk science, murdering enviro journalists, and putting profits before the planet. They're the ones making it extremely difficult to redesign the system. But we ourselves don't yet know how to redesign the system, says Team Us. And by pretending we do, we often make it worse. There's no simple technical fix here. Humanity is in a long-standing spiritual crisis, a crisis of being, to use Eisenstein's phrase. We must relearn how to be. We must reawaken to our interconnectedness with a universe that is alive in ways we've been trained not to see or feel. Look, says Patrick Risenborough, former organizing director of the Global Climate Group 350.org and a top spokesperson for Team Them. People are good about responding to threats when they're aware of them but our choices have been concealed from us. We've been kept in the dark by a 35-year-long misinformation campaign. Indeed, we have. 
Exxon knew the implications of climate change since the 1960s. They not only kept that information from the public, but later spent millions deliberately undermining the science and blocking policy efforts aimed at addressing the problem. And Big Oil and their DC enablers are still at it, doubling down on fracked gas, tar sands, and a score of catastrophic carbon bomb extraction projects in spite of massive public outcry and dire warnings from scientists. Okay, I pressed him. So if it's mostly them, how much? Can you put a number on it? It's 98% them. Which still leaves 2% that is us. Yes, and people can detect bullshit and hypocrisy a mile away. So it's important to acknowledge our own complicity in the system, even if it's relatively tiny. Patrick has his ratio. Everyone else has theirs. Wherever you land, it's fair to say it's not 100% in either direction. In some forever-to-be-debated proportion, we have met the enemy, and he is us, and them. We need both teams. In fact, which team you choose probably matters less than why you're choosing that team and how you're on it. Because you can join a team, either team, to cop out or throw down. Don't join Team Us in order to say, hey, the problem is all of us, so I only have to be responsible for my own little bit. Join because you're ready to reinvent yourself and all the human systems around you. And don't join Team Them because you're looking for someone else to blame. Join it because you're thinking, the problem is them, and it's up to me to stop them. Go Teams! No need to choose between mitigation, adaptation, and suffering. Just get good at all three. Especially suffering. On the question of whether it's too late to prevent catastrophe, physicist and former Obama White House science advisor John Holdren tells us, we basically have three choices. Mitigation, adaptation, and suffering. Which is like telling someone to please choose between, one, unpleasant and painful things you can do to reduce how unpleasant and painful things are going to get, Two, unpleasant and painful things you can do to get used to how unpleasant and painful things have already gotten. And three, suffering. If this sounds like a poor set of options, welcome to the 21st century. Nonetheless, we grit our teeth and make our choice. And then, given how high the stakes are, we tend to insist that our choice is the correct one. Guys, we have to keep trying to do unpleasant and painful things to prevent a catastrophe, even if we don't think we can anymore because anything less will let government and corporations off the hook. No way, man. That train left the station long ago. But we can still do every unpleasant and painful thing possible, from radical emissions reduction to carbon sequestration, to mitigate the impacts. Are you kidding? Those are useless techno-fixes. The only thing left to do now is every unpleasant and painful thing we can think of to adapt to our new abnormal, totally reinventing how we live so we can survive in resilient communities. Meanwhile, Others take a page from the Jewish grandmother in the light bulb joke. I'll just sit here in the dark and suffer. All this righteous jockeying can leave the rest of us confused about which set of unpleasant and painful things we should get on board with. But hold on. According to Holdren, we're going to do some of each. The question is what the mix is going to be. The more mitigation we do, the less adaptation will be required, and the less suffering there will be. Which makes perfect sense. The mitigators need the adapters because we're well past the point of being able to completely mitigate our way out of this crisis. The adapters need the mitigators because fighting to the death over the last acorn north of the Arctic Circle is not the kind of environment we want to have to adapt to. As for suffering, we're all going to need to get better at that.
So let's spend less time arguing over which unpleasant and painful thing is the one correct unpleasant and painful thing, and just get on with the whole range of unpleasant and painful things we need to get on with. Plus suffering. We need to do the impossible, because what's merely possible is going to get us all killed. It always seems impossible until it's done. Nelson Mandela We can debate whether the problem is us or them. We can endlessly parse false and real solutions and fight over what, given prevailing political realities, we're willing to consider good enough. We can argue whether to focus on mitigation, adaptation, or suffering. We can quarrel over whether our salvation lies in individual actions like recycling or in collective action that brings about systemic change. And these are all important debates. But you might wonder, why debate any of it if, ultimately, our task is impossible? But here's the thing. Given what's at stake, we can't afford to fail. It can't be impossible. And given how quickly time is running out, it needs to not be impossible as soon as possible, even if it's impossible. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, the political pragmatists tell you. And sometimes they're correct. If, say, we're talking about a multi-decades effort to reform an unjust and inefficient healthcare system, you could see how getting something imperfect like Obamacare through Congress, because it's the best deal you can get at the moment, and making it better as you go, might be the right strategy. But what if the good will lead to runaway climate change, the collapse of civilization, and the destruction of everything you love? Then maybe the good is simply not good enough. In fact, given the relentless logic of climate change, the perfect versus the good doesn't even begin to capture our dilemma. It's more like the bare minimum needed to not go extinct versus going extinct. So if you're debating possible climate strategies with someone and they say to you, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, what they're really saying is, don't let what we absolutely must do right now to save ourselves be the enemy of the best deal we can get right now, which will kill us all. It would seem a no-brainer then that we should get on with what is absolutely necessary and be right quick about it. I mean, if that's what's absolutely necessary, what's the point of doing anything else? And that's exactly when the other half of our dilemma kicks in. Because what's absolutely necessary is, well, impossible. We know what is absolutely necessary to stay under 2 degrees Celsius. Immediate moratorium on all new fossil fuel extraction, controlled degrowth of the world's richest economies, WW2-level emergency mobilization to make a fast and just transition to a post-carbon economy, etc and it's politically impossible. Meanwhile, the most ambitious edge of what seems actually achievable, net zero by 2050, etc., is utterly insufficient. In fact, it could very possibly get us all killed. So what's our move? Do we focus on what we know we need to do, even though there's no chance of getting it done? Or do we focus on what we actually can get done, even though it won't ultimately save us? The 21st century can be a real bitch sometimes. Your choice will likely depend on who you are. If, like me, you're a tragic optimist, you will set your sights on the goal that is necessary yet impossible and give it your all, hoping that the impossible somehow becomes possible before it's too late. After all, there's nothing more inspiring than a smart, dedicated, reality-based person acting as if the impossible were possible to actually make it so. On the other hand, if, and also like me, you're a can-do pessimist, you will set your sights on the most ambitious goal you think you can pull off, even if you know it's insufficient to the task, trusting that in the unlikely event, 
remember you're a pessimist, of achieving it, you might just create the conditions for an even more ambitious goal that is up to the task. But what if, and also like me, you're a compassionate nihilist? You recognize the cosmic futility of both these approaches, but you also recognize their profound and heroic humanity. What then? Well, you could offer back rubs to any of the stressed out people engaged in these heroic efforts. Back rubs and donations and volunteer time and whatever talent you have to offer, including writing a book about the grand dilemmas we face. Contrary to conventional wisdom, you don't actually have to believe in anything to start giving a shit. Meetings with Remarkable Hopers and Doomers Adrienne Marie Brown How do we fall as if we were holding a child on our chest? We have to do the impossible, and we're 30 years late getting started. But it's not too late. In fact, it's never too late to do something right, to do something good, whether that's building a refuge, implementing a Green New Deal, recycling, if only for the consolation of thoroughness, or telling better stories. In search of better and more visionary stories, I headed to Detroit. After Jamie Heck's doomslinging, I needed to talk to someone who'd learn how to hold the gaze of our looming dystopia while cultivating the seedlings of utopia in its unforgiving ground. Cue my seventh and next-to-last meeting with Adrienne Marie Brown. Adrienne wears many hats. Doula, community organizer, pleasure activist, emergent strategist, organizational healer, apocalypse theorist, and evangelist of visionary fiction, to name just seven. In the double zeros, we'd cross paths at several direct action training camps during her tenure as executive director of the Ruckus Society, a national network of trainers in Greenpeace-style blockades and media stunts, and since then, at a new economy conference or two. She works primarily as a facilitator, but because of the faith, time, and creativity it takes to do this kind of work in a deep way, she calls it organizational healing rather than the usual strategic planning. I live in the post-apocalyptic, shape-shifting city known as Detroit, she says in a profile piece in Yes magazine. And that's certainly how the city looked as my bus rolled in, passing first a litany of shuttered and burned-out homes, then the abandoned hulk of the Michigan Central Station, arguably the world's most famous monument to urban decay, until, off in the distance, the glittering sore thumb of the Renaissance Center, the almost equally famous, awkward, corporate-driven attempt at urban revitalization that left the city's neighborhoods behind. The decline of Detroit's auto industry, white flight after the 67 riots, and decades of mismanagement hollowed out the city's tax base. Recently placed in receivership, the city had more than once cut off gas and water to thousands of mostly African-American residents until those communities organized to get it turned back on again. Amidst the decay, community gardens and grassroots experiments in self-reliance were thriving. Meanwhile, cheap real estate had encouraged an influx of new, younger, hipper, a.k.a. whiter, residents, bringing with it the usual problems of gentrification. Disembarking downtown, the city felt eerily quiet, near-empty eight-lane streets echoed back to an earlier time when cars were king. I spied a solitary share scooter abandoned on the sidewalk. Most of Adrian's work supports communities around the country that, like Detroit, are directly impacted by the changing climate and our racialized economic system. Amidst such conditions, she often witnesses groups with a severely limited capacity to imagine. 
I found myself on the edge of hopelessness, she says, slowly devastated by the ways we treat each other when we can't see a way forward. And so she has become a champion of imagination in the broadest sense, and of visionary science fiction in particular. Much of this she owes to Octavia Butler. Parable of the Sower and the changes constant Theosophy Butler developed in its pages have become special touchstones for Adrienne, a well of inspiration and guidance she goes back to again and again. She likens social change work to science fictional behavior and thinks of visionary fiction as a medicine of possibility for her and the communities she works with. Armed with this understanding, and as part of a broader mission to decolonize the imagination, she has encouraged a wide range of community organizers to experiment with visionary fiction. In 2015, she and her colleague Walida Imarisha gathered together 20 such stories in a collection titled, In a Nod to Butler, Octavia's Brood, Science Fiction Stories from Social Justice Movements. The story that Adrian herself contributed to the anthology, The River, is instructive. Told through the eyes of a black water woman, with a mix of sci-fi horror and magical realism, Adrienne imagines Detroit's river as a supernatural ally. Churning with memory and history and rebelling against the industrial toxins dumped in it over decades, it gurgles into being. An eerie, impossible wave grabs the state-appointed mayor, as well as a smattering of newly-arrived white hipsters, drawn by the opportunity available amid the ruins of other people's lives and pulls them down into its murky depths. In the ensuing exodus, the city is returned into the hands of those people too deeply rooted to move anywhere quickly. Beyond the hard-edged socioeconomic fable, this is a story of nature becoming an ally, guide, and leader, an approach which is present throughout Adrienne's work. That theme winds through her 2017 book, Emergent Strategy, Shaping Change, Changing Worlds. Here, Nature's patterns become organizing models. Underground networks of mycelium exemplify interconnectedness. The flocking behavior of starlings illustrates decentralized leadership. Ferns suggest a fractal-like way to scale up from small solutions to whole systems, while the toughness and explosive seed pods of the dandelion weed evoke resilience and regeneration. Adrienne weaves these and many other insights into an emergent strategy framework, that is one part radical self-help, one part materialist spirituality, and one part a set of methods that communities can use to plan for the big changes that are coming. Many of these changes, Adrienne acknowledges, are going to be unpleasant, unfortunate, even apocalyptic. Does she give up hope and check out? No. She wants to know, what do we need to imagine to prepare for it? How do we articulate a compelling economic vision to sustain us through the unimaginable? to unite us as things fall apart? How do we experience our beauty and humanity in every condition, no matter how poorly things turn out? These are similar to the questions that set me off on my own search, and the tensions they capture are very present when we speak. The Green New Deal, for example, might be for Adrian a compelling utopian project and story, but she emphasizes that it can't be imposed on Detroit or anywhere from above. It's got to be nourished, grown, and cared for from the local level on up. I notice how flavored her language is here with nature metaphors. And throughout our interview, I wonder at the invisible shifts these metaphors are making to my own deep thought patterns. At some point, she says, look, if we care about our next what, 
we've got to change our how now, which seems to sum up her whole approach as well as, possibly, the central challenge of our time. I'd hoped to dig further into these what's and how's with her while we hung out together in Detroit, but thanks to an old cell number, a lost email, and star-crossed schedules, we instead caught up with each other by phone some weeks later. Andrew Besides being the best-selling author of Emergent Strategy and Pleasure Activism and a nationally in-demand trainer and facilitator, you also co-host a podcast called How to Survive the End of the World. Adrian, I do, with my sister. Andrew, your motto is learning from the apocalypse with grace, rigor, and curiosity. So, what have you learned from the apocalypse lately? Adrienne, the latest lesson is that we're not going to have a soft, easy transition. That might sound a bit, oh, duh, at this point, but I still notice so many people around me becoming more fragile in the face of crisis rather than less fragile. Andrew, how so? Adrienne, too often, people, including me, show up expecting every single thing to be already pre-thought and taken care of for them, and every single need to be met. But then I check myself. Wait, that's not how I imagine showing up in the apocalypse. I imagine showing up in the apocalypse more like how you have to show up to a DIY action training camp where you better have brought your sleeping bag and bug spray. Otherwise, you're going to be sleeping on the dirt and getting bitten. We have to take stronger responsibility. We need to remember that whatever access we have is access we have to create together. So that feels like one of the biggest lessons to me. It's not going to be a soft, easy glide and then, oh, things get a little harder. The weather is not going to get just a tiny bit warmer. Climate impacts are not going to be subtle anymore. In the communities that I care about, the changes are not subtle at all. Everything is actually super drastic and super dramatic, and so much is happening at once. Drastic, dramatic shit is happening in the Amazon, and here in Detroit, too. Which is why I tell people and train people to get in a better relationship with change. Because the changes will be drastic, and they won't be changes we like. Right now, many of us are still in the privileged phase of the crisis. We're living through the golden age of global warming. You know, gosh, it's balmy in November and the like. We've been the frog in the boiling pot for a long time, but now we're really starting to cook. Now it's actually happening to communities that we love and care about. I used to think our central challenge was, how do we turn and face the fact that our relationship with the Earth is broken? But the more I've come to understand how it's all connected, how, say, climate drives forced migration, and how capitalism drives both, etc., my focus has shifted. Now the question I'm really interested in is, how do we survive the end of capitalism? That's been a big shift for me. I don't think capitalism works for us as a species. I think it's falling and is going to fail. Andrew, a tough ideological pill to swallow for a lot of people, us included. Because at a certain level, capitalism is everything we know. It's the water we swim in. As has been said, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Adrian, exactly. It's like the nothing in the never-ending story. The Kid in the Movie, a very formative childhood movie for me, is reading a book which turns out to be about not just our world, but also the realm of dreams and the fantastical. And there's this nothing that's spreading over everything. If it swallows everyone's dreams, then the real world too will cease to exist. I think of capitalism that way. It seems to be selling us so many bright, shiny things, but what it's really selling us is a nothingness, an emptiness, a hunger inside, a sense of not having. We need to figure out how to orient ourselves to capitalism. 
We need to understand what it actually is and what it's doing to us and to our children and our dreams. I think of myself as post-capitalist rather than anti-capitalist. Capitalism is here. What I want is to be beyond it, right? It has served a function, technical progress, material wealth, etc. But to survive, we must get beyond it. I want to get to that place where it is a layer of our past. Like when you go to the Grand Canyon and you're looking at all the exposed layers of geologic time, including the one all the way back when the ocean covered everything. Capitalism is that ocean now, but I want to get to a place where I can look back at it and it's just this thin layer of crappy plastic. Then, on top of that, you've got the dirt again. Andrew, the full title of your show is Learning from the Apocalypse with Grace, Rigor, and Curiosity. How do you enlist such beautiful qualities of the human spirit to learn from such a terrible thing? Adrienne, for one, I'm no longer convinced that the apocalypse is this terrible thing. That's also been a big lesson for me. It comes from living in relationship with so many people who are suffering under current conditions. My father grew up in poverty, and a portion of my family grew up in poverty. I come from that. Other parts of my family have gone through evictions and foreclosures and all kinds of hardships. I have been moved into movement because of the AIDS crisis and police murders and all the rest. We managed to pull some beauty out of it, but there's so much about this existence that we're already in that's actually a shit show. How do we partner with the potential ending of it in such a way that we can clear out the things that are not aligned with our long-term survival as a species? How do we partner with the apocalypse in a way that allows the best things to come forth? Our society is so unfair and unjust and imbalanced, maybe the best thing that can happen is for it to fall. But how do we fall gracefully? If I have a child on my chest, how do I fall in such a way that I protect that child, right? Andrew that's probably the most beautiful way I've heard anyone describe collapse. Adrienne, most of us do have children on our chest. We have babies that we love and we're like, okay, capitalism must die, but not my kid. I don't want my nibblings. A portmanteau of nieces, nephews, plus siblings, Adrienne learned from Chicago healer organizer Tanusha Juggernaut. To be going through the road. That's our epic tension. These systems have to end. But how do we turn and face the fact that they're ending and figure out how to partner with that ending? It wasn't so long ago that I was still in the we've got to stop the bad, we've got to save the world attitude. But the folks at Movement Generation, which includes previous interviewee Gopal Dianeni, got me to turn and face the apocalypse. Their week-long training was the first time that someone broke it down for me in a way I could understand. Nothing that we do now is going to stop so many of the terrible things that are coming at us. We are unavoidably heading into an era of superstorms, super droughts, and worldwide fights over resources. That's coming. We can avoid some of it, but not all of it. I feel like that was such a blessing to my life to just fucking hear that and be like, all right, cool, now what? Andrew, that was a key turning point in your understanding, and how did it change what you did in the world? Adrian, I was like, okay, all this is unavoidably going to happen. So then, let me try to shift how it happens. I want to shift how we are orienting to change and how we are orienting towards each other. This led me to emergent strategy. I want to speed up how quickly humans can fall in love with each other, how quickly they can make an assessment of whether someone is trustworthy or not. I want to speed up the process by which people can identify the right role that they can play in community. I want to redistribute how we value the different kinds of roles that are in community, 
I want to devalue the amount of power we give to celebrity and famous people and increase the value of nurses and emergency workers and mediators and people who are like, hey, I know martial arts. Andrew, what are some of these other less tangible skills people may not realize are important? Adrienne, we need healers. We need people who know how to teach. We need people who know how to build community. And I'm like, oh, community organizers are actually highly prepared to be leaders during the apocalyptic time that is coming. If, that is, we can get out of our resist and demand mode and get ourselves in right relationship with the changes that are coming. Because the mode of a lot of community organizing, resist the bad ideas of the people in power and demand some change from the people in power, is not going to cut it in the future. When I'm operating in that mode, I might be making a demand of power, but in doing so, I'm still keeping the power dynamics in place. And the people who have power have shown us over and over again that they are not interested in redistributing that power. So we'll just have to take it, carve out our own power, build our own community autonomy. Most of my work now is as a mediator and facilitator. I'm an organizational healer. I know how to help a group move through to consensus quickly. And I want to train an army of facilitators who can unite people as they're facing these crises. We need to be ready to do that. And the only way we'll be ready is if we have good practice under our belts of being with each other in better ways. So, I'm focusing my attention on how we are with each other and how quickly we can form community with each other, how quickly we can fall in love with each other. I've watched all the Apocalypse films. The good leader is the one who knows how to get us together and get us moving. That's the one who also ends up getting to shape the direction. I want loving community to shape the direction not might makes right power. Andrew, you're saying our apocalypse bug-out bag shouldn't just have water filters and a gun in it. You're drawing attention to the overlooked soft skills, community organizing, consensus building, say, that are going to be of great value as our situation worsens. Adrienne, a lot of people who are developing hard skills right now are doing it from a place of deep fear. They're terrified of the future, terrified of other people. They're thinking, how do I hoard and lock down and just survive no matter what? I'm like, who gives a fuck about surviving no matter what? If it's going to be a total horrific shit show, who wants to be here for that? Not me. I'm interested in thriving. I'm interested in a beautiful life. I'm interested in raising children that are happy. I'm interested in having lots of orgasms. I'm interested in feeling it's good to be alive. Yes, we need to learn how to survive, and yes, we need to be cultivating the spaces that will help us survive. But I'm not interested in living in a bunker underground indefinitely. There's nothing that I've experienced that makes me think that would be a good life for me. Andrew, what are some of these other soft skills, intangible ones people may not realize are important? Adrienne, well, knowing how to be joyous with what you've got for one. It doesn't take as much as we think to live a relatively good or relatively beautiful life. I don't make a ton of money. I've never had a ton of money. In fact, I have lived in a ton of debt. But my lifestyle is still relatively easy, relatively comfortable. I live sometimes paycheck to paycheck. But I recognize the privilege I still have relative to most of the world. When I travel to other places where the majority of people have significantly less than I do, I find over and over again that they're making so much more of it. They're making more of the experience of being alive of the emotional and spiritual connective tissue of life. The conclusion I draw is that there's something about having access to everything, 
that many of us in the U.S. have that leaves you with nothing. How then do we cultivate the skills to recognize what is enough? I don't think of redistribution the way a lot of people think about it. I'm all for taxing billionaires and raising the minimum wage, but it's also important to ask, what does it look like to have enough? How do we get familiar and intimate with enough, and how do we start to commit to that as a shared radical desire that doesn't feel like settling or having less? I rent, and I live in the same place that I've been for 10 years. Recently, someone was teasing me. They were like, hey, you're a New York Times best-selling author now, so are you going to buy a house? But this already feels like an abundant space, and I don't need more than this room and this place. If I needed to raise a child in this space, I could figure it out. I have enough, and I've had enough my entire adult life. Just because I can get more doesn't mean I need more. That fundamental sense of enough is really important to me. Andrew, in Emergent Strategy, you talk about moving at the speed of trust. Why is that so important? And how can it serve us when the apocalypse is moving at the speed of capitalism? Adrienne, moving at the speed of capitalism is how we've gotten here, right? When you move at that pace, you forget so much that is crucial to a decent life, and you overlook so many factors that later become fissures in the foundations of things. In the U.S., we have fissures in the foundation of everything about this nation because it was built very quickly with so much injustice at the core. That injustice still impacts me every day. I think the trick of trust is that it's only slow at first. You know this, Andrew. You've been on many actions, right? When you're starting out with an action team and you don't know each other, and some of you have never scaled a wall with a banner before, or what have you, then trust can be very slow. You're like, wait, hold on. We need to make sure we have agreements and a whole process in place just to make sure we're all clear with each other. But when you have a team that's been through the fire a few times, it's a different story. Now you have your people. Now you'll call them up and you'll be like, I don't have to tell you the whole deal, but I need a banner that says this and a team that's ready by tomorrow noon. And okay, boom. And then it's fast, right? Andrew. And to navigate the crises that are coming at us, we're going to need many teams, many community networks that have that kind of trust, that can respond with versatility and speed and unity as the shit hits the fan, yes? Adrienne. Exactly. Andrew. In Emergence Strategy, you paraphrase Grace Lee Boggs saying that building community is to the collective what spiritual practice is to the individual. What does that spiritual practice look like to you, given the crucial importance of resilient communities, especially as conditions worsen? Adrienne. Before I became a professional facilitator, before I realized you could get paid for that kind of thing, I thought of myself as an organizational healer. I'd come into an organization where something's not feeling right and find the part that's hurting. I could figure out the root cause and help to alleviate the stress. I've done healing at an individual level, organizational level, alliance level, and, in some places, at a movement level. When you look at something that is broken, it's important to see the wholeness in it. In this moment, one of our key tasks is to try to get people clear on what is actually broken. Let's not go around offering false solutions. Let's not go around saying, oh, this is the problem and here's a solution to it, when it's not actually a solution. Take me, for example. I've got chronic traumatic pain in my lower back from abuse. If someone were to suggest I just get massages, that would be a false solution. Yes, I can go get massages forever and it'll give me some temporary relief, but structurally, I will still have that trauma in there that has created a wrong shaping, something that's broken inside.
When I work as a somatic body worker, I try to see not just the person's body, but her mind, her story, her personality. I try to see all the parts and try to understand from that whole system what needs to be liberated, what needs to be removed, what needs to be invited in. I feel the same way about social movement work right now. There are no temporary solutions for the big issues we're dealing with. Because what we're actually dealing with is that capitalism is living inside of all of us. Competition, dominance, patriarchy, all the shit we're fighting against is in us. And so it shows up in all of our organizing work. So instead of going off and critiquing someone else or making a demand on a power structure outside of ourselves, what I'm trying to do is bring people's attention inward and ask, how can we be honest with ourselves about the way capitalism is playing out in our lives and in our organizations and start to shift that? Imagine if philanthropy was able to turn and face itself and recognize that it's hampering so much of our moves towards justice. It's still so concerned with keeping its capital and keeping its dominance over the communities it serves. And we're so caught up in this non-profit industrial complex that our movements can only go as far as rich people decide they can go. That's ridiculous, right? Ever wonder why it's so hard to do good alliance work? Because we're trained to pit ourselves against each other for the grants and resources we need to stay afloat. The root of the problem here, as it is pretty much everywhere, is that we're being pitted against each other just to survive rather than encouraged to collaborate in order to generate abundance. In both my healing work and my social movement work, I try to see as big a picture as I can and then come up with as precise a solution as I can. You don't tell someone, here's the 30 billion things that need to be fixed. You tell people, here's the one step, here's the one practice. And if you begin to practice it, it will unlock the other healing modalities, the other pathways. I could do a billion different things to try to heal my lower back, but if I do one thing, say, I stop eating bread, that would immediately reduce the inflammation in my body, which would immediately begin to move me in a different direction. And then I won't need as many massages because I won't be inflamed all the time, right? Andrew, speaking as a healer then, what's the next right thing we must do as a society? Adrienne, Grace Lee Boggs was my mentor and a big reason why I moved here to Detroit. She was always asking the question, what time is it on the clock of the world? For our species, right now, the time on the clock of the world is, we are already in the crisis. We're already in the boiling pot. We just need to know it. So how do we turn and face where we actually are? Turning and facing that truth immediately shifted my priorities. So, let's not give any of your attention to the climate denialists. They're a small minority and getting smaller. And they're in the pot too, so they'll eventually figure it out for themselves. Also, don't spend too much of your energy on electoral politics. Whoever gets elected president is still chief of an empire that's falling. Where we need to focus our energy is getting into real relationships with people. People you can touch and be around. People who, when the power goes off, when the water stops flowing, when the local utility turns the heat off, all of which happens in Detroit regularly, are in networks and know how to connect with each other and help each other. Every time people show up for each other, those networks get stronger and deeper. So, change where your attention is flowing. Stop giving it to things you can't actually touch or change. Give it to the things you can actually tangibly change in your lifetime. If everyone was doing that, we'd have plenty of energy and attention and time for the work that we need to do.
my conversation with Adrienne shifted my perspective on a host of fronts, from healing to social movements to the apocalypse. It's been a slow burn absorbing it all. We're in for a hard fall, but paradoxically, Adrienne notes, what we may need most are soft skills. The unraveling is going to intensify things. Many of our old models, including the old model of community organizing, will no longer suffice. Pressuring and petitioning those with institutional power will no longer deliver the goods. Instead, Adrienne is saying, we need to take power into our own hands and build what we need from there. The apocalypse may not be such a bad thing after all, she said, which initially startled me. But then I understood her deeper point. Due to poverty and violence and the ravages of capitalism, life is already such a shit show for her and for many of the marginalized people she works with that an apocalypse that threatens to change everything would in many ways be a welcome development, if it could be properly channeled. For her, channeling the apocalypse meant first and foremost understanding that our crisis was fundamentally caused not by fossil fuels, but by capitalism. Adrienne described herself as post-capitalist, an identity that seemed as much an act of imagination as a commitment to wholeness and healing. For her, capitalism wasn't just an economic system with ultimately ecocidal consequences, but a spiritual disease selling us an emptiness, a sense of not having. Capitalism gets inside us, she said, and it gets into our movements and into our philanthropy and deforms who we are and how we operate. As a healer, whether of bodies, psyches, or organizations, one of Adrienne's roles is to help us see how capitalism is hurting us and help us imagine our way beyond it. She wasn't just interested in how to have a post-capitalist economy, but how we could be post-capitalist people. She acknowledged there were no temporary solutions for the big issues we're dealing with. And like Gopal, who described capitalism's fundamental response to the climate crisis as a festival of false solutions, Adrienne was laser-focused on distinguishing false solutions from real ones. If we can do that, she said, we'll get through this. In fact, we might end up better off. For Adrienne, as for so many, Tim DeChristopher and Roy Scranton come to mind here. Seeing our circumstances plainly became a kind of liberation. Letting go of the hope of preventing catastrophe allowed Adrienne to fundamentally reorient herself. She chose to get more deeply grounded in community and to focus very strategically and soulfully on adaptation. How do we partner with this apocalypse, she wants to know. How do we survive the end of capitalism? How do we fall as if we were holding a child on our chest? She too is looking for a better catastrophe, and she turns to visionary fiction to help us imagine our way there. Dystopia If the zombie apocalypse comes the day after tomorrow, will Max still be mad? A weird time in which we are alive. We can travel anywhere we want, even to other planets. And for what? To sit day after day, declining in morale and hope. Philip K. Dick In the outro to Octavia's Brood, Adrienne says, We hold so many worlds inside us, so many futures. It is our radical responsibility to share these worlds, to plant them in the soil of our society as seeds for the type of justice we want and need. She describes science fiction as the perfect exploring ground, as it gives us the opportunity to play with different outcomes and strategies. Kim Stanley Robinson's 2020 novel Ministry of the Future, which cascades through the next few decades of climate politics imagining mechanisms like carbon quantitative easing 
and climate freedom fighter attacks on fossil fuel infrastructure is a perfect example of this kind of strategic exploration. If we want to bring new worlds into existence, says Adrienne, then we need to challenge the narratives that uphold current power dynamics and patterns. Borrowing a phrase from our comrade Terry Marshall, this clash of stories becomes an imagination battle. Somebody imagined a racialized economy. Someone imagined white supremacy. Hollywood keeps imagining dystopia and apocalypse. And the moment we question these narratives, says Adrienne, the moment we begin to dream of justice, of liberation, of right relationship, we become imagination warriors. Our task, she says, is to co-dream visions more compelling than oppression and more honest than supremacy, and then move from imagination all the way to new practice. In this task, we're not only up against 500 years of colonial thinking, but a large chunk of mainstream sci-fi. That's where so many of us rehearse for the end of the world, and it's a key terrain where this imagination battle will play out. Take, for example, the utopia versus dystopia war that sci-fi has been waging in my own head pretty much from jump. Like any nerdy American man-child growing up in the 1970s, I was a creature of sci-fi and fantasy. My first act of rebellion was staying up all night to read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I remember my tender five-and-a-half-year-old consciousness being bent 360 degrees sideways by a screening of Kubrick's 2001 in Manhattan's cavernous Ziegfeld Theater. So disturbed by the final few scenes that I emerged onto the sidewalks of midtown Manhattan, expecting to be swallowed live by Jupiter-strong gravity. In middle and high school, I built more graph paper Dungeons and Dragons mazes than I went out on dates, and I was so taken by Asimov's notion of psychohistory from his Foundation trilogy that I proposed to put a scientific basis underneath it in several of my college application essays. Durr, no wonder I didn't get into any of my top choices. As an adult, my first exposure to gender fluidity came from Ursula K. Le Guin's Hugo Award-winning Left Hand of Darkness, set in a world where people are not male or female, but potentials, and every six weeks, depending on factors both psychological and circumstantial, molt into female or male or neutral. The works of Philip K. Dick accelerated my philosophical turn in college and after. The protagonist in Blade Runner, and the PKD book, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep It Was Taken From, goes by the name Deckard, which is a clever stand-in namesake for Descartes, whose philosophical dictum, I think, therefore I am, is turned by the film into a question, as it ponders whether synthetic humans are truly human, or possibly more human than human. Sci-fi suffuses our future imaginary with heroes, visions, nightmares, and pop-philosophical dilemmas. Red pill or blue pill, anyone? By extrapolating the present into the near or far future, or even wholly other realities, it delves into not just hot-button social issues like automation, surveillance, and social collapse, but into fundamental aspects of being human. Love. Gender. Memory. Intelligence. Identity. Hope. It is an act of world-making. And when it takes an apocalyptic or dystopian turn, as it so often does these days, it's an act of end-of-the-world making as well. Because all these decades that sci-fi has been blowing my mind open to new worlds and possibilities, it's also been digging a deep post-apocalyptic neural groove into my brain. Whether by zombie or virus or alien invasion or meteor or robot revolt singularity or climate catastrophe, we are so often led to the end of the world in the movie house 
that we assume it will eventually happen in reality. Increasingly from Mad Max, where road bandits fight over the last drops of gasoline across a parched dystopia, to Avatar, where a space mining company desperately colonizes other planets in search of rich deposits of unobtainium, to Interstellar, where a blighted corn farmer heads through a tesseract in a black hole in order to find humanity a new home. I know, I know. The apocalyptic driver is some combination of resource exhaustion and ecological collapse. So much so that dystopian sci-fi has spun off its own climate-specific sub-subgenre known as cli-fi. Some of this apocalyptic canon is gut-wrenchingly desolate, delving biblically deep into existential questions of human cruelty, hope, God, and meaning. Yet even those that merely transpose a western gunslinger or wandering samurai storyline onto a dystopian landscape often take up the big questions. What kind of world are we going to get? How can we stay human in it? Are we more likely to survive via rugged individualism or cooperation? And ultimately, is there still hope? The worlds our fictions conjure are not just fantastical trash. They can be our most articulate and precise alerts to the likely manner of our future enslavement and doom as well as possible paths we might take towards liberation and survival. Our current dystopian imagination tends to conjure three kinds of worlds, the empty world, the teeming world, and the workable world. The empty world is that familiar post-apocalyptic landscape where much of the physical plant of civilization, in a state somewhere between shambles and perfectly preserved, is in place. But people are mostly gone. This is the setting of Zombieland, The Walking Dead, Mad Max, I Am Legend, and so many other films we know and love and hate. These films are often just setups for lone gunslinger or gangland genre fare transposed into a dystopian landscape. But even these are asking some deep questions. What are our ethical bonds to one another in a broken world? What code do we live by when there is no state? The teeming world imagines a different kind of apocalypse not a nuclear war or virus or mysterious supernatural culling that wipes most people out and leaves the rest to fend for themselves, but a combination of accelerating trends of global warming, ecological collapse, fossil fuel depletion, overpopulation, species extinction, economic inequality, and social segregation that lead to a world teeming with people whose systems of healthcare and governance and livelihood are profoundly degraded. This is the claustrophobic urban gangland landscape where the whole world has become a sci-fi Sao Paulo favela or AI-enhanced 1970s-era South Bronx. This is Blade Runner's dark, claustrophobic, neo-noir L.A. of 103 million inhabitants, Elysium's Gaza Strip Earth, Children of Men's burnt-out polyglot England-turned-internment camp. Here, the questions tend towards how do we survive, how do we live, and love, and hold on to the past and orient to the future, in a collapsed or collapsing world. Finally, there's the workable world, a livable society set in a shattered future. The worlds say that John Michael Greer imagines in his Retropia, set in 2065 in a North America where the USA is broken up into separate nations after multiple economic and ecological shocks led to civil war. Most of these new region nations are still pursuing the dream of progress, but one of them, the Lakeland Republic, located in the upper Midwest, capital Toledo, has chosen a different path of equity and appropriate technology. Here people make their own shoes, travel in French fry grease-powered streetcars, and have rediscovered the joys of community. Or New York 2140, 
where Kim Stanley Robinson imagines a New York City on the other side of climate catastrophe. Here, the super-rich live uptown in a forest of skyscrapers near the cloisters, the poor live downtown in Chelsea, which is half-submerged. Whether our post-carbon and post-catastrophe future is going to turn out like the flooded, elite-friendly futurism imagined by KSR, or the more modest, back-to-the-best-of-the-past retropia imagined by JMG, or for that matter something closer to the apocalypse of Mad Max, we don't know. We're not there yet. It's certainly helpful and instructive to have a gallery of workable world futures to set our sights by. But back here in the early 21st century, we're not post-anything yet. We're still facing into the horrors of climate catastrophe and social collapse. We're still poisoning our future with carbon and erecting heartless walls and refusing to act at the scale of the problem. And most days, things look bleak as hell. For so many of us, the question isn't so much which livable future are we going to get, but whether we're going to get any future at all. We're wondering, is there any hope? And our dystopian imagination has much to say. The question of hope is asked most brutally in Cormac McCarthy's The Road. The world of The Road is an empty world, bleak, barren, unrecognizable. The earth is effectively dead. The feeling is of hell, utter solitude, despair, a true end time. McCarthy's prose is spare, plain, and darkly prophetic. Its relentless atmospherics and brutal truths, humans will do almost anything, from murder to torture to cannibalism, to survive, are studded with Christian allegory. Like Melancholia, there is a family of three, a trinity, the man, the boy, no one has a name, and a ghostly third, the wife and mother, who, seeing nothing to live for in this world, has taken her own life before the events of the novel begin. The reader can certainly appreciate her choice. As the man says to himself, on this road there are no God-spoke men. They are gone, and I am left, and they have taken with them the world. And in this worldless world, it's hard to find any basis for hope. And yet, the man and the boy keep walking their hellish road. The boy is basically the man's God. God is love. God is compassion. God as innate moral sense. God is something to live and die for. A way to carry the fire through hell and across the generations. And even in this blasted, desolate world, there are tiny moments of redemption. Water appears again and again as a marker, a brief reprieve from the suffering. The ocean they're trekking to, the gray freezing waterfall pool they swim in, the one bath they take. Each of these moments offers a brief interlude from the monotonous horror, an occasion, almost, for joy. When I met with Tim to Christopher, he described the classroom exegesis of the road as the most important inquiry during his three years of divinity school. Every item, tool, scrap of food, or hasty shelter the man and his son stumbled upon, they received like a gift, evoking in Tim an overwhelming feeling of gratitude. As I read the book, in one excruciating day amidst the beauty and teeming life of Point Reyes, California, I too couldn't help but feel a profound appreciation for so much that I often take for granted. The simple caw of a crow, the sun in the sky, sleeping in a bed, the simple fact that the town of Point Reyes Station had a fire department, and how I was able to chat with the townsfolk instead of being eaten by them. Maybe this is the greatest virtue of apocalyptic literature, not just to alert us to potential future catastrophes, but to help us appreciate all we have here in our blessed pre-apocalyptic. In Children of Men, a teeming world set in a chaotic, 
flooded, soft fascist near future, for unexplained reasons no child has been born in the last twenty years. Suicide kits have been distributed to the citizenry. There is, in a very literal sense, no future, no hope. And then our protagonist, ex-rebel Clive Owen, is handed an infant. It's the only child in the world. There is a Greenpeace-esque ship waiting to receive and safeguard the child, and he must ferry her and her mother to safety, avoiding the authorities, as well as his old domestic terrorist buddies who want the child for their own nefarious purposes. The visual spectacle of the film is mesmerizing, a portrait of a chaotic and claustrophobic world, exhausted, at the end of its ropes, and utterly hopeless. Until now, that is because anyone who sees the child or hears her cry is suddenly shot through with an almost impossible, miraculous ray of hope. In Christopher Nolan's Interstellar, we find another hero in another dying world. It's a dust-storm-blasted world. Humanity has responded to eco-crisis by giving up war and engineering to focus on farming to the point that school kids are taught that the Apollo missions were a hoax. And the protagonist's grandfather wonders aloud about how we ever thought six billion humans could have it all. Yet blight keeps driving one crop after another extinct, until corn is all that's left, and it's not long before it too will succumb. Humanity has only one shot, a last-ditch effort to find a new suitable home in another galaxy, reachable via a wormhole placed near Saturn by a mysterious helpful they. The film's plot and pseudoscience and dialogue, um, that's relativity, folks, fall apart many times along the way but there's stuff worth mining in its odd narrative of hope. The driving force of our species' salvation? Maverick Matthew, we used to look up at the sky and wonder at our place in the stars, now we just look down and worry about our place in the dirt McConaughey. Astronaut turned dirt farmer turned astronaut again, who blasts off from his family to find a new home for humanity. How is all this going to work out? We'll find a way like we always have, says one of the astronauts gamely but it turns out the scientist who has sent these brave souls on their mission has been lying to them. The grand theory of gravity he's been working on all these decades that will get humans off the Earth, once McConaughey finds a viable place to go, is a crock. Our mystic, keeper of the inscrutable theory, merely wants to give folks the illusion of hope, droning on across the interstellar audio link with a monotonous repetition of Dylan Thomas's Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night. Rage! rage against the dying of the light. But that is small consolation to McConaughey, who's circling a black hole and aging far faster than his children back home, is being robbed of his life's treasure while on a fool's errand. But of course, when Hollywood, quantum mechanics, and ever-stubborn humanity itself team up, nothing is impossible. And into the black hole our hero goes, entering a tesseract that bends gravity and time so that he's able to send his daughter now grown up and the smartest theoretical scientist in the land, the critical information she needs to complete the impossible theory and save humanity. And who does the mysterious helpful they turn out to be? Why ourselves, of course. They is actually a time-stitched us, motivated by love and survival instinct to reach in from the future, aka a black hole-enabled alternate time-space dimension, and help ourselves out in the, um, present. If that's the most viable survival plan we've got, no wonder people are down in the mouth about our chances. It makes you wonder whether Dylan Thomas had the best advice after all. Interstellar is part of a slew of dystopian films with pretty hope-a-dope narratives. If you take a step back from the CGI, 
you can usually find a cast of classic tropes and archetypal figures. There's the Messenger Savior, think John Connor from the Terminator series, or astronaut farmer McConaughey himself. They bring warnings from the future, and maybe also a world-saving fix. Whether that's the suspicious quantum theory from Interstellar, or some just-concocted antidote central to so many zombie plague and pandemic scenarios, this fix has the power to save humanity, though first, usually the hero's girlfriend. There's often an arc involved, whether a spaceship, a pod, a boat, or even a train. The arc is humanity's last home and hope, the vessel holding the last remnants of the race and or the seeds of our future. In Battlestar Galactica, the entire fleet is effectively an arc, containing the last 50,298 members of the human species in search of a new, or is it old, home in the stars. The entirety of Snowpiercer takes place on a steampunk train barreling through a frozen wasteland Earth with the last of humanity aboard. As a band of underclass rebels battle their way from the back of the train to the front through increasingly surreal layers of class society, the train serves as both an allegory for runaway industrial civilization and an arc fraught with class struggle. Across the blighted dystopian landscape, the Savior and his posse set off in search of a sanctuary, if not always a full-on promised land or Eden. The sanctuary is at least some kind of shelter, safe haven, sanctum, oasis, or hideout where civilization and reciprocity and kindness, or simply the once normal functioning of nature, hang on. In Road Warrior, this sanctuary is little more than a ragged desert fortress barely holding out against marauding gangs. In I Am Legend, it's a fortified hippie-ish commune somewhere up north that Will Smith's anti-zombie serum must be ferried to. In Elysium, it's a high-tech, off-world gated community, a sumptuous space station for the wealthy elite orbiting a Gaza Strip Earth. The only hope in this world, at least for the teeming, toiling billions on Earth, is to break into this Elysium and make its rich tech available to all, particularly to the terminally ill son of Matt Damon's ex-girlfriend. In Waterworld, the promised land is an island, a spot of dry land, mythical or real we don't know, in a totally flooded world. In so many of these stories, it's unclear whether this promised land is a real and achievable destination or just a mirage, just a way to keep our hopes up and keep us moving. In Mad Max Fury Road, the desert oasis Furiosa is seeking turns out to be exactly this kind of mirage. If it ever was a real place, it is no longer. It might as well be a legend. Our dystopian canon asks, will the messenger warn the savior to lead the posse to find the path to carry the fix from the sanctuary to the ark before the flood? And all too often answers, tune in next week. But next week is too late, because back here in reality reality, we're still not listening to our messengers climate scientists. We don't have a magical fix. Desktop fusion and direct air carbon capture are decades if not forever off. And our arcs are literally flooding. The impregnable global seed vault on Spitsbergen Island, halfway to the North Pole from Norway, flooded during 2017's unprecedentedly high temperatures. All right, and there is no savior, and we must become the posse we've been waiting for. Our dystopian imagination can be very seductive. At its most apocalyptic, it promises to solve the ultimate problem, to wipe the slate clean, to bring all of humanity's troubles and frustrations and failures, millennia of not getting it right, to a dramatic finale. Sci-fi often serves up the apocalypse in its platonic form, a flood that washes us all away, a virus that takes us all out in a matter of weeks. 
an I-told-you-so eco-morality play whose terrible swift sword justly smites us all down for disrespecting the earth upon which we depend. A book like Alan Wiseman's The World Without Us, less sci-fi than a non-fiction thought experiment, invites us to imagine that pure day after, a perfect quiet. No jackhammers, no cars honking, no wives and husbands yelling at each other. Nature has the reins again, and there's something eerily satisfying about this. It feels like the solution to a problem. On those really bad days, the days I don't feel up to the tasks before us, the days I feel defeated by my own species, I take a strange solace here. The disappointed idealist in me looks out over the sprawling mess we've made of things and thinks, yes, let's just pull the plug and end it now. The thing is, the apocalypse is already happening, and it's anything but clean, anything but quick, anything but a morality play. Those least guilty are being slaughtered. Millions of people die every year due to fossil fuel air pollution, many of them children. The climate change-fueled carnage of the Syrian civil war has displaced over 3 million civilians. 1,000 Americans were killed by Hurricane Katrina, overwhelmingly black and brown, and from the poorest, most low-lying neighborhoods. Most were not killed by the rising waters as much as by the systemic inequality, decades of neglected infrastructure, as well as acts of outright racist violence. Of the 100 killed by Hurricane Sandy, two were children, two and five years old, pulled out of their mother's arms by a raging sea as she huddled in her car at the edge of Staten Island. An hour earlier, amidst lashing winds and rain, she'd knocked desperately on a door in search of shelter, but the man had refused her entry. He happened to be white, she happened to be black, and now her children happened to be dead. Climate catastrophe isn't going to spare the innocent. Climate catastrophe isn't going to put humanity out of its misery. Just the opposite. The apocalypse isn't going to happen in one cleansing swoop or in some poetic, poignant finale. It's going to happen in ugly stages. It's going to be collapsed by a thousand budget cuts. And at each cut, there will be suffering and families torn apart and people at each other's throats, as well as extraordinary acts of sacrifice and cooperation and resilience. It won't make anything simple. It will be full of chaos and complexity and impossible decisions. It will be both heroic and banal. It will be human all too human at every turn. And in many parts of the world, it already is. This is the apocalypse we're looking at. Unlike our fantasy apocalypse, it resolves nothing about the human predicament. It is not an escape from being human. It is a forced return. It's not a clean end to humanity. If we're lucky, it will be a shattering new beginning. To help us get through the next century, we don't need more stories that seduce us into being consumers of our own doom. We don't need more stories that peddle false solutions and flimsy hopes. We need stories that help us face our uncertain future and imagine our way through. One of the tools that can help us do this is visionary fiction, whose core elements Adrienne describes as follows. Explores current social issues through the lens of sci-fi. Is conscious of identity and intersecting identities centers those who have been marginalized, is aware of power inequalities, is realistic and hard but hopeful, shows change from the bottom up rather than the top down, highlights that change is collective and is not neutral. Its purpose is social change and societal transformation. These qualities are exemplified by Octavia Butler, the author Adrienne refers to as her North Star, in her most popular book, The Nebula and Hugo Award-winning Parable of the Sower, which charts a quite different path through collapse. Set in a dystopian L.A., 
The world butler conjures in the sower is a broken and ecologically compromised but very believable extrapolation of our own world. There is growing social chaos amidst the remnants of a failed state. Society is a patchwork of corporate enclaves and semi-functional suburban cul-de-sacs that have banded together and erected perimeter walls. The rare times when it rains, people can still grow things in gardens. Our mixed-race protagonist, Lauren Olamina, far wiser and more courageous than you might expect from her 16 years, lives in one of these banded-together communities in the outskirts of what was once L.A. She conceives receives a prophecy, a Taoist-like nature-centric humanist religion in which God is change, a precept both ontological, reality is always in flux, and imperative. We must grow, we must change the world. In fact, to survive, humanity must spread its seed to other worlds. With the Earth Seed prophecy as her guide, she makes plans to head north where climate change is less severe. As social chaos grows and the community comes under attack, Lauren grabs her bug-out bag and flees with a few comrades. It's a story of flight, community building, and collective resilience. A motley but intrepid band begins anew. There is prophecy. There is a plan. There is hope. As for the classic tropes of hope, they're there too. A messenger, Lauren, leads her posse, a ragtag band of climate refugees, to a promised land, the verdant acorn community they're all trekking north to, carrying a fix, the Earthseed prophecy. But here, the fix isn't a magic techno-fix, it's a creed of resilience and change. And the messenger isn't the all-too-common violent white savior dude, it's a 16-year-old mixed-race climate refugee with a gift for prophecy and community building. And the world they inhabit isn't some fantastical CGI doomscape, but, for better and for worse, a recognizable extrapolation of our own. The story isn't neat and pretty, but it feels like a map, even a strategy we can follow. And what about visionary fictions set in our own, non-extrapolated present-day world? What maps or role models are on offer? Consider Hala, the 50-something Icelandic bike-riding eco-gorilla from the 2018 film woman at war, who, when not holding heartless industrialists to ransom, is trying to adopt a child. Or Reverend Ernst Toller from Paul Schrader's 2017 indie, First Reformed, who pathetically, tragically, heroically, struggles to jibe his religious faith with our ongoing assault on nature. Or Hush Puppy from Ben Zeitlin's 2012 genre-defying Beasts of the Southern Wild, a particularly stunning portrait of how to survive and stay true to yourself in the face of climate-fueled disaster. Is it a monster film? A coming-of-age film? A social portrait of defiant Louisiana bayou dwellers? A political parable of climate catastrophe and resilience? It's all of these, and at the center is our most unexpected heroine protagonist yet. Six years old, motherless, and almost fearily wild, Hush Puppy lives in an uneasy standoff with her dad in a ramshackle pair of buildings along the bayou part of an overlooked multiracial community called the bathtub. When the big storms come in, if the levees up north hold, the rich communities stay safe, but the bathtub floods. In the little schoolhouse, the teacher-slash-medicine woman talks of dinosaurs and evolution and climate change, and in Hush Puppy's mind, she imagines fearsome beasts released from the Antarctic ice as it cracks apart, slowly making their way towards her. A perfect child's eye metaphor for climate disruption that should strike fear into every adult's heart, too. But fear is the last thing Hush Puppy or her dad or their neighbors have in mind. 
Instead, they're all about resilience and survival and joy and living free. Her father prods and goads and challenges Hush Puppy to be strong, in both muscle and mind. And as the storm builds, most in the community refuse to evacuate. They are determined to ride out this storm in their own way. There's several subplots. An island-hopping search for mom at houses of ill repute. An escape from well-meaning but paternalistic healthcare workers. A nighttime mission to dynamite the levee. And many scenes of close-to-the-bone bayou living. Festivals, fires and fights, whiskey drinking, chicken killing, and crab eating. But the overall takeaway is clear. A storm is coming. We didn't stir it up, but all of us together, and each of us in our own utterly singular way, are going to have to find a way to ride it out. Utopia. Our Afro-Indigenous trans-eco-socialist futurism can beat up your capitalist realism. Our choice remains. Utopia or Oblivion. Buckminster Fuller. For Adrian, the critical transition isn't from fossil fuels to renewables, but from capitalism to a post-capitalism grounded in social justice and operating in sync with the rhythms of nature. Capitalism has served a function, she said. Technical progress, material wealth, etc. But now to survive, we must get beyond it. An already hard task made even harder because of the way capitalism, like the nothing in the never-ending story Adrian likened it to, has insinuated its way into everything, even our dreams. To imagine our current capitalist ocean as a future geologic layer of plastic detritus with post-capitalist dirt on top of it, Adrienne turns to visionary fiction and utopian sci-fi. If we can first imagine it, then maybe we can create it. Almost immediately, however, this utopian impulse runs right up against capitalist realism. According to British theorist Mark Fisher, who coined the term in a 2009 book of the same name, it's the widespread sense that not only is capitalism the only viable political and economic system, but also that it is now impossible even to imagine a coherent alternative to it. This sense is not so much an ideological argument as a pervasive atmosphere, a kind of invisible barrier constraining thought and action, says Fisher. The mainstream media does this policing of the imagination, chastising, for example, Naomi Klein for daring to question capitalism unless she can produce a total blueprint of a working alternative. And we also do it to ourselves. Through what Fisher calls an attitude of reflexive impotence, where we recognize capitalism's flaws but, lacking any faith that we can overcome the larger system that produces them, we engage in a self-fulfilling prophecy of apathy, outrage, and ineffectual action. Unlike neoliberalism, which sells itself as a kind of capitalist utopia, celebrating the unfettered winner-take-all market as the triumphant destiny of history, capitalist realism is inherently anti-utopian, holding that no matter capitalism's flaws or destructive impacts, it's simply the only way to go. Together, they sweet-talk us into surrendering to the status quo. But with the appearance of the quasi-utopian Green New Deal, the rise of Bernie Sanders and the democratic socialist wave he ushered in with his groundbreaking 2016 presidential campaign, and the growing strength of an intersectional climate justice movement that increasingly identifies capitalism as the culprit and has its sights set on radical systemic change, we may be witnessing the beginning of the end of capitalist realism. I had my own direct experience of this seismic shift in action in December 2018, alongside hundreds of young people from the Sunrise Movement as we swarmed Congress for a Green New Deal. Our mass people-powered day of lobbying, was not only impassioned, incredibly well-organized, 
and strategically focused on persuading key members of Congress to sign on to the GND. But more than all this, in some intangible way, it made me feel that the once impossible was truly possible. Finally, the utopia we needed had a name, a plan, a path forward, and a movement gathering behind it. And that movement was both inside the halls of power, AOC et al., and laying siege to those same halls too. As twenty or so of us from the New York City area occupied our local congressman's office, one of countless many occupations that day, I fell into conversation with one of my sit-in mates. He was a designer and architect, and his briefcase was full of the future, specifically a creative brief for the Green New Deal, complete with sketches, design strategy, and a retro-futurist aesthetic. Whether he would ever hear back from the staffer at AOC's office he'd sent it to wasn't the point. The point was, from that month's headlines to that man's briefcase, the once-locked doors of capitalist realism were being blown off their hinges. At a 2021 talk on the future as dream time, just before his tragic death, visionary anthropologist David Graeber fielded a question from an attendee who wondered whether he was optimistic about the next hundred years for humanity, given that no one else seemed to be. Graeber paused and said something I believe Adrienne, Gopal, Joanna, and Tim would wholeheartedly agree with. I'm quite optimistic about the death of capitalism. I'm actually more worried that the next thing might be even worse. So, how could we have a stupider moment to tell people not to try to think of what a better system would be like? Which is exactly why Adrienne's invitation to imagine utopia in the midst of dystopia is so important. Utopia is not a blueprint. It's not a step-by-step -step plan. It's not even a strategy. It's an act of imagination and an act of will. Like the poet said, Utopia lies at the horizon. When I draw nearer by two steps, it retreats two steps. If I proceed ten steps forward, it swiftly slips ten steps ahead. No matter how far I go, I can never reach it. What, then, is the purpose of utopia? It is to cause us to advance. This is a great moment for the reinvention of utopianism, said Graeber in that same talk. The lesson I think we've learned about utopianism is not that utopianism is bad. It's that when you just have one utopia, it's bad. What we need is lots and lots of utopias, the more the merrier and the more liberating it is. Which is exactly what our current explosion of visionary sci-fi and cli-fi futurism seem to be giving us. Mainstream sci-fi, minus a Lando Calrissian sidekick or two, might have you thinking everyone in the future is white. Afrofuturism tells us otherwise. In music, visual art, graphic novels, fiction, and film. Via Janelle Monet's album Dirty Computer, Marvel's Black Panther, and the novels of Octavia Butler and successors like N.K. Jemison, Afrofuturism grabs the reins of the sci-fi genre to imagine futures in which black lives not only exist, but matter. Take Wakanda, an enlightened, technologically advanced, Afrocentric civilization hiding in the heart of Africa that also speaks at a mythic level to the griefs and dreams of the African-American experience. From museum shows to comic books, the Afrofuturist imagination conjures everything from reverse diasporas to super-sensory and tech-enhanced modes of carrying on the long march towards justice and liberation. It's thrilling, says Adrienne. People wanted to erase us, and we're writing ourselves back in. We're creating stories that are rooted in African heritage and that articulate an African future. Indigenous people are also picking up the reins of sci-fi. 
rejecting the fetishization of indigenous knowledge so prevalent in the wider culture. Indigenous futurism is transplanting trees in space, queering the space-time continuum through NDN time, and turning AI into the voice of ancestors, an ancient cultural DNA reawakened to selectively rewire contemporary culture. These stories, says indigenous scholar Daniel Heath Justice, guide us forward into an ever-uncertain future, just as they guide us back home. In our meeting, Gopal Dianeni argued for what one might call transfuturism, suggesting that the transgender journey is the literal embodiment of the larger socioeconomic transition our whole civilization must make. There is wisdom in the trans experience, he told me, that our other movements need if we are to reimagine our way forward. He highlighted the complexity, emergence, and mystery common to both journeys. And that's just the tip of the dystopian iceberg melting away to reveal the many utopias we can build at the edge of our flooded future. In addition to Adrienne's visionary fiction, radical speculation to advance justice and liberation, there's hope punk, being kind as an act of rebellion, retro-utopia, using cosmopolitan-appropriate tech to go forward by going backwards, and solar punk, gritty, optimistic, post-carbon sci-fi just to name a few of the sci-fi subgenres helping us imagine viable, non-terrible futures. Solar Punk pairs well with an understanding that the future will require resilience and radical adaptation. According to a Trinidadian video essayist who goes by the internet handle St. Andrew, it's a futurism that focuses on what we should hope for, rather than on what to avoid. It offers a shining vision of a positive future grounded in our existing world that looks beyond the limitations of capitalism and beyond the current rift between humanity and nature. It accepts that climate change, the consequences of centuries of damage, aren't averted in the future. Yet it still manages to incorporate hope. It imagines a future where we've got a lot of work to do, but we're doing better. We're using technology for more uplifting ends, like seed-bombing drones and solar ovens. Our future might be trending dystopian, Solarpunk is telling us but we can and must also make it utopian. And not just unitopian, but multitopian. One big no to capitalist realism, many beautiful yeses to our Afro-Indigenous trans-solar-punk retro-visionary eco-socialist futures. We need them all. Because we can't leave anyone behind. And because the best people to lead the future are likely not the ruling class people who fucked up the present. Channeling Paul Kingsnorth, who describes the dominant stories our society operates by as malfunctioning software, I like to imagine all these rogue utopias and alternate futurisms as people-powered algorithms hacking and code-patching our culture's faulty software. But if we're really going to hack the future, we must make our multiverse of utopias visible, compelling, common sense, and most importantly, operational. We must carry our utopias into the real world. St. Andrew would agree. He lauds solar punk for being not just a sci-fi genre, but a growing social movement that emphasizes real-world application, focused on what we do here and now, from DIY projects to larger organization. America got a glimpse of solar punk in action when the Sunrise Movement kicked off their 2019 nationwide GND tour with a utopian video, A Message from the Future with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Set some decades into an eco-socialist future and narrated by the congresswoman from aboard a New York to D.C. bullet train as she reflects back across all that it took to bring about the GND, 
It's a seven-minute tutorial in how to do visionary futurist storytelling. You can't be what you can't see it begins, naming a core principle. People said the GND was too big, too fast, not practical, AOC narrates from the future. I think that's because they couldn't picture it yet. Which is a beautiful meta moment for the viewer, as that's exactly what the film is doing for us. Then, with help from Molly Crabtree's animated watercolors, the film paints that picture, from winning the White House in 2020, to Medicare for All, to retrained oil field workers and urban AmeriCorps climate kids restoring wetlands in coastal Louisiana with the help of indigenous wisdom, to the full suite of solutions at the scale of the crises we face, without leaving anyone behind, that unfurl across the decade of the Green New Deal. And, to its credit, it's not all roses and kumbaya. As AOC's narration continues, those were years of massive change, and not all of it was good. When Hurricane Sheldon hit southern Florida, parts of Miami went underwater for the last time. As we battled the fires, floods, and droughts, we knew how lucky we were to have started acting when we did. The first big step was just closing our eyes and imagining it. For Naomi Klein, who conceived the project, the question was, how do we tell the story of something that hasn't happened yet? At the sold-out culmination of Sunrise's tour, she told the crowd, We have all been raised in a culture bombarded with messages that there is no alternative to the crappy reality we have today. And then added, If we're going to win a Green New Deal, we're going to have to start telling different stories about who we are and about the kinds of futures that are within our grasp. Naomi's partner, Avi Lewis, who co-wrote the script with AOC, noted that such an effort requires a totally different creative muscle than I've ever exercised. Using it, he admits, can be terrifying. Having a brief flicker of hope that we could do something about our situation seems to open the floodgates of our repressed grief. Yet, as AOC and Lewis say in the closing line of the film, we can be whatever we have the courage to see. Yes, in this future, as in all our likely futures, Miami is underwater and droughts and fires rage all around. After all, we must eventually give climate realism and the tyranny of the possible their due. And yet when I watch this seven-minute gem, the impossible feels slightly more possible. What is utopia for? It is to cause us to advance. So, let's imagine the world we really want, and let's advance. Even if this advance is no longer up the sun-drenched hills we hoped it would be, but down the treacherous rapids of climate catastrophe we still need to know where we want to go. Otherwise, we won't be able to shipwreck ourselves there. Adrienne turns to visionary fiction to help us imagine our way through collapse to a post-capitalist solar punkish utopia. She also looks to nature and its many-fold patterns to discover how we might get in right relationship with each other and all that we're in for. When we talk about the crisis we're in, we often describe it as a problem rooted in our separation from nature our soul-killing and possibly civilization-destroying alienation from nature. We're not sure how to fix it, but we sense that any chance at healing or a livable future lies in her direction. We must repair our relationship with her, relearn her ways, re-sync with her rhythms, and let her wildness reanimate our own. So what would nature do? My next and final meeting was with someone whose profession, and arguably whole life, is an answer to this question. Meetings with Remarkable Hopers and Doomers Dr. Robin Wall Kimmerer How Can I Be a Good Ancestor? 
Dr. Robin Wall Kimmerer, botanist, ambassador of indigenous thought, and author of Braiding Sweetgrass, is one of the most celebrated naturalists in the country. What would nature do? Her basic answer, what people have been doing for most of our history, and what most indigenous people are still doing. Oh, and let's ask the plants. We met up in the Adirondack Mountains of upstate New York, a far cry from Detroit. We're at the Blue Mountain Center, an ecology-oriented riding center in the middle of the largest state park east of the Mississippi. We've both been here several times before, to write, reflect, hike, or to clear brush, patch holes, or pitch in in whatever way we can. The place is like a home away from home for both of us. Over the course of our few days together, we read each other's work and discussed topics ranging from ecological compassion to the restoration and restoriation of our relationship to the natural world, to Richard Power's novel The Overstory. Some of the trees in that novel have as much presence as some of the human characters living alongside them, I gushed. He could have gone farther, she countered. He could have given them full personhood. He could have treated them not as extraordinary objects of the forest, but as actual beings. I tell her I've been following with fascination and awe Western science's late-to-the-game understanding of plant intelligence and the far more complex than we ever imagined way that forests communicate and cooperate. I also tell her that, while I love the great outdoors, I'm fundamentally a city kid, one of those alienated denizens of the fabricated world who suffer from nature deficit disorder. Ha! she said. You should get out more. I took her advice. Hiking the grounds of the center keeping an eye out for plants that play a starring role in braiding sweetgrass. There's an abundance of umbilicaria americana lichen here, she tells me. In fact, the chapter about lichens was actually written right here at the Blue Mountain Center. Lichen, it turns out, are not only one of the most ancient forms of terrestrial life, they're actually two beings in one, a fungus and an alga, joined in a symbiosis so close that their union becomes a wholly new organism. Using the motif of the wedding basket, an exchange of wedding gifts and promises common to many Native American traditions, Robin draws a series of parallels between this lichen marriage and her parents' marriage, which has lasted for over 60 years. In the algal wedding basket, the gift of photosynthesis, the extraordinary ability to turn light into sugar. In the fungal wedding basket, the ability to reach its delicate threads out along the rock to find and dissolve minerals. One cooks, the other hunts. It's a reciprocal exchange of sugar and minerals. Likewise, in her parents' marriage, the balance of giving and taking is dynamic, the roles of giver and receiver shifting moment to moment. Both unions are committed to an us that emerges from well-matched strengths and weaknesses, and extends into, and often benefits, the broader community or ecosystem. Core to both unions, mutual reciprocity, basically a gift economy. Throughout the book, she weaves together many such examples, drawing lessons from both the natural world and her own family and cultural history to guide us towards a more reciprocal paradigm. Instead of a one-way extractive and instrumental attitude to the natural world, she's telling a different story of who we are, or could be, as people. In the prologue to Sweetgrass, she paints this choice in mythic form, staging an encounter between Eve and Skywoman. In the storytelling traditions of the original peoples throughout the Great Lakes region, Sky Woman is the first woman. She falls through a hole in Sky World, toward a dark, watery earth, clutching a bundle in her hand. The water animals see her fall. 
the geese fly up to catch her. A huge turtle offers her his back to set foot on. But she needs land to live, and there is none. Loon, otter, sturgeon, and others try to dive to the very bottom of the water where it is said there is mud. None succeed, some don't return. Finally, Muskrat, weakest swimmer of them all, volunteers to go. He dies in the effort, but floats back up to the surface with mud clutched in his paw. Sky Woman spreads the mud on the back of Turtle, does a powerful dance and a song of gratitude, and the mud turns to land. Turtle Island is born. She takes the bundle in her hand, fruits and seeds from the tree of life that she grabbed as she fell, and scatters them across the new land. She tends to them, and nourished by the light pouring through the hole in the sky through which she fell, they grow, and the earth turns from brown to green. And with all this abundance, many of the water animals come to live with her on Turtle Island. A gift is given. In turn, a gift is received. Sky Woman created a garden for the good of all. Meanwhile, on the other side of the world, there was another woman in a garden with a tree. But when she ate the fruit, she was exiled, and now, in order to eat, she was instructed to subdue the wilderness into which she was cast. Same earth, same species, different stories, Robin writes. It's a collision of creation myths and civilizations. One story leads to the generous embrace of the living world, the other to banishment. One woman is our ancestral gardener, a co-creator of the good green world that would be the home of her descendants. The other was an exile just passing through an alien world on a rough road to her real home in heaven. Eventually, the offspring of Sky Woman and the children of Eve meet, and, as Robin tells it, the land around us bears the scars of that meeting, the echoes of our stories. For Robin, however, this echo is insufficient, because the story of Sky Woman is not a cute relic of the past, but full of vital instructions for the future, about reciprocity, gratitude, humility, and the wisdom of the natural world. Unlike the Western tradition, with its hierarchy of beings that places humans at the top and plants at the bottom, the indigenous worldview sees humans as the younger brothers of creation. We're the ones who've only just shown up. It's us who have the most to learn. Plants, notes Robin, know how to make food and medicine from light and water. And then they give it away. How about us? For Robin, plants are our teachers. The question is, can we listen? And even if we eventually do learn to listen, will it by then be too late? At some point, amidst all our talk of plants, I innocently ask her when she became a botanist. She corrects my colonial mindset in the gentlest way imaginable. I think I was born a botanist. I simply am. I cannot remember a time in my life when plants were not my family and my companions. For our interview, we met in one of the center's cabins, and I made a fire. It was a noticeably poor fire, slow to catch, smoke leaking into the room. Is that because after our easy back and forth there was now a tape recorder involved, and I was nervous? In any case, we sat down by this undignified fire and began. Andrew, can you tell me in my tape recorder a tiny bit about yourself? How does your background shape the approach you bring to the climate crisis? Robin. The little bio is that I am currently a professor of plant ecology and the director of the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment, which is explicitly designed to bring together scientific tools with the wisdom of traditional people. Andrew. That's unusual in an academic setting. Robin. 
Yes, it is. The Academy tends to be pretty hostile to such things. But I don't think of traditional ways of understanding as a challenge to science, per se. I believe Western science and traditional knowledge are both science. Science is a set of tools. We can use those tools for all sorts of things. We can use the tools of Western science without buying the whole scientific worldview. We can use scientific tools in an indigenous worldview. That's really what I'm all about. Andrew, you also mentioned a complicated ancestry, an Irish carpenter in your family tree, a mixture of native and white ancestry. Robin, I'm a member of the citizen Potawatomi Nation. I'm of mixed heritage, like many of our people are. Our people were historically removed from our homelands in the Great Lakes, first to Kansas and then to Oklahoma. Our people took three, four months to do that walk. The Cherokee talk about their trail of tears. We call ours the trail of death. In the context of climate change, I think about that part of my heritage a lot. We experienced tremendous climate change in a single season. Our people walked from the forests of the Great Lakes to the prairie grasslands. If you look at climate maps today, you'll basically see that what is now the climate of Kansas and Oklahoma is moving to Wisconsin. Our people did that walk. And now, Andrew, nature is walking it back. Robin, nature is walking it back. If I've had an aha moment about climate change, it's that our people went through this radical climate shift while also in the midst of tremendous cultural loss, and we survived. Andrew, oof. And this really wasn't all that long ago, was it? Robin, not at all. My grandfather was one of those children who was taken from his family at nine years old. His brother was only seven. My grandfather was brought to the Carlisle Indian School. For me, growing up with those stories and hearing what my dad had to say about it and what my grandfather didn't say about it, I kept thinking, here was a school that was designed to make you forget who you were. So couldn't there also be a school that would help you remember? That's how I think about the Center for Native People and the Environment. Our mission is in many ways a response to my family's and my people's history of loss, which is a very formative story for me. Andrew, you're a scientist, yet you emphasize the critical role of story, myth, and even prophecy in addressing the climate crisis. Why so? Robin, as a member of the scientific community, I've been living with the knowledge of our climate threat for a long time. Originally, and naively, I assumed that once people knew what was happening, well, they wouldn't let it happen. But for the most part, that's not how we've responded. The incrementalism of climate change, the way it happens molecule by molecule with no malice, is confounding. It can be hard for people to see and feel the danger, never mind act on it. I realized we know it's happening, and yet we're letting it happen anyway. That realization struck moral terror into me. Andrew, not mortal terror, but moral terror. Say more. Robin, if you know that what you're doing is wrecking the world and you're doing it anyway, that's a moral problem. This realization propelled me to not just do the science, but to become a storyteller as well. I realized information isn't going to save us, but stories might. And, in any case, it's too urgent, too important not to try. Yes, I think we need a carbon tax. Yes, I think technology can play a role. Yes, we have to change our light bulbs and our tech and our economic policy. But what we really have to change is how we conceive of ourselves. Andrew, so what is the central story that needs to be restoried here? Robin, 
The story I feel most compelled to try to disrupt is the story about who we are as people. We have this notion that we're just takers. Hell, our government doesn't even call us citizens anymore. It calls us consumers. But we're not just takers. We've forgotten that we can be partners, too, that we can bring good things to the table. We have to change the story that we are inevitably bad players in a living world. Otherwise, we just fall into despair and down the toilet, right? We end up in a place where there is nothing we can do because, well, it's just human nature. But it's not human nature. Yes, it's been human behavior for the last 500 years, but 500 years is an eye blink in the scope of human history. We've bought this story, and it's a destructive story. Maybe it's made life convenient and easy in an iPhone-ish way, but it hasn't made us happy. Andrew, unfortunately, it's the only story a lot of us can see. Our big lie is so big that it's invisible to us. Robin, a big lie is invisible until we see another story. If we see another story, we can look at our own and say, well, wait a minute. What are the consequences that flow from living that story? This can be an extraordinary act of liberation. I'm no scholar of politics, policy, economics, or any such thing. I'm a botanist. And so this may come across as quite simple-minded, but it seems to me that we have a choice to look at the world as if it were a gift, or we can look at the world as if it is property. It's within our own power to make that choice. Andrew, what role does language play in making that choice, in choosing another story? Robin, in Braiding Sweetgrass, there's a chapter called Learning the Grammar of Animacy. It's about my own learning, late in life, of the Potawatomi language, which is so difficult because it is impossible in our language to speak of the living world as it. For example, Andrew, you're sitting by the fire, so I wouldn't say it is sitting by the fire. Andrew, I'm not an it. Robin, right. In English, we have a special grammar for each other. But in Anishinaabe, that human exceptionalism doesn't exist. All beings are treated as family, as relatives, as alive. That animacy is baked into the language, into the grammar. And so, knowing that the way we speak deeply shapes how we know the world, I wondered whether we could come up with a way to animate the English language so that we no longer refer to our relatives as stuff. And so I asked my language teacher, do we have a word for a being, an earthly being? He said, yeah, we do. It's bimadaziaki, which translates as living being of the earth. Andrew, and your proposal? Robin. To replace the word it when we're speaking of a living thing with the word ki. The word ki, the last syllable of bimadaziaki, which slides nicely, I think, along the pronoun sequence e, she, ki, and it. Andrew, but a table, say, would still be an it? Robin, sure. Tables are inanimate in Potawatomi, too. Andrew, okay. Robin, the elegance really shows up when we go plural. And here we don't have to borrow from Potawatomi because we have our own perfectly good word in English, which is kin. Andrew, just add an N to key. Robin, yes. And suddenly we are talking about our relatives. We can say it for bulldozers and paperclips, but everybody else gets to be a person. And that takes away permission to exploit the world as if it was all stuff. Andrew, it's a very beautiful idea. Hard to actually implement, I'd imagine, but worth it. We need to retrain ourselves around the values we believe in. Robin. For me, it's a simple substitution. Today, for example, I was out walking, and there was a beautiful white pine. 
I sat down and I could either lean my back against it or I could sit with key. Those are different things. One of them is intimate and personal and makes you feel like, oh, sitting with my buddy, my kin. Andrew. It's a way to give the world presence, agency, even selfhood. Robin. Selfhood. Personhood. When I see birds, it's like, oh, kin are waking us up this morning. Kin are flying south for the winter. Andrew. I can see how it could remap your brain, how it could help re-enchant the world. Robin. Right. In fact, I did an experiment along those lines with freshman composition students. I gave them a talk about key and kin and asked them to experiment with using it and how it felt. Some of their responses were like, this is really stupid. But others are like, oh my God, this makes me feel so happy. This makes me feel so connected. Andrew. In the Hopi language, you don't have a brother. You are brothered by. Robin. Yes. What are nouns in English are verbs in my language including landforms and different forms of water. The word for bay, for example, is actually to be a bay. Wikigama. There are many other words like that, to be a river, and technically speaking, even to be a day of the week. Grammatically, we say to be a Saturday, to be a hill, to be a mountain. That's one of my favorites. It isn't a mountain. It's to be a mountain. Andrew. A language built this way makes everything come alive. Robin. Everything is alive. Andrew. Alive and wise, too. You describe plants as our teachers. They've learned how to survive for eons longer than we've had to, through periods of both bounty and scarcity. What can they teach us about how to survive the crisis we are facing? Robin. Plants have so much to teach us. They could lead us out of this mess we've made, if we could only listen. Plants know. They are carbon specialists, right? They're already converted to a 100% solar economy. Do they do it at great cost and suffering? No, they do it with beauty and generosity and flowers and berries. Plants are marvelous, marvelous teachers of reciprocity. Plants know what to do. Look at the tall grass prairie and the terrible price we have paid for the loss of that ecosystem. Prairies are amazing carbon sponges. Just as much carbon can be stored in the soil underneath tall grass prairies in a forest. But what is the rarest ecosystem in North America today? Andrew, let me guess. The tall grass prairie? Robin, not too long ago, it was a third of the continent. Andrew, and now? Robin, less than 4%. We are terminating our teachers just when we need them most. As someone who engages with the living world as my family, it's not just morally painful, but spiritually painful. Incredibly painful. Yes. We're learning from the tall grass prairie. We're teaching ourselves new techniques, conservation tillage, low-carbon farming and ranching, etc. But we're slow on the uptake. Meanwhile, the tall grass prairie already knows how to remedy the climate crisis, but we've killed most of it off. What will people do when they understand that the plants are sentient, esteemed teachers? What will it be like to suddenly realize that these beings who you've treated as objects, as the lowest of the low, are like holy people? What if we learn it, but it's too late? What do we do then? Imagining that moment simply breaks my heart. Andrew, there's so much about our moment to break our hearts. Grief is so laced into our times. What has the natural world taught you about how to grieve what's happening, while still seeing your way forward? Robin, a core medicine for me is gratitude. It's very healing for me, especially when I face my plant relatives who are being assaulted at every turn. 
but it's also much more than a coping mechanism. When I teach and waken others to the notion that this world isn't property, but rather that this world is a gift, it can change outcomes too. Because once we see things that way, we tend to also ask, if that is so, how then should we behave? We have so many stories to tell and cultural teachings warning us about the failure of gratitude. In every indigenous culture I know of, there are stories of what happened when people forgot to be grateful. The corn didn't grow back. The bison didn't come that year. The stream dried up. I take these stories very literally. They're telling us to notice what happens when we forget that the world is a gift. If we let the gifts that sustain us become invisible, if we take them for granted, if we don't reciprocate, if we don't steward them, then the buffalo don't come back. Gratitude has a spiritual purpose, but it also has a very practical purpose. Gratitude also assuages some of the pain I feel amidst our extinction crisis. If the trees and ferns and mosses and corn know that I really love them, and I'm grateful for them, and I feed them, and I'm really, really sorry for what's happening, and I can truly say I'm doing my best here, that's medicine for me. It's not enough, but it's something. We also have a lot of data showing us that people who practice gratitude consume less. Gratitude leads you to that sense of, oh, I already have everything I need. I don't need an iPhone upgrade. I'm good with the simple version. I don't need the latest home entertainment system. I'm good with actually going over and knocking on my neighbor's door to talk to them. Gratitude cultivates a sense of abundance, which is the antidote to the false scarcity that capitalism implants in us. So the notion that gratitude is just an empty healing practice for your own self, I don't agree. I think it has agency. I think it has agency in the world. Living out gratitude can be a radical statement. I have enough. I have enough. Andrew, Dianu, as Jews might say. It is sufficient. Not quite the same. But you build off the traditions you inherit. Robin, you absolutely do. Another cultural teaching I rely on is prophecy. We have a prophecy about this time called the Prophecy of the Seventh Fire, which is really a history of what happened to our people. It speaks about a moment, the moment we are in right now, when all of humanity faces a fork in the road. One path is dark and charred. The other is lush and verdant. But the prophecy tells us we can't just stride down the path we want, because we don't yet know how. We have to turn around and pick up what our ancestors left behind for us and bring them with us. Then we will know how to go forward. Andrew, as you say elsewhere, by our ceremonies we remember how to remember. Robin, yes. Andrew, so what must we pick up and carry with us? Robin, biodiversity for one. In the prophecy it is said that our plant and animal relatives will turn their faces away from us. They used to love us, now they don't. There once was mutual respect, but now only shame. They are almost lost, but we must not let them go. We must conserve that diversity and bring them along with us. We must also pick up our stories. We must bring along our worldview, a world built on gift gratitude and reciprocity. As a plant ecologist, I know that's how the world works. Natural law is based on reciprocity, and human law can't stray far from natural law. If it does, disastrous consequences. This is a wisdom teaching that's been transmitted to us via story and myth. And yet, look at us and our economies based on perpetual growth. We have gone so deeply astray from natural law. 
How has this even become valid thinking? Andrew. Capitalism demands it. And for a brief historical moment, cheap, abundant fossil fuels have made it seem as though endless growth is actually possible. Robin, we must get human law back in alignment with natural law. This, too, we must pick up and carry with us. It will require ecological compassion, the understanding that all beings have personhood, the granting of rights to nature. Andrew, if a corporation can have personhood, why not a river? Robin, exactly. Andrew, as I'm sure you know, after a long fight, in 2017, the Wanganui River in New Zealand was granted legal personhood, and with it, quite a bit of legal standing to protect itself and its larger watershed. Robin, yes, that was one of the first examples. Legal personhood has been conveyed to any number of natural entities since then. It's a very positive development, and it's growing. But no matter how good our campaigners and legal scholars are, it won't really take root unless we cultivate a much deeper sense of ecological compassion. Andrew, which is why Richard Powers' The Overstory is such an important book. Robin, yes, it brings us to compassion for those tree beings. And we need that so desperately, because I don't think the rights of nature will resonate with the public until we have deepened our ecological compassion. We need to understand this other being as a person, and not a human person. I get into all kinds of trouble in the scientific community where we are not allowed to anthropomorphize. I'm not anthropomorphizing. I'm not saying those trees are like people. I'm saying those trees are like trees, and they're persons. Andrew, one of the takeaways from the overstory, trees are intelligent, but we humans are simply moving too fast to notice. They smell, they communicate, they move toward the light, toward water, toward nutrients. They warn each other of danger. They share. They even sacrifice themselves for one another. Robin, they even hear. Andrew, hear? Robin, yes. One of my colleagues, Monica Gagliano, a cognitive biologist, has discovered that plants can hear. Andrew, how exactly? Robin, we already know that plants will turn on their own chemical defenses to pests. Sometimes they're worn by trees on the outer edge of the infestation. We also know that if a caterpillar chews on said experimental plant, that plant turns on its defenses. I'm under attack. That's biochemical. It's mechanical. It's oxidative. Andrew, right. This is the new science of trees. But where do the sound waves come in? Robin. What Monica did was to record the sound of the caterpillar chewing, put the plants in sealed chambers so there was no possibility of chemical communication, and then play the sound of the caterpillar chewing, and lo, the plant turns on the defense. Andrew. What? And why is this not headline news? Robin. There's a really good reason for that. We can't have a world where our food is sentient. Andrew. That would cause a deep revulsion and then maybe a revolution, and along the way a total surreal mental meltdown. Just imagine if your pet dog of many years suddenly started talking to you. Robin, our world would be completely changed by this knowledge, if we let it in. Andrew, how could we let it in? It's a profound ethical problem. Even going totally vegan wouldn't help. Robin, by the honorable harvest, by giving gratitude, by asking permission, by saying, I am going to consume you, but because you are my relative, I have to consume you in an honorable way and with restraint, and I have to give you something back in return for the fact that you gave me your life. This is the whole honorable harvest teaching. It starts with how we are taught to pick things from the world, 
berries, firewood, etc., but makes the case that these would be really great principles for an energy economy, too. We don't have to be rapacious. That is not who we necessarily are. We have built an economy that is relentless in its consumption and does not conform to natural law, but we don't have to do it that way. When you say the world is just stuff and is not sentient and they're just objects, you don't have a moral dilemma about how you treat the world. You're not eating your relatives. You're eating property. If we conceive of the world as an object, we don't have to take moral responsibility for it. Once you recognize the personhood of non-human animals and our kinship with all living things, then you have to consume differently. Our native traditional cultures are rich in teaching us how to do that. But can we scale it up? Andrew, can 8 billion, 10 billion people share in an honorable harvest? Robin, let's remember, people in urban settings aren't going to have traditional systems of reciprocity. Part of the problem of referring to the wisdom of reciprocity as traditional knowledge is that it makes it seem like the only way we can go is backwards, back to what we used to do. This is not the case. Our people survived because they adapted to contemporary circumstances. Humanity, too, must adapt. The core teaching is reciprocity. We just need to figure out how to make it work, at scale, in our world now. Andrew, so do you have hope? Robin. I honestly don't even know what hope means anymore. For me, I take guidance from Kathy Moore. The house is on fire. Your family is in it. What do you do? You put out the damn fire. You can hope all you want, but put out the fire. Don't stand outside debating about what kind of hose to use or whether you should use it or which fire department you should call. Just do what you have to do. I can't call it hope, but when I think about the future, especially as I become a grandmother, and when I think not only of my human grandchildren, but my frog grandchildren and my thrush grandchildren, putting out that fire is the best thing I can do. That's how I can be a good ancestor. It's not hope, but it's in the same neighborhood. The opposite of hope for me is that we will have such a broken system that its natural capacity to respond will be impaired. And so, along with putting out the fire, I'm committed to creating conditions under which regeneration is possible. The metaphor I use is building good soil. How do we do that? Well, preserving biodiversity is key. The question I ask myself, the question I invite my readers and the people I come across in my activist work to ask is, what do you love too much to lose? Once you have an answer, then pick it up. Because the only way the thing you love is going to get through these narrows is if you pick it up and carry it. We can't do everything. We can't respond to everything. I can sometimes make myself crazy by being reactive to this and reactive to that. Then I ask myself, what do you love too much to lose? And what are you going to do about it? How will you pick it up and carry it into the future? Andrew, that is an extraordinarily clarifying and motivating question. Robin, yes it is. And it motivates people by love and commitment as opposed to motivating people by fear, which has not worked. Nor has information worked. Information and fear have proved to be dead ends, strangely enough. I don't quite get it, but they're not enough. But where they have failed, love and story might succeed, and there we might find common ground. Andrew, what do you love too much to lose? What is so core to your being that you can't live without it, so essential that you will live and die for it? In the climate ribbon ritual, we ask people a similar question. 
And once they've named that for themselves, we ask them to make a specific commitment, to act with others, and also to change their own behavior. Robin, Kathleen Moore and I did a workshop together on this same theme. The metaphor that we used was a confluence of two great rivers. One river of what do you love too much to lose, and the another river of what am I going to do about it. The place of power is in the confluence of those two rivers. We had a huge graphic of these two rivers coming together and asked the participants to write their responses on both rivers. I'm glad to report that people had so much love for the world and so much fear at the threats against it that pretty quickly there was hardly any room left to write on the river of what do I love too much to lose. But the responses on the what am I going to do about it river were simply not up to the urgency of the task. Most fell along the lines of, I'm going to buy organic vegetables. Good for you. That's a start, but nowhere near enough. That was very disheartening. Andrew. Let's save the planet, said everyone, not knowing how. The weaker response on that second river speaks to many things. The overwhelming size and complexity of the problem. The relative poverty of our solutions imagination. Our general unfamiliarity with acting collectively, as well as the way capitalism and mainstream environmentalism have trained us to only think in terms of individual, citizen-as-consumer-type responses, etc. Even as policies at the scale of the problem, policies like the Green New Deal, gain political traction, it's still hard to formulate a what-am-I-going-to-do-about-it kind of statement. Robin, which is not to deny the power of that diffuse commitment and naming what you can because that is how culture shifts happen. And let me also share what one of my undergraduate students said to me. She's a promising, bright, committed young woman with whom I'm very close. When she was graduating and going off to do environmental work, I said to her that I was sorry that after all these years, it was just about the 45th anniversary of Earth Day, of my generation trying to fix things, that she had to still be fighting this fight. Her response was so kind and heartfelt, and I love it when the students are our teachers. She said, Dr. Kimmerer, don't you understand that this is the best possible time to be alive? which mystified me. How could an environmentalist say that? Well, she said, everything is hanging in the balance. What I do matters. I am so lucky to live in a time when my life matters and the choices that I make about where to put my energy matter. That gave me so much hope. Andrew. And this wasn't just a fantasy story she was telling herself to feel better, right? Robin. No. It's deep in her bones. She's living it out. She's an environmental activist and she's not alone. Any optimism I have comes from being blessed to be in the company of idealistic, brilliant, energetic students who are not downcast, who know how bad it is, and just roll up their sleeves and do what they need to do. It's hard work, but what else would you rather be doing? Andrew. In closing, let me send a big thank you to this student of yours, and her peers, and to you for everything you're doing. Robin. And you too. It's strengthening, isn't it? To know that we're all in this together? Andrew. It makes a huge difference, no matter what else happens. Robin. It does. It does. The fire kept going for a while after Dr. Kimmerer left the cabin. I sat there and pondered all that she'd shared. As with the previous interviews, I was reeling at the huge shift in consciousness she was offering. Plants are not just alive. They are intelligent. They are beings. They are persons, even. And not just plants. Mountains are beings. Shorelines are beings. A rock that's become a home for lichen is a being. 
and once we see our proper place in this living universe, we realize we are not lord over it all, but kin and co-beings amongst it all. At the political level, this paradigm shift takes away permission to exploit the world as if it was all stuff, says Robin. At the philosophical level, it literally changes what is. It changes what is alive. To truly grok that the beings we've treated as objects are actually more like holy people requires a kind of spiritual awakening that is still unfolding for me. In the meantime, it shows up in daily rituals and little shifts in my awareness and attention. On my hikes now, I notice myself giving a nod to the big trees on my path and a little bow to the boulders, a tiny wave to the beetles, a gentle salute to the hawk soaring overhead. As a semi-vegetarian, it has me confused. Before my meeting with Robin, when I'd eat, say, a lox and cream cheese bagel, I'd say, Thank you, Mr. Salmon. It had a quirky formality to it, but felt respectful. Now what do I say? Thank you, Mr. Salmon. Thank you, Mr. Red Onion. Mr. Tomato. Mr. Caper. Mr. Poppy Seed. Ms. Cow. There's milk in that cream cheese. Ms. Hen. There's eggs in that bagel batter. And how far do I go? There was some yeast involved, wasn't there? Nonetheless, it's helping me recognize with gratitude this wider circle of beings, including Mr. Deliman, mixed delivery person, and Ms. Farmer Lady, involved in my lunch. For all its awkwardness, my newfangled mealtime ritual is helping me to remember how to remember, as Robin might say. Her advice for how we get ourselves out of this mess is as revolutionary as it is charmingly obvious. Listen to the plants. They are carbon specialists, she said. They're already converted to a 100% solar economy, and they did it with beauty and generosity and flowers and berries. Her other advice, information isn't going to save us, but stories might. It's not what I expected to hear from a scientist, but after decades of science communication, that's her conclusion. If at our core we think we're bad players in the natural world, we will simply continue to play badly and eventually destroy our home. Instead, we must restory who we are. The last 500 years of human behavior is not human nature. For the vast majority of our species' history, we've been partners, not just takers. We can decide now to once again look at the world as a gift, not as property. She believes this is a choice we still have the power to make. Whether we'll do it in time, she doesn't know. When it came to the question of hope, she said, I honestly don't even know what hope means anymore. In its place, she takes courage from the history of her own people who survived a radical climate shift while being subjected to tremendous cultural loss. Instead of playing games with hope, she simply notes that, the house is on fire, your family is in it, what do you do? You put out the damn fire. To help us focus on putting out that fire and building good soil for regeneration, she shares stories, among them her people's prophecy of the seventh fire, in which humanity has to relearn the path forward and the allegory of the confluence of two great rivers in which the threat of loss propels action. These stories left me pondering, what kind of ancestor do I want to be? What do I love too much to lose? What must I pick up and carry into the future? Across the days after our meeting, I realized Dr. Kimmerer's questions weren't just thought experiments, but hard experiments. Nor were they the first I'd uncovered along my journey. Such experiments can jolt, or charm, or slowly scaffold us into new ways of thinking and being. Chapter 7. Experiments on the Verge 
And then the day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. Aeneas Nin Our climate predicament is not just a technical or political challenge. It's a spiritual one. For those of us already in the thick of its vicious impacts, how do we carry on? For those of us still waiting for it to arrive, how do we prepare for what we know is coming? To help guide us, here are a handful of exercises, experiments, meditations, and a philosophical provocation or two, along with one deep conversation about whether to bring children into the world. Use them to work the muscles of your imagination, stretch the sinews of your heart, and tickle the darkest bones you still consider funny bones. What do I love too much to lose? We are tied together in the single garment of destiny. Dr. Martin Luther King As I described earlier in the five stages of climate grief, starting in 2014, I was part of a team of artists, activists, and faith leaders that devised a process called the Climate Ribbon to help people move through their climate grief. According to the official website, theclimateribbon.org, the Climate Ribbon is an arts ritual to grieve what each of us stands to lose to climate chaos and affirm our solidarity as we unite to fight against it. Here are simple instructions for you and your community to make and share your own climate ribbons. Gather together in a circle with other members of your community. Reflect deeply on the question, what do you love and hope to never lose to climate chaos? Be specific and personal. What's at stake for you? Write your response on a ribbon. Add your name, hometown, and age. Share your ribbon by tying it onto a tree or passing it around your meeting circle. Exchange. Consider the many ribbons in the circle or tied to the tree. Find one that moves you deeply. Tie it to your wrist to signify your resolve to protect what this other person loves too much to lose. Whether friend or stranger, become the guardian of this person's story. Witness. Read each other's ribbons aloud. After each ribbon story is read, those assembled can together repeat, We are with you, addressing the person whose name is on the ribbon. As Robin and I realized during our interview, there is a strong connection between the climate ribbon ritual and the confluence of two rivers exercise she pioneered with Kathleen Dean Moore that follows here. So take your ribbons with you and step into the river. Step into the river. Gather together as a class, a circle of friends, or a community group. Create a large graphic of two rivers flowing into one. When you're ready to begin, say these words together. We are all standing right now at the confluence of two great rivers. One is the river of what do I love too much to lose. The other is the river of what am I going to do about it. Sit with these questions for a few minutes. When you're ready, write your responses. You can have multiple responses to each question, on slips of paper or post-it notes, and add them to the big graphic. If you or your group made climate ribbons in the previous heart experiment, you can add them here. Stand back and observe what everyone has shared. If you choose, you can acknowledge the commitment you just made by voicing it aloud and taking a step forward as if you were stepping into the water. Discuss in pairs or as a whole group. Line graph your way beyond progress. Everyone knows history moves in circles. The surprise is how big the circles are. Grail Marcus. This exercise invites participants to envision line graphs by which we can navigate our uncertain future. Please refer to the supplemental PDF that accompanies this audiobook. Let go of your iPhone. 
We expect our iPhones to always go up in number. That's just how the world works, right? I currently have an iPhone 5. When it craps out, I'll trade up to an iPhone 6 or 7 or 8 and get more storage features and pixels. But consider this. What if that's not how the world works anymore? What if, metaphorically speaking, those iPhone numbers are going to start going down? What if progress is an artifact of a very specific set of temporary historical conditions, particularly the abundance of cheap fossil fuel energy and the ability to treat the Earth as a production externality, which are now hitting hard limits? Faced with the choice between gracefully powering down our civilization or suffering a violent decline, how do we proceed? Well, besides sharing the pain equally, see climate justice principle of, it's all about expectation management. Imagine if in the future, when our iPhone 5 craps out, again, metaphorically speaking, our only option is to go to an iPhone 4 or earlier model. What would you do? Well, you'd take the iPhone 4 and find a way to be happy. And it really shouldn't be that hard. After all, it's like having all the computing power that existed in the entire world in the 1960s in a sleek, black glass rectangle in your pocket. If cars had experienced the same tech advances as computers, you'd now be able to drive from New York to Los Angeles in three seconds on a thimble full of gas. Well, you and your new iPhone 4 can still do that. But I know what you're thinking. The numbers are heading towards zero, and eventually you're going to lose or break your last iPhone 1, and there'll be nothing to upgrade to. Then what? Maybe you'll go outside and play, or stay inside and meditate or learn to paint. And who knows, it might be the best thing that ever happened to you. Now, not all of us are going to be able to pull this off. Most of us are not going to be happy that our iPhone upgrades are going backwards. But here's the thing. You don't have to be happy about it. All you have to do is find a way to not be so unhappy about it that you start voting iPhone deniers into office, or burn your neighbor's house down looking for an extra iPhone 6, or blame the Jews for the iPhone problem or round up all those iPhone-stealing Mexicans in camps. What does victory look like in an era of civilizational unraveling? Easy. Finding within us just enough humanity to not do any of those things because of an iPhone. Give pessimism a chance. Pessimism has a bad rap. We think of pessimists as sour Debbie Downers, lazy, prone to depression, even un-American. Pessimism is linked in the popular mind with a glasses-half-empty outlook and is assumed to be primarily a psychological disposition, and an unhealthy one at that. In actuality, however, pessimism has a long and provocative philosophical tradition, spanning everyone from Heraclitus to Camus, with much to offer our contemporary moment. In the 60s, we gave peace a chance. In the 21st century, we might want to give pessimism a chance. The German philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer, 1788-1860, is arguably the most notable proponent of extreme philosophical pessimism. We live, thought Schopenhauer, in the worst of all possible worlds, a world constantly on the brink of destruction. Schopenhauer believed that the worst is yet to come. He was clearly ahead of his time. For Schopenhauer, happiness is an illusion, and life is essentially suffering with no meaning or purpose. His goal was a bearable life. The key to making life bearable? Extremely low expectations. How might Schopenhauer counsel us if he were alive today? He might remind us that what ultimately plunges us into sadness and anger isn't disappointment, but hope.
He might therefore counsel us to break our hearts now before life or climate catastrophe does it for us at a moment of its own choosing. Remember, life is suffering, he might tell us. If you don't believe that yet, you soon will. Why not get ahead of the curve? Not only did Schopenhauer believe we were living in the worst of all possible worlds, he believed that existence itself was a mistake and it'd be preferable if humans did not exist at all. However, since we're already here, the next best thing we can do is strive, primarily through ascetic denial, but also artistic contemplation, for a state of being in which the world becomes nothing. This extreme pessimism is summed up with the contemporary flourish by one of Schopenhauer's modern-day avatars, Detective Rustin Cole, Matthew McConaughey's character on True Detective, Season 1, Episode 1. I believe human consciousness is a tragic misstep in human evolution. We became too self-aware. Nature created an aspect of nature separate from itself. We are creatures that should not exist by natural law. We are things that labor under the illusion of having a self. The secretion of sensory experience and feeling programmed with total assurance that we are each somebody, when in fact, everybody is nobody. I think the honorable thing for our species to do is deny our programming, stop reproducing, walk hand in hand into extinction, one last midnight brothers and sisters opting out of a raw deal. And the amazing thing is, if you want to take Detective Cole by the hand and walk into his one last midnight, you can, by joining the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement, an environmental movement calling for all people to abstain from reproduction to cause the gradual voluntary extinction of humankind. Yes, that's a thing. And in spite of being founded by a fellow who goes by the pseudonym Less Unite, it's a very real and serious thing, whose logic, as one observer put it, is as absurd as it's unassailable. Logic or not, with human population still rising exponentially and scheduled to top 10 billion by 2050, the movement is not catching on. So what do you do in the meantime? Schopenhauer has a few practical suggestions for making life bearable. Live in the present and try to make it as painless as possible. Set limits on anger, desires, wealth, and power. Limitations lead to something like happiness. Accept misfortunes. Only obsess about them if we're responsible. Which all sounds pretty level-headed and doable, except that the last bit of advice, don't dwell on misfortune unless we're responsible, is a bit tricky to navigate these days given the epic misfortune, climate change, eco-catastrophe, mass extinction, etc., our species is currently visiting upon the planet and upon ourselves. If you think the denialists and lords of carbon and our corrupt politicians are the only ones responsible, well then, live in the present and set your sights on something like happiness. However, if you think you too, at least to some degree, are also responsible, well, time to face the music. Not only are you living in the worst of all possible worlds, with an even worster world yet to come, but according to extreme philosophical pessimism, you're morally obligated to think about it. A lot. What would Marcus Aurelius do? In contemporary parlance, a Stoic is a person who shows strength in misfortune. We've got to be Stoic about it, someone might say when a family member gets cancer, or when a breadwinner loses their job. It's a spur to put on a brave face. Keep it together. Tough it out. Stoicism has the aura of squareness, of stolidness, of some upright someone, often a male someone, with clenched jaw, bearing something with courage and grace. In contemporary culture, he's being so stoic about it, carries a whiff of suspicion. 
we wonder if there's a bit of pathology involved, a joyless fixation on this thing that must be born. We wonder whether they haven't been quite creative enough to avoid it, or flexible enough to finesse it, or had enough therapy to get past it. But given the darkness on our collective horizon, we would do well to set these prejudices aside and appreciate Stoicism in its more classical, philosophic sense. Philosophical Stoicism understands free will as the voluntary accommodation to what is in any case inevitable. Ethically, it holds us to the triple virtues of objective judgment, unselfish action, and willing acceptance of all external events. Teleologically, it suggests we view history as a series of cosmic cycles, each ending in a periodic conflagration, ekpiresis. Metaphysically, it asks us to accept the idea, to borrow a phrase from Alexander Pope, that whatever is, is right, especially misfortune and death. And given the unfortunate circumstances of our historical moment, can you say ekpiresis? And the likelihood of a major uptick in misfortune and death in the years ahead, Stoicism deserves our renewed attention, if not a grand revival. Marcus Aurelius is arguably history's preeminent Stoic. Emperor of Rome from 161 to 180 CE, he was considered one of the good emperors and an exemplar of Plato's ideal of the philosopher king. While navigating court intrigue, battling German barbarians, preventing civil war, and enduring personal tragedies, he kept counsel with himself via a series of writings never meant for publication. They have come down to us as the Meditations, a fancy title added later to this grab bag of miscellaneous reflections, spiritual exercises, and notes to self. The philosophic equivalent of phone doctor RE Appointment Tuesday, as one commentator put it, which is nonetheless considered one of the most concise and affecting summations of Stoic philosophy. Among its pages are many snippets of wisdom strikingly relevant for us and our climate predicament. Cherry-picking through the meditations turns up the following advice. Hear unwelcome truths. Write off your hopes. Be optimistic in adversity. Always be self-reliant. Remember that the wrongdoer only does wrong because he thinks it is right. Be kind. Do not mistrust the future. Accept death in a cheerful spirit. Take up your post like a soldier who needs no oath or witness. Do your best trusting that all is for the best. Threaded throughout is the core commandment Amor Fati, love your fate. What is unique to the good man, Marcus Aurelius asks, and answers, to welcome with affection what is sent by fate. With affection, he says. Affection? In our era of approaching catastrophe, an extremely daunting task. How do we go about it? One answer might be found in the philosophy of Hozo, the stoicish life-way of the dying people. In Sacred Clowns, the first in a series of Tony Hillerman novels set in the Four Corners region of America's Southwest, fictional Navajo detective Jim Chi explains it like so. This business of Hozo. I'll use an example. Terrible drought, crops dead, sheep dying, spring dried out. No water. The Hopi, or the Christian, maybe the Muslim, they pray for rain. The Navajo has the proper ceremony done to restore himself to harmony with the drought. You see what I mean? The system is designed to recognize what's beyond human power to change, and then to change the human's attitude to be content with the inevitable. Hoso, writes Resilience.org blogger Alan Wardis, encompasses the Navajo idea of living in harmony with all that is, of being in right relationship with the world. Hoso advises that adjusting ourselves to reality is a much easier, 
less stressful, and more balanced way to live than trying to bully the world back in line with our program. Hoso does not counsel capitulation or surrender. It counsels creative, resilient, harmonious adaptation. Jim Chi and Marcus Aurelius are asking us to do more than just pull ourselves together here, more than just get through the bad times and survive. They are asking us to face our grand misfortunes with grace, equanimity, and courage. Where others command us to keep hope alive, Jim Chi and Marcus Aurelius suggest instead that we set hope aside and find a way to love whatever life throws at us, no matter how terrible, climate catastrophe included. Homo not so sapien. Even the most foundational stories can be changed. Rebecca Solnit. As the apex predator in the food chain, and the only species currently able to write down words, we got to name all the species, including our own. We are Homo sapiens, the sole surviving, non-extinct member of the genus Homo. Or, so one member of our species, Carolus Linnaeus, the father of modern biological classification, named us in 1758. In Latin, Homo sapien means wise man. Naming ourselves, an act of nepotism right with all the self-dealing and virtue pandering you might expect, is a perilous art. And it's possible we've gotten it dead wrong. Fortunately, our official name has not prevented various observers of the scene from coining unofficial ones. Aristotle thought of us as homo politicus, political man. Our essential quality, what most fundamentally distinguished us from our brother and sister animals, was our ability to form complex societies. For Marx, we were homo faber, tool-making man, man as producer, as creator. For cultural historian Johann Huizinga, it was homo ludens, game-playing man. Whether love, war, poker, or theoretical physics, we're the species that loves to play, whose very existence is the game of life. For novelist T.H. White, it was Homo ferox, ferocious man, the species that all other species are afraid of, including our own. Each of these stories elevates one aspect of human existence as definitional, and in so doing, provides an essential insight into who we are. Each perspective is also a product of its time. For Aristotle, the political flourishing and chaos of the Greek city-states. For Marx, the extraordinary explosion of human productivity during the Industrial Revolution. For T.H. White, the cruel fox hunts and even crueler world wars of 20th century Britain. What of our time? In the teeth of a self-inflicted mass extinction event, what does our time teach us about the essential nature of humanity? Maybe it's more accurate to think of ourselves as homo not-so-sapiens. Unwise man. We might be clever, boundlessly clever, but you'd be hard-pressed to call any species that managed to work themselves into the self-defeating predicament we've worked ourselves into wise. What name would you give our species? What story of us would you tell? Maybe Homo myopicus, short-sighted man, man whose actions and wants have consequences far beyond our ability or willingness to see? Or Homo malafide, bad-faith man, man who refuses to act on what he knows to be true. Or possibly, homo perdita, lost man, man who has cut himself off from his own surrounds, from his brother and sister species and the rhythms of the cosmos, even from his own nature. This man is a stranger to himself and his world. Or homo deus, man with the power of gods, 
to split atoms and undo hundreds of millions of years of geologic time in a cosmic second, who now, to paraphrase Stuart Brand, had better get good at it. Or Homo uber complicaticus, overly complicated man, the creature who can, and everything else being equal will, make things more complicated than it can handle. Or even Homo post sapiens, the creature that, either by despoiling its own habitat or inventing its own AI-enhanced superior, is determined to extinguish itself. There's certainly many worse things you could say. Homo cullis, asshole man. Homo somebody else's problemicus. Homo we really fucked this upicus. And to a degree, it's all true. We are irresponsible, destructive assholes. We are the lost, myopic, overly complicated creature who, wielding godlike powers yet unable to operate in good faith, is destroying itself and the world. Can we imagine ourselves differently? Can we put some sapiens back into Homo sapiens and earn those stripes? Instead of Homo cullis, asshole man, why not Homo superculus, man blessed with wonder? The creature who looks around at the world and finds it so super cool that we treat it with care and respect. Instead of Homo somebody else's problemicus, can we become Homo I broke it so I'll fix iticus? Man who takes responsibility for his own mess? Who tries to heal the world he has broken? Instead of Homo we really fucked this upicus, can we evolve into Homo let's unfuck this upicus and fast? In the end, all we have is our name. Vent your contradictions. When two aspects of a situation are both true yet at odds with each other, you've got a contradiction. Our climate predicament is full of them, and throughout this book, we've seen many. Our climate news is impossible, and it must be told and heard. We're all in this together, and we're not all in this together. The Green New Deal must happen, ASAP, and a just transition of livelihoods and infrastructure cannot be rushed. That last one made a brief appearance earlier in the book. This big tension which many organizers fighting for a Green New Deal have encountered was crystallized into a clear two-sided contradiction by a project called Vent Diagrams, which adapts the Venn Diagram form to name and navigate the many contradictions we're facing, climate and otherwise. Refer to the supplemental PDF that accompanies this audiobook for some of my favorites. Co-creators Rachel Shragas and Elena E.M. Eisenmarkowitz playfully refer to these visual stratagems as vent diagrams because they capture an ultimately unresolvable tension. Making vent diagrams, they say, helps us recognize and reckon with contradictions and keep imagining and acting from the intersections and overlaps. Venting is an outlet for our anger, frustration, despair, an emotional release of stale binary thinking in order to open up a trickle of fresh ideas and air. They deliberately don't label the overlapping middle section in order to imagine what's actually in the overlap every time we see and feel the vent. If you have an unresolvable tension you want to get off your chest, and at the end of the world, who doesn't? You might want to give this approach a try. There are many more examples of vents and tips on making vents, both alone and in community with others, on the Vent Diagrams website, ventdiagrams.com. As the co-creators remind us, none of these contradictions are going to be solved, and we cannot allow them to keep us from moving forward. Let the venting begin. Imagine your utopia. Do you ever feel like the sheer reality of what is prevents you from imagining what could be? Welcome to the tyranny of the possible, 
where the weight of the past and our worst assumptions about the future prevent us from pursuing or even imagining or even feeling like we deserve a better world. So, channeling the utopian impulse of visionary fiction, shout out to Adrienne Marie Brown here, let's break that trance. Instead of doomsplaining or wallowing in the reflexive impotence of capitalist realism, let's tell a different story. Let's imagine a radically better world. But wait. No, you wait. Enough about how everything is already too fucked up to undo. Enough about how nothing good is possible anymore. Just for a moment, forget about how all the carbon that's already in the atmosphere has already crushed our beautiful dreams. Just forget the fact that we really needed to start building that bridge to the future 30 years ago. Forget how the evil nexus of fossil fuel lobbyists, gerrymandering, voter suppression, and a Senate full of conservative old white guys is going to block all meaningful progress at the federal level. Forget also about exactly how we're going to pay for all the nice things we need. Just set aside all that for a moment. Just forget it. Instead, let's imagine what's possible, especially if it's impossible, because then, and only then, might it ever actually become possible. But that's not shh. Remember, utopia is not a blueprint. It's not a step-by-step -step plan. It's not even a strategy. It's an act of imagination and an act of will. So let's give our imagination some breathing room. What world do you really want? What is your utopia? In my utopia, art is free and artists are paid. But wait, how? Dude, just Google Universal Basic Income or ask Canada's National Film Board. They're already halfway there. In my utopia, traffic fines are prorated according to the net wealth of the driver. Finland is actually already doing this. In 2004, the 27-year-old heir to a Finnish sausage fortune was fined $204,000 for driving the equivalent of 50 miles per hour in a 25-mile-per-hour zone. In my utopia, there are no slumlords, but if there were, and they broke the law, they'd be sentenced to live in their own bug-infested, terminally unrepaired hovels. In 1985, a Los Angeles municipal judge did just that. In my utopia, rivers and ecosystems have legal personhood. And Ecuador, New Zealand, and yes, Toledo, Ohio are already starting to make this happen. In my utopia, the Green New Deal transforms America into a world leader in clean, green tech, making West Virginia and Detroit and everywhere else great again for real. In my utopia, instead of trying to colonize Mars, we use that same bold visionary techno-inventiveness to save the one planet we already have by like, oh, I don't know, building, say, an expanse of solar arrays in the Sahara so massive, they'll not only provide clean green energy to the whole continent of Africa, but in the shade of their panels, help the desert bloom again. Yep, it turns out some folks have a plan to do just that. Climate catastrophe versus Wakanda. Game on. What's your utopia? Hold a group meeting in the halfway house of your soul. Most of us tell ourselves multiple different stories each day. Naomi Klein In this time of unraveling, we feel anxious and unmoored. There's something uncanny, eerie, about it all that we can't quite put our finger on. We nervously sample perspectives, try on different outlooks, hoping something fits. This schizophrenia makes sense. The depth of our civilizational crisis has dropped us into unknown territory. We don't know quite what to think or feel or by what scheme to act. Chuck Collins, who we met in the Sartre is my whitewater rafting guide chapter, describes a conversation that often happens inside his head. 
two voices bargaining over whether the human species deserves to survive or whether Gaia would be better off without us. So far, he's decided he likes people too much to abandon us to our worst natures. Being considerably more neurotic than Chuck, my head is less a two-way debate than a halfway house anyone can crash in. I might start the day drafting a boosterish, we-can-still-hashtag-act-in-time email. Maybe later that morning, after reading a particularly pessimistic report on the likelihood of frozen ocean floor methane being released into the atmosphere, I might slide into a, but, but, it's not over till it's over, right? Bargaining with the future. Then, say, if a midday errand takes me past the hundreds of chainsawed tree stumps in my local park, and one too many just-built luxury condos and glittering midtown Manhattan boutiques full of unnecessary things, while the decaying subway breaks down a couple of times, plus I'm still thinking about that ocean floor methane, I might snap into darker and more bitter thoughts. Wash us away. Let's start again from first principles. Nothing else will do. Finally, towards the end of the day, refining my equilibrium, I might be telling myself, I've just got to do everything I can. I've just got to do everything I can. And I'll believe it, and follow my own advice, and get back to work. Whatever the sequence, all these attitudes have a call upon my heart. They all conspire to set my moral compass. Each feels real and true enough when it's the one driving. Each impacts the decisions I make, where I direct my life force, how I show up in the world. You must be an extremely complex person, someone once said to psychologist M. R. Davies, who jauntily replied, No, actually, I'm four or five different people, and they're all quite simple. Or, as a friend of mine put it, a person is a crowded place. Indeed. So rather than try to press-gang our psyche into line, let's pull together a group meeting in the halfway house of our soul, tack one of those chore wheels up on the wall, crack open a few beers, and let everyone say their piece. All who show up are us, but let's not expect us to agree with each other. Each voice is a split self trying to reckon, or refusing to reckon, with our existential crisis in their own particular way. Some will likely whisper, others shout, some have been waiting many years to speak, others may have crash-landed in our soul just yesterday, all have something to say, and all have a role to play. First step, call the meeting. Second step, Try to get all yourselves to fill out that chore wheel. Are you a yes or a no kind of person? Start where you are. Use what you have. Do what you can. Arthur Ashe Are you a yes kind of person? Or are you a no kind of person? Whichever you are, the climate justice movement needs you. Because to create a just and livable world, we have to both stop some bad stuff and build some good stuff. Use the flowchart included in the supplemental PDF that accompanies this audiobook to get started now. Let the eyes of the future bore uncomfortably into your skull. The eyes of the future are looking back at us, and they are praying for us to see beyond our own time. Terry Tempest Williams Research shows that how we think of our legacy can be one of the most effective motivators of helping behavior. A series of studies conducted at Columbia University over a two-year period indicates that being asked to consciously think about the way they would be remembered by future generations caused people to act in more environmentally friendly ways. Unfortunately, most of us don't have researchers in lab coats asking us these helpful behavior-modifying questions. Nor do we have anyone yet to be born future centuries from now conveniently on hand to look us in the eye and hold us to account. Instead, we need to exercise our own moral imagination and do that for ourselves. But how? 
as with most things of this kind, via an unpleasant and emotionally overwrought creative visualization exercise. Luckily, you can do this in the privacy of your own home. Take a moment to quiet your mind. Breathe. Close your eyes. Damn. Open your eyes. Find the goddamn thing making that buzzing noise. Turn it off. Since you're up, hunt down all the devices you own that might possibly buzz in the next 30 minutes and turn them off. If you have a roommate or a partner, turn theirs off too. Okay, sit back down. Close your eyes. Breathe. Look into the future. Bringing along what you know of science fiction, of climate projections, of human possibility, go one, two, three, five, as far as seven generations into the future. Notice your surroundings. There are real people there. Let them look at you. Feel the eyes of the future looking back at you. Feel the prayers and pleadings of those eyes boring hard into your skull. What are they trying to tell you? Should I bring kids into such a world? You've thrown the worst fear that could ever be hurled, fear to bring children, into the world. Bob Dylan, Masters of War The decision to have a kid used to be basically a question of, am I with the right partner? Can I afford this right now? Do I have it in me to be a good mom or dad? How many diapers am I willing to change so I don't have to die alone? Now, thanks to climate change, on top of these questions, we have even weightier ones. Is it right to bring a child into such a world? Will she be able to live out her full life given the catastrophes that await? Am I being selfish to add yet another outsized American carbon footprint onto an already overburdened ecosystem? My mom once said to me, we had you boys when Kennedy was president. Things were still hopeful. If I'd known how it was all going to go, we probably wouldn't have. I was a bit shocked. Mom, aren't you supposed to, once you've had me at least, not be able to imagine your life without me? I was pretty glad to have been had, of course, and glad my mom didn't realize how terrible the world was going to get until it was too late. Victory! I exist! But I could see her point, and she was only worrying about nuclear war something that might not even happen. And now, here we are, five decades later, and nuclear war still hasn't happened, but we know some kind of climate catastrophe will. I've never hankered for kids. That instinct just never kicked in. I can never decide whether this makes me lucky or unlucky. But maybe I'm doing myself and them a favor. Maybe I'm protecting all of us from a future that is only dark and darkening further. For me, there's a year, 2050 that floats out there in the future, a membrane between the bearable and the unbearable. In 2050, I'll be 86. Both my parents died in their 86th year. This year becomes a strange boundary, marking a certain limit to my emotional exposure. When I hear how the second half of the 21st century is likely to go, I think, at least I won't be around for that. Am I proud of this feeling? No, it feels like a failure of my soul. And yet, it gives me a certain comfort, a certain distance from the worst of it. On the other side of 2050, nothing can happen to me. These emotional calculations are, of course, kind of insane. And this attempt to limit my emotional exposure falls apart very quickly. I have many dear friends 20 years or more younger than me. That gets us to 2070. I'm an honorary uncle to two lovely young humans, now 19 and 18 years old which brings us to 2085. And then there's my affection for humanity in general, which gets us to, well, forever. I'm along for the whole ride. 
Having kids used to be an optimistic move, a vote of confidence in the future, a way to sail our hopes and dreams forward. I don't know how much my pessimism about the future held me back from having kids, but maybe being childless allows me to see more clearly. I can more objectively weigh out my hopes and hopelessnesses and see where I land, which is helpful, I suppose, when writing a book about the end of the world. But what about people who, civilizational collapse trajectories aside, really want to have kids or, whoops, just got pregnant without quite planning or meaning to? A few months after she learned she was pregnant with her first, and to date only, child, I spoke with Meg McIntyre, then in her mid-thirties, her dilemmas were fierce and riven with paradox. Having a child is the most hopeful thing you can do, but climate chaos has scrambled that calculation, made it all weird. Now there's hope for us, but not for them. My life in the next forty years will be sort of okay, but what about hers? But if I really thought the world was going to be ruined in my daughter's lifetime, then why the fuck would I be having a kid? If I actually feel as defeated as I think I do, then I wouldn't be having a kid. So there's got to be some kind of hope. And I don't want my daughter to think I'm a defeated nihilist. That doesn't feel like good behavior to model. I'm choosing to see my decision to have a kid as a hopeful maneuver by me, on myself. I'm under more obligation now to seek out that hope, manufacture it, cultivate it. But climate change really challenges that. Because we're really close to the point where there's no hope anymore. Meg saw her decision to have a kid as a hopeful maneuver by her, on herself. Paul Kingsnorth, father of two young children, has a simpler explanation. We're animals, he says. I love my wife and I wanted to have kids with her. After a little more reflection, he added, if people were all acting rationally, we probably wouldn't have children. We wouldn't fly in planes. We wouldn't have any problems. His conclusion? It's another one of those paradoxes you hold. In This Changes Everything, Naomi Klein movingly documents her own struggles to conceive a child alongside the severe impacts that our reliance on fossil fuels is having on the planet's reproductive systems. In species after species, climate change is creating pressures that are depriving life forms of their most essential survival tool, the ability to create new life and carry on their genetic lines. Instead, the spark of life is being extinguished, snuffed out in its earliest, most fragile days, in the egg, in the embryo, in the nest, in the den. Leatherneck sea turtles, to take just one heartbreaking example, have survived so much, says Klein. They've been around for 150 million years, making them the longest surviving marine animals on Earth. They've even survived the asteroid that likely wiped out the dinosaurs. But, says Klein, it's not clear that they're going to be able to survive even incremental climate change. These sea turtles bury their eggs in the sand, but even with just one degree Celsius rise, the eggs are not hatching. They're cooking in the sand. In the light of this gradual collapse of the planet's reproductive systems, Klein proposes the right to regenerate as a new fundamental right. She describes climate change as intergenerational theft. Kids, she says, are growing up in a mass extinction, robbed of the cacophonous company of being surrounded by so many fast-disappearing life forms. What a lonely world we are creating. Naomi herself held off having kids until she was up pretty late. Part of what held her back was not being able to imagine anything other than a dystopian future. Seeing signs of hope in the world, and particularly in the social movements around her, helped her decide to become a parent. However, she cautions against the idea that people with kids care about the future more. 
Some of the most caring people that I know don't have kids, she says. In a 2012 interview with The Phoenix, speaking of the carbon industrial complex and the mess that had been made of this world and the role it played in holding her back for so long from having a kid, she said, I'd rather fight like hell than to give these evil motherfuckers the power to extinguish the desire to create life. We don't all have to do it, but if we want to do it, if we want to be part of this amazing process that we share in common with all living things, I'm certainly not going to give these guys the power to take that away from me. Mass extinctions, carbon footprints, hopeful maneuvers on ourselves. Trying to decide whether to have a kid at the end of this world is its own very particular kind of crazy. Luckily, there's an organization that can help us puzzle our way through it. Conceivable Future http colon forward slash forward slash conceivablefuture.org a women-led network telling the stories of climate change's impact on our reproductive lives in order to build moral power for climate action conceivable future has collected almost a hundred testimonies mostly from women in their 20s and 30s while co-founder josephine ferrarelli is constantly surprised at how subjective each person's process is she identifies two main groupings those worried about the future safety of their child, and those feeling guilty about how their kid is going to contribute to the problem. Many are concerned about both. Josephine herself, childless and in her mid-thirties, had never dreamed about a wedding or marriage, never pictured a family or child or any particular outcome, and believes this was largely due to the climate crisis and her awareness of how rotten a future might be in store. If I don't have a kid, she reasoned, it feels like I'm somehow not accountable to the future in the same way. I won't have to feel as guilty about my inability to forestall the worst in the future. Many concerned about their child's future carbon footprint consider adoption, including international adoption. But things get complicated fast. On average, the carbon footprint of a kid growing up in Somalia is 150 times less than a kid growing up in the USA. In Vietnam, it's six times less. Haunted by this, one woman very consciously opted for a domestic adoption. That way, she reasoned, the child's carbon footprint would stay the same. She wouldn't be taking a low-carbon baby and giving it a high-carbon upbringing. Another woman, keen enough to have a child that she was using fertility treatments to help the process along, was nonetheless struggling over the terrible future she feared she was sentencing her child to. In the end, she concluded, if we have a baby, I will do so knowing, though maybe not really believing, that a life can be any length. The stakes are higher for a lot of people of color in the U.S. Typically, you're already up against a lot of external forces that are not supportive. An African-American woman, mid-30s and leaning towards no, came to one of the organization's Chicago gatherings. Her dilemma, is it better for the environment if I don't have a kid? Yes. Is it better for the black community if I don't have a kid? No. With high rates of incarceration and death by gun violence in the black community and the historical trauma of slavery and forced sterilization never far away, the pressures were acute in both directions. For her, it was a real balancing act. Meanwhile, in the UK, led by singer Blythe Pepino, hundreds of women and men who've chosen not to have children because of looming climate breakdown are taking their difficult personal decisions and making them strategically political, by declaring a hashtag birth strike. It's a very hopeful act, says Papino. We're not just making this decision, hiding it, and giving it up. Instead, she sees it as a way to channel her grief into something more active and regenerative and hopeful.
Many of the women going on hashtag birth strike or testifying with conceivable future are choosing not to have kids because of a looming sense of ecological catastrophe. But what if you think the apocalypse is coming and you already have kids? In our meeting, Tim DeChristopher described more than a few parents he knows who take the attitude, I have kids, so I can't even let myself think about this. He shared the story of two of his close colleagues, both fathers, who were going through a period of climate-induced soul-searching and despair. Their wives insisted that they go see a psychiatrist. Their families pressured them into taking antidepressants, according to Tim. There's this sense that our child will catch this. At this formative age, it will somehow instill itself into our child. Maybe there's legitimacy to that. For me, that's one of the real wild cards. When do people reach the age of maturity? At what age are they ready to grapple with the complexity of our situation? The open hopelessness of it. I'm very opposed to the climate movement treating everybody like children. Like we're only capable of simplistic, either-or, black-and-white thinking. However, I'm not necessarily opposed to treating children like children. One father I spoke with took a more pragmatic approach. I have kids, and this is the world they live in. So, I'm going to raise them. One, amidst social movements so they can experience for themselves how people power can change things for the better. Two, with hard skills for adapting and surviving. And three, to always remember that poisoned rivers and mass extinctions are not normal. When I spoke to Gopal about why he had kids, he said, First, not having children is a terrible strategy for the survival of the species. And second, that climate justice is a multi-generational fight, and his whole family is in it together. My younger kid is a serious action junkie. I can't keep him away. And when he's at the action, it's a signifier that I think it's right action. If I did not think it was right action, I would not bring my children. I believe so much in what I'm doing that my children are here. If you decide to throw tear gas at my children, you're picking an entirely different fight with me. That is not acceptable, and I will come after you. The platform upon which I stand has a generational logic. It's a logic of transition that is about preparing ourselves and our children and our families for what's coming by what we do today. Gopal's whole family is like a multi-generational, non-violent action squad fighting together for a livable future. The parents in Tim's story, in an attempt to psychically quarantine off hopelessness, are telling their spouses, we have kids, we can't afford to even think about any of this. And yet, it was hope, specifically signs of hope in the world around her, that helped Naomi Klein decide to become a parent. Meanwhile, Josephine opens herself to the possibility of having children by letting go of any expectation that they will survive the future she's involuntarily signing them up for. It seems there's as many paths through this dilemma as there are people confronting it. Realizing she was about to bring a kid into a future she had very little faith in, Meg decided to treat her pregnancy as a hopeful maneuver on herself. But you don't have to get pregnant to do that. All of us, childless me included, are anxiously eyeballing that same future, entwined in our shared human story, trying every day to pull a hopeful maneuver on ourselves. Chapter 8. Another End of the World is Possible Catastrophe is not a matter of fate. It's a matter of choice. George Mombio Hope and Hopelessness Both when I try to pull a hopeful maneuver on myself, it often requires one of those chaotic group meetings in the halfway house of my soul. Some of myself's need a reminder, 
others need to be coaxed out of their rooms. But eventually, a quorum of us circle up in the kitchen along with a motley crew of role models. We make some popcorn and talk it all out. Activist me calls the meeting to order, going through the agenda. He tries his level best to keep everyone focused on fixing the mess we've made. Stoic me trudges up from his basement room, pours shots of whiskey all around, and suggests we welcome with affection what is sent by fate. Jaded nihilist me just sits there, certain of the one burnt-to-the-ground future he can already smell. Utopian me sketches out dreams of what could be, or at least could have been, and holds them up for all to see, while extreme philosophical pessimist me anxiously hums the ode to joy, self-soothing his way through this worst of all possible house meetings. Am I depressed? Yes, so depressed. I have every reason to be. The facts of our situation are overwhelmingly depressing. Am I angry? Hell yes. Fighting mad angry. Due to greed and short-sightedness, we are visiting a horrific ecocide upon ourselves and all of life. Do I grieve? Yes. Am I disgusted? Yes. Do I swear a lot? Yes. Do I wax philosophical? Yes. How could I not at such a cusp moment in human history? If the meeting goes well, my philosophizing balances me. My grief grounds me. My anger empowers me. My depression, in a marginally self-harming way, protects me. And my discipline refocuses me. Not all of me's fill out the chore wheel, but many of me do. Like the twelve-year-old girl in Disney's Inside Out, I need the gaggle of all my humunculi in order to feel the full truth of myself and the world. Likewise, to find my way through the end of the world these last eight years, I've needed the wisdom of all the people I've met along this journey. If it's indeed a quest I've been on, these remarkable hopers and doomers have been my spirit guides. And what sorrowful yet fierce counsel they have given. A doomer scientist stepped me through the near-term extinction of humanity over Skype, and yet Guy McPherson, even in the face of certain extinction, counsels honesty, kindness, and solidarity. An ex-con divinity student suggested I cultivate death eyes to face the terrible truth of our predicament. Yet Tim to Christopher, knowing it's too late to save the world, is still fighting hard for the new world he imagines rising upon its ashes. An eco-Buddhist workshop leader told me and all assembled to give up hope. And yet, even as Meg Wheatley suggests we give in, she encourages us not to give up. A grassroots strategist admitted we were in for collapse, yet in every shock and slide of that collapse, Gopal Dianeni sees an opportunity for organized people to wrest back control of our future from an ecocidal system. A beloved wisdom teacher and systems theorist was unwilling to say whether we were hospice workers at the end of the world or midwives of a new one. And yet Joanna Macy gamely suggests we prepare for both. A collapse psychologist who gives us humans two, no more than three generations tops, proposed I look at the whole story of our species' demise through tragic eyes. Even so, Jamie Hecht, ever the therapist, tries to help collapse-aware people find a way to be happy at the end of the world. A visionary community organizer described her Detroit home as already post-apocalyptic. Yet Adrienne Marie Brown, even though she's convinced our civilization is in for a hard fall, helps people across the country build up their trust and skills so that our communities can fall together, not apart. A celebrated indigenous botanist shared her moral terror of the moment we finally realize that the plants we've been manhandling as objects are actually holy people. But by then, it's too late to repair the world. And yet, here is Robin Wall Kimmerer, 
grief struck into her bones by the extinction crisis, making a stand at the confluence of two great rivers. What do I love too much to lose, and what am I going to do about it? I begun this quest a hopeless hopeful schizophrenic, and now, eight meetings, thousands of miles, and two flowcharts later, here I am at the end, still anguished by how much we're likely to lose, but still striving to lose as little of it as possible. In the end, I am an optimist and pessimist both. Many homes across Canada have something called a tickle trunk, a chest full of dress-up items, hats and capes and boas and fake mustaches and the like. These days, if you open my tickle trunk, it's the existential kind, and dig down past the hoodie of despair and the hopium-tinted glasses and the mustache of doom, you'll find a cape of tragic optimism and a pair of not-at-all-rosy can-do pessimism goggles. Whatever tint is the opposite of rosy, that's what color the goggles of can-do pessimism are. They let me see, in plain, brutal terms, how fucked we are. They also focus me on where I can help. When I put them on, I become stubborn and purposeful. My eyes narrow in on the prize. Our task, Antonio Gromsky said, is to live without illusions, without becoming disillusioned. These goggles help me do that. And when I'm brokenhearted, but still want to attempt large things, I reach for my cape of tragic optimism. I put it on and feel, well, brokenhearted, but now in a more soulful and empowered way. It will all end badly, I tell myself, but not quite as badly as it would if I did not act. So let me do something. While expecting nothing. While still longing for everything. And I call up that grand longing for everything wrong to be set right and everything broken to be set whole, to help me act in as large and open-hearted a way as I can, even in the face of inevitable failure. Putting on my cape, I feel a commitment to truth, beauty, solidarity, and yes, strategic thinking. Poet Gary Snyder was once asked, why bother to save the planet? He replied with a grin, because it's a matter of character and a matter of style. That spirit, and on a good day, that grin, flow through me when I put on these goggles and cape and step out into the world. Tragic optimism and can-do pessimism are costumes in my existential tickle trunk, tools in my strategic philosophical toolbox. I pull one or the other out depending on the task before me, or the particular crisis of faith that's got me by the throat. To some folks, these approaches will come across as another variation on climate defeatism. But they are neither defeatist nor unique to our climate predicament. Writing about a different time, the 19th and 20th centuries, and a different fight, class struggles in Brazil, the novelist Joao Ubaldo Ribeiro walks a similar path. We don't have enough weapons to overcome oppression and never will, although it's our duty to fight whenever our survival and our honor have to be defended. This is a fight that will go on across centuries because our enemies are very strong. The bullwhip still prevails. Poverty increases. Nothing has changed. But we are making this revolution of small and great battles, some bloody, some muffled, some secret. And this is what I do. So let us go forth. Be goggled, encaped, clothed in whatever power garments each of us can pull from our existential tickle trunks, and make all the difference we can. Eyotwip. Une autre fin du monde es possible. Graffito, France, 2017. There is no alternative. That's what the fathers of global capitalism have wanted us to believe ever since the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991. It's neoliberalism 
or nothing, as far as the eye can see. The world as it is, we're told, is the only world that can be. This shining world of sound fiscal policy, enforced austerity, shrewd privatization, gutted public services, wide-open deregulation, ecological ruin, and global market efficiencies, where everything sacred, from our water to our democracy to our precious cultural treasures, is for sale to the highest bidder, is not only inevitable, but right and good. Beginning, however, with the Zapatista revolt in 1994, a countercry went up. Another world is possible. Another world that puts the earth and its people before corporate profits. A world where local communities and small countries have the right to make their own mistakes. A world that cultivates the commons as a treasury for all. This other, better world is not only possible, sang Arundhati Roy. She is on her way. On a quiet day, I can hear her breathing. And it's pretty much been AWIP v. Tina ever since. What about me? On some of those quiet days, via books, journalism, and the prankish arts, I've tried to help that other world to breathe. On some of the louder days, in Seattle in 99, say, or Occupy Wall Street in 11, I've been one of the ones in the street shouting, AWIP, 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 until the last few years, that is, when I began the slow, heartbreaking process of reckoning with our climate future, which slid me into a deep state of NWIP. No world is possible. By day, it was still AWIP, AWIP. But by night, I'd read the Dark Mountain blog and skulk around eco-collapse user groups. My AWIP, NWIP schizophrenia couldn't last. And nor did it actually make much sense. Because one way or the other, we're going to have a world, even if it's a badly collapsed world. So where did that leave me? The AWIP v. Tina battle lines were still there. Only now, whether either side acknowledges it or not, we're actually fighting over how the world is going to end. And I am in this fight 100%, shouting the decidedly more difficult to get behind and pronounced acronym, AOTWIP. Another end of the world is possible. Why fight over this, you might ask? Because how the world ends matters. In fact, it might be the most important fight we humans will ever fight. Is it going to end in an ugly dog-eat-dog -dog Terminator capitalism on a badly collapsed world? or some kind of wiser, kinder, shared simplicity on an only partly collapsed world. As Gopal Dianeni and Adrienne Marie Brown both made clear, every battle must be fought and won twice. Once over the problem, alerting society to it, framing what's at stake, convincing the critical mass of actors that serious action must be taken, and again over the solution. What's the plan? What specific remedies? Who decides? Who benefits? How do we share the burdens? We're close to winning the first battle, and we're currently in the thick of the second. But even though we must absolutely win both, some of us have been fighting so long and hard just to get the problem of climate change taken seriously that we forgot how crucial this second battle over solutions is. To illustrate, let me share the following transcript of a conversation between you and an unnamed middle-of-the-road politician that was recently teleported to me from the very near future. You. Climate change is a serious problem. Politician, you're so right. You, I am? Politician, yes, it's a very serious problem. You, right, well, um, we need solutions now. Politician, I agree. You, you do? Politician, yes, and they need to be bold, radical, immediate, no-nonsense solutions. You, I, uh, couldn't agree more. Politician, ha, huh. 
Look, now you're agreeing with me, politician smiles. You. But, politician, to get to zero carbon immediately and protect our way of life, we need market incentives for wind and solar, a business-smart carbon tax, corporate subsidies for a massive build-out of nuclear, designated sacrifice zones, synthetic bees to replace our lost keystone pollinators, forced conscription of prison labor to fight forest fires, a militarized climate refugee-proof border, AI-enhanced protein farms, and given the latest overshoot projections, we really shouldn't take forced sterilization of the homeless and illegals off the table. Because if you, but look, politician, no, you look. We're talking about our survival here. There's simply no alternative. There's only one way the world can end, this guy is saying. And that's his way. It's the same old Tina, just dressed up for the end of the world. But just because capitalism would sooner end the world than end itself, that doesn't mean we have to play along. And just because capitalism turns us into economic cannibals and then tells us that human nature is economic cannibalism doesn't mean we have to believe it. In fact, we'd better unlearn it quick. Because at the end of the world, economic cannibalism is going to get real ugly real fast. Luckily, there are so many other ways the world can end. Or only almost end. Or not quite even end. And we've looked at many throughout this book. From drawdown to degrowth to deep adaptation. From Gopal's just transition to Joanna's great turning to Robin's honorable harvest. The good news, many, many other ends of the world are possible. The bad news, it's still the end of the world. Because even if the most ambitious and optimistic of the approaches above succeed, we still won't save the world in the way we usually mean it. The glaciers will still melt away. The Great Barrier Reef will bleach and die. There will be untold human suffering and chaos. It's sobering to reckon with, but our goal here is not so much to save the world as to just barely salvage it. Shit, you're probably thinking... At least, that's what I always think at this point in the conversation. Not only do we have to reinvent our civilization and imagine our way past a capitalism that's done all in its power to thwart us from imagining anything beyond it, but we also have to make up for all those wasted decades not solving the most complex and dangerous problem humanity has ever faced in order to just barely salvage the world? Yes. No one said it would be easy, or even possible. But someone said, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And someone else, Hunter S. Thompson, said, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. Which might explain how I got a book deal. And though no one ever said this, I'm saying it now. When the going is full of terrifying trade-offs and unsolvable predicaments, even the toughest and weirdest among us need goofy, easy-to-remember names for the paradoxes we're facing. Which is why this book is full of them. Because we can't fix a predicament. And we're all in this together. Not. And it's going to take everyone to change everything. Um, yesterday. And despair might indeed be our only hope. And somehow, we're going to need to do the impossible. Because what's merely possible is going to get us all killed. And then there's always, especially in the face of such dawning circumstances, a third battle. The battle over why bother at all. This battle happens in our hearts, in our guts, in our souls, in our consciences. It happens when we ask ourselves the question, what do I love too much to lose? Or, what kind of ancestor do I want to be? Or, how can I lose hope when other people can't afford to? Or simply, what good can I still do? Each of us must ask and answer these difficult questions for ourselves. As we do, 
it can help to have role models both actual and archetypal. Earlier in these pages, we met Congolese park ranger Rodrigue Catembo, who endures death threats, poachers, illegal oil developers, and lengthy separations from his family in order to protect the elephants and gorillas in the national park he loves. Many of us have been inspired by Greta Thunberia, the autistic teenager whose disability is actually a gift of plain sight. Simply to have a life later in this century, she realizes she must go on strike against her government's failure to act. Greta chooses the way of the rebel, and millions of young people are following her on this path, rising up in a global rebellion against their own extinction. But your path might be that of the healer, striving to undo the damage we've done, or the artist, whose heightened sensitivities are like antenna for the species. It hurts to feel the future so deeply, but keeping that channel open is your way to serve. Some paths force a choice. Do we follow the prepper, going it alone in our rugged individualist bunker, or the good neighbor, like Adrienne, helping our community become more resilient, believing we can get through this together? Do we take orders from the capitalist, who sees in the apocalypse a gravy train of high-dollar contracts, whether for seawalls or gated communities, he doesn't much care? Or do we conspire with the visionary engineer, who's trying to build humanity a technological bridge to the 22nd century? The way ahead may be narrow, but many paths lead through it. Whether you're hopeless or hopeful, punk rock or more square, a joiner or not so much, there's a path for you if you're willing to seek it out. Just consider the different sensibilities of, say, the Sunrise Movement and Extinction Rebellion. The former keeps a fierce eyes-on-the-prize hope, channeling Apollo God of Reason and recruiting all the A students to craft an inside-outside strategy to steer the Green New Deal through a broken system to victory. The looser Extinction Rebellion runs riot through the streets with Dionysus, keening their grief, demanding that the necessary but impossible be done now, telling the truth no matter the psychic cost, and turning their hopelessness into a by-any-means-necessary force to disrupt business as usual, all the while dancing to whatever beautiful now we still have left. Different folks might be drawn more to one than the other, but to have a chance at a livable future, humanity needs both Apollo and Dionysus on our team. To find our way, humanity also needs the trickster, who's made such trouble across these pages, and whose shape-shifting fondness for paradox and the in-between can help us to straddle the worlds, one dying, the other struggling to be born, across which we must transition. This transition will be treacherous, there's no avoiding that now. But as the hopers and doomers we've met make so clear, we can still choose a path with heart. Because the end of the world is not the end of the world. Full stop. King's North. And we can still turn new normals, even new abnormals, into new beautifuls. Greer. And if we must fall, we can at least fall as if we were holding a child on our chest. Brown. Is there going to be suffering? Yes but we can try to distribute that suffering more equitably. Dianeni. Have we broken nature? Almost, yes. But it's not too late to restory who we are and learn to be good partners again. Kimmerer. Are we in for a catastrophe? Yes. Likely a whole string of catastrophes in the long emergency that lies before us. But there are worse catastrophes and better ones. Ones we can recover from and ones we can't. So let's bring to this fight all the courage, kindness, and wise planning we can muster 
the least terrible and most compassionate catastrophe still available. The world is going to end one way or another. Let's make sure it's another. Epilogue. Now is when you are needed most. Even a wounded world is feeding us. Even a wounded world holds us, giving us moments of wonder and joy. I choose joy over despair. Not because I have my head in the sand, but because joy is what the earth gives me daily, and I must return the gift. Robin Wall Kimmerer Skagit County, Washington, Summer 2018 John Michael Greer suggests we try to turn new normals into new beautifuls. Hard advice to follow, but I try. And I'm trying especially hard at one of my last ports of call, my friend Lois's farm in western Washington, where I've come to gather my thoughts and try to finish off this manuscript. Here, along the Skagit River, in the foothills of the Cascades, the early morning mist mingles with air smoky from forest fires on the far side of the range. The west this summer, and it seems now every summer, is on fire. Our new anemic winters no longer have snap freezes cold enough to kill off pine bark beetles, and so they spread northwards, a literal plague infesting millions of coniferous trees across the west. This is bad enough, but then our climate change summer comes, hotter and drier than before, and lightning or a careless match hits the dry and dying forests, and foom. And now much of the North Cascades and swaths of the broader west are on fire, and, even here, fifty miles from the nearest blaze, smoke, including particles small enough to be drawn into our lungs and through our bloodstream and deposited in vulnerable organs, hangs in the air. The setting sun some nights is a blood-red orange, the orb of our possible salvation, refracted, eerie, and yes, strangely beautiful, through the shrouds of our self-destruction. In the day I write, taking breaks to help Lois can green beans or pickle cucumbers or pick quart after quart of blueberries. At the end of every afternoon, after a long day of trying to wrangle the manuscript, I swim naked in the fast cold currents of the Skagit. Climbing back up the bank, I stand bare and momentarily triumphant amidst the rough grasses and dandelions, as I let the warm air dry me off. There's a bend in the river in each direction, and I read and write as the rushing water chatters past several fallen trunks, lashed and held close to the bank by steel cables. Knowing they would fall to the Skagit's raging autumn floods and hoping to slow the erosion of her land, Lois had lassoed them in years past while they were still standing trees. For the last many seasons now, you see, the river has not been itself. In springs and autumns past, the river would gradually swell with storms or snowmelt. But now, with our new rising temperatures, it becomes suddenly and violently engorged with rain that used to fall as snow. Every year now, the river eats away up to half an acre of Lois's farmland and floods most of the rest. By the time she's eighty, in spite of her best efforts, the Skagit might be at her doorstep, and she'll have to leave this place. She wished dearly to be her last home. This ground under me is disappearing. This same time next year it may be gone. And it's here by the edge of this hungry river, upon this disappearing earth, under this fire-tinged air, that I try to feel humanity's moment, going and coming. The sun is setting, bathing the white and blue stones on the opposite bank in the butterlight of photographers' dreams. Across the river, the shadow line slowly climbs Sauk Mountain's forested slopes, until the last of the light vanishes from the pockmarked glaciers far to the east. These glaciers, too, 
just like the ground underneath my feet, will soon be gone forever. During the last few years, as I've tried to sift through what I'd learned, I've found myself at many a place like Lois's Skagit Valley Farm, extraordinary and under extraordinary pressures. If someone asked what I was up to, I'd sometimes tell them, half in sorrow, half in jest, that I'd been going from beautiful place to beautiful place, writing about terrible things. Here I am at one such troubled and beautiful place. I began it at another, the edge of Manhattan, haunted by ghosts from the future and the question, how should we live knowing that catastrophe is coming? Along the way, there were many such places. At the Mesa Refuge, head buried in the desolate doomscape of the road, I'd look up from those pages and out across Tomales Bay and simply be grateful that the sun still shined and the villagers had no plans to eat me. In Joshua Tree, we'd rented a little cabin with a backyard of scrub, dotted with its namesake trees, each transfigured into a grave, multi-limbed crucifix pointing not sure where. One 105-degree Fahrenheit afternoon, riding on a weather-beaten desk beached in our desert backyard, a gray fox loped by, a trickster in our midst. In Gloversville, New York, a town that used to boast 500 tanneries that literally supplied half the world's gloves, but was now a rust-belt shadow of its former industrial self, I was trying to ride on the back porch of a place my girlfriend and I, possibly very foolishly, had rented sight unseen. A yard crew came by unannounced, noise-blocking, headphones on, diesel-fueled leaf blowers strapped to their backs, blowing off of my newly rented porch the one or two leaves that had accumulated since whenever the last time they'd been through. Diesel wafted into my nostrils. The blasting sounds of compressed air rattled my coffee and keyboard. How was this helping anyone? At Lockawak, Pennsylvania, a protected nature sanctuary and science monitoring station, young ecologists took constant readings of the untouched glacial lake and its surrounding air and forests. No swimming was permitted in the lake to prevent even the tiniest bit of sunscreen from spoiling the pristine water. Their instruments inescapably registered how during the handful of years I've been on this journey, the parts per million of atmospheric carbon has gone from a dangerous 397 to an even more dangerous 407. And now, in 2022, it's pushing a yet more dangerous 419. Though their instruments didn't show it, during that same time, my mother died. We marched to New York. We got the treaty signed in Paris. Trump was elected. We lost the Battle of Standing Rock. Greta sailed across an ocean. The Green New Deal arose, then sputtered and the battle continues. Over those same years, I've met with many remarkable hopers and doomers. Where do they stand now? I sent a follow-up email to Guy McPherson. Are you sure there are no lifeboats on our Titanic? He wrote back, Nada. Nilch. Zero. He, for one, remains sure how this story ends. Tim DeChristopher and the ten others arrested blocking the Enbridge pipeline in West Roxbury argued their case on the grounds that new fossil fuel infrastructure posed an existential threat to humanity, and it was thus necessary to take direct action to stop it. The presiding judge, swayed by their closing statements, found all not guilty, an unexpected victory that established the necessity defense as a national precedent for other such actions. Tim is now a farmer on Wabonski territory in Maine while continuing his involvement with the Climate Disobedience Center. Meg Wheatley continues training people in the Shambhala warrior tradition and writing on how to move beyond hope and fear, including the short essay, Freeing Ourselves from the Addiction of Hope.
Gopal Dayaneni continues his work at the intersection of ecology, economy, and extractivism, and is still living in his Oakland intentional community of nine adults and eight children, though the chickens are gone and a dog has arrived. He's now shifted on to the board of Movement Generation, is teaching part-time at San Francisco State University's Race and Resistance Studies program, and is still very active in climate justice and other movement work. Joanna Macy stays mum on whether she thinks we're ultimately hospice workers or midwives. Now over 90, she has retired, but her work that reconnects carries on in the hands of a next generation of trainers and grief counselors. She recently co-translated a new edition of Rilke's Letters to a Young Poet. Jamie Hecht has moved from L.A. to Brooklyn. He's still seeing patients, quoting Aristotle, happiness is not amusement, it is good activity. Writing poetry about RFK's assassination, and blogging about everything from regenerative agriculture to how Cuba survived its oil crunch. After our meeting, Adrienne Marie Brown set aside some of her many hats to try to take a restful sabbatical. On her return, she noted that the world ended at least twice while I was away. She is now writer-in-residence at the Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute, has launched the podcast Octavia's Parables, and brought out two new books, including We Will Not Cancel Us, and Grievers, the first novella in a trilogy on the Black Dawn imprint. Seven years after its publication, Braiding Sweetgrass made it to the New York Times bestseller list. To this wider audience, Robin Kimmerer continues her soulful advocacy on behalf of plants. A dozen honking geese make a wide bank over the Skagit. A kingfisher darts into the river in search of dinner. Two turkey vultures, circling the smoke-thickened thermals, survey the beauty and destruction below. At night, Lois asks me whether I'd seen the Times magazine piece about how we could have stopped climate change 30 years ago. I tell her yes, and with a sigh, ask her whether she'd seen the article in The Guardian about how scientists are starting to see signs of a domino effect, of compounding and accelerating climate change. Here we go, she says. Shoot me now, I say. No, she says. This is when we need you most. That night, in the pitch black of the new moon, we could hear apples drop from the trees, our fate thudding to the grass. And yet, the next day we knock on doors for Initiative 1631, a statewide ballot initiative that would put a carbon fee on big polluters and use the revenue to invest in clean energy and protection for workers in fossil fuel industries. Big oil and coal are putting in over $30 million to defeat it. But we have an army of neighbors across the state. Game on. There are signs all around us that what we've most dreaded is actually beginning to happen. But this battle is far from over. And this land, even with its smoke-tinged air and pock-marked glaciers and eroding riverbanks and eerie blood-orange sun, is still beautiful. And now is when we are all needed most. Epi Epilogue Passing the Torch what time is it on the clock of the world? New York City, Fall 2019 It's hard to write a book about the end of the world. It's also hard to finish writing a book about the end of the world, especially when you're also trying your damnedest to stop the world from ending. Case in point. One afternoon in September 2019, an afternoon I had earmarked as one of the many afternoons I would indeed finish writing the book, having not finished it, nor even coming close to finishing it at Lois's farm, an email arrived in my inbox. Greta wants a clock. Greta? That Greta? Yes, that Greta. 
She needed someone to build her a clock that would show the time we had left to act before we blew through our extremely limited carbon budget with catastrophic consequences for the ecosphere and human civilization. She wanted to hold up this clock during her speech at the UN General Assembly in nine days. The email had come to me and my friend, Gan Golan, a frequent collaborator on many climate arts projects. Question. Why were we, neither of us clockmakers, suddenly being asked to build a climate countdown clock for Greta Thunberg? Answer. Because a year earlier, our somewhat insane idea to set up climate countdown clocks in city centers all over the world had been totally ignored by the same folks who were now asking us to build one in nine days. Are you kidding me? But this clock was for Greta. And nobody does anything unless they're under a deadline, whether that's building a weird clock or saving the world. So I stuffed the manuscript back in its drawer and we put out the bat signal to our circle of creatives. And by the next evening, we'd pulled together a crackerjack team of coders, makers, designers, artists, and campaigners to not just make a clock for Greta, but, buoyed by the attention her speech would inevitably garner, launch the full www.climateclock.world effort we'd originally had in mind. Our premise, to meet our climate deadline, everyone across the planet needed to synchronize their watches around our remaining time window for action. This deadline was, arguably, the most important number in the world. But wait, what number was that exactly? What number should go on this clock? It's a conundrum familiar to anyone who's reckoned with our climate predicament. A moment when facts collide with the human need for story, science struggles to fit its calipers around the most complex and consequential problem humanity has ever faced. And once again, hope and hopelessness do their slippery, awkward dance. The previous year at the 2018 meeting of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, the world's largest and most authoritative gathering of climate scientists had announced Global net human-caused emissions of carbon dioxide, CO2, would need to fall by about 45% from 2010 levels by 2030, reaching net zero around 2050. Which is science talk for act now, idiots. Or as the BBC summarized it, the day of the announcement, going past 1.5 degrees Celsius is dicing with the planet's livability. Our 1.5 degrees Celsius temperature guardrail could be exceeded in just 12 years in 2030. Understandably, the media picked up on the notion that there were 12 years left to save the world, and it was this number that lodged with a mixture of alarm and hope in the public's mind. It was also the number we'd originally planned to put on the clock. The science is complex, the uncertainty's treacherous, but humans need a goal to focus on. However, this goal, in spite of capturing the public's attention, being championed by AOC, and even getting written into Bernie Sanders' Green New Deal proposal, was just one milestone among many, cherry-picked out of the 2018 IPCC report by the media, and neatly refocused by activists into a we-must-cut-our-emissions-in-half-by-2030-to-save-the-world deadline. And Greta would have none of it. Over the course of a few follow-up emails, it was clear she had a far stricter set of parameters in mind. Whether she's leading school strikes or scolding prime ministers, listen to the scientists has always been her message. And one of the scientists she was listening to here was Dr. Otmar Edenhofer, advisor to Angela Merkel and the world's foremost authority on carbon budgets. He and his Berlin-based Mercator Research Institute on Global Commons and Climate Change, MCC, had calculated the remaining carbon we could burn and still have a 67% chance of remaining under 1.5 degrees Celsius. 
his calculations were stricter than the consensus IPCC report, which was based on just a 50% chance. His carbon budget only left us eight years and three months. Suddenly, we were three years closer to the end of the world. But those were the numbers Greta insisted on, and that's the clock we built for her. We delivered it to her the night before her big speech. Let's do this, came back her smiling video message. You don't see her smile all that often. I thought, maybe it's too late to save the world, but at least I did something to make this fierce, extraordinary girl smile. The next morning, we were all poised at our laptops, ready to hit launch on the just-built website and flood the zone with hashtag climate clock and hashtag act in time hashtags as soon as Greta, clock by her side, gave her speech to the world. UN security, however, refused to let the clock through. Oh, come on! Why would security care about wires peeking out from the back of a mysterious block of bright phosphorescent LEDs counting down? Oh, right. And in the end, I guess it actually is a kind of bomb, a slow-motion carbon time bomb we are dropping on ourselves and all of nature. In the end, her six-minute speech, heralded as the Gettysburg Address of Climate, had all the intensity and moral clarity our existential crisis deserves, and in no way suffered for lack of a clock, though we were, of course, disappointed. The ironies here almost speak for themselves a symbolic bomb meant to alert the world to the very real carbon bombs we keep detonating is mistaken as a terrorist threat. The insistent mantra of listen to the scientists suddenly puts us three years closer to the end of the world. And maybe the biggest irony of all, at a gathering of the world's most powerful people, the only adult in the room was 16 years old. How dare you, said Greta directly into their faces, and in a sense, all our faces, because even us adults who've been trying to fix things have failed her and her generation. In her speech, she laid down a gauntlet of generational responsibility. This is all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. Pivoting to the crucial difference between a 50% risk of exceeding 1.5 degrees Celsius warming and a 67% risk of doing so that she had insisted be reflected in the clock's figures, she told her assembled elders, 50% may be acceptable to you, but a 50% risk is simply not acceptable to us, we who have to live with the consequences. Those numbers, she continued, rely on my generation sucking hundreds of billions of tons of your CO2 out of the air with technologies that barely exist. She closed out her speech. You are still not mature enough to tell it like it is. You are failing us. But the young people are starting to understand your betrayal. The eyes of all future generations are upon you. And if you choose to fail us, I say, we will never forgive you. Her ferocity makes sense. Greta and her generation are angry that us old people have so badly fucked up a future that mostly they will have to live in. And maybe even worse, that we continue to fuck it up, excuse after excuse. COP26 being only the latest example. Young people have way more skin in this game. Their anger at their elders is more than understandable. I am 59 years old. I'll most likely be dead by 2050 and won't have to live through the cascading climate impacts that will play out across the second half of this century. I'm simply not in the same existential position as 18-year-old Greta Thunberg, 
or 19-year-old Shia Bastida, or 18-year-old Jerome Foster II, or any of the other extraordinary young climate activists I've had the honor of working with. Jerome Foster went from climate striking outside the White House for 58 weeks to being the youngest member of the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council. He believes the youth of this world are being used and neglected by those in power who choose profits over life. Young people, he says, realize the system doesn't work for us, and it's not going to work for our future, so it must change. And from the streets to the corridors of power, to a glittering array of climate initiatives he has founded during his brief 18 years on this planet, he's doing his level best to change it. Mexican-American climate striker Shia Bastida, in the lead essay in the 2020 best-selling anthology, All We Can Save, says, To me and a lot of other young people, it feels like we are rooted in awareness while the adults around us live in obliviousness. Human civilization, she says, needs to mature. But she's not trying to get any OK Boomer digs in. In fact, she acknowledges that we need to work intergenerationally and that her indigenous ancestors and elders, she is a descendant of the Otomi Toltec people, have the principles that humanity needs in these critical times. Yes, the elders are needed. We veteran activists have some hard-won experience to offer. The eight remarkable hopers and doomers I met with on my journey have some essential wisdom and strategies to share. But it makes sense that young people like Greta and Jerome and Shia are increasingly leading the fight to unfuck a world they will have to live in. As we prepared the clock for Greta in the manner she'd requested, we haggled over whether there were 12 years to save the world, or just eight, now less than seven. But the sorry truth of our predicament is that whatever number goes on the clock, we've already blown way past our ideal deadline. We can curate the science to tell ourselves a story that feels more hopeful, but the reality of our situation is that we're already living on borrowed time. We don't actually have a carbon budget in the sense that there's a certain amount of carbon we can safely emit. Rather, we're engaging in, and have been for decades, out-of-control carbon deficit spending, and it's wrecking the world. And now, in 2022, it's that much worse. The daily headlines read like biblical curses, record-breaking fatal heat waves in Oregon, Germany, France, droughts in California and Madagascar, rainfalls so concentrated that cities can no longer absorb them, promising a new normal of catastrophic floods. Meanwhile, the clock is clicking down towards six years, but it might actually be running behind reality. Feedback loops, melting permafrost, carbon bubbling up from the depths of the ocean, 70-degree Fahrenheit temperatures in the Arctic, the Amazon threatening to flip from rainforest to savanna, heralded by a chorus of scientists saying, this is all happening much faster than predicted. The emergency is now upon us. The rest of the world is quickly catching up with Greta, Jerome, and Shia. And with the eight hopers and doomers I met on my journey, even as we mourn all we're losing, we need to take their deep lessons to heart and figure out how to survive the future. Together, we must craft a better catastrophe. About the author Andrew Boyd is a writer, humorist, activist, and CEO, Chief Existential Officer of The Climate Clock, a global campaign that blends art, science, and grassroots organizing to get the world to hashtag act in time. He also co-created the grief storytelling ritual, The Climate Ribbon, and led the 2000s-era satirical campaign, Billionaires for Bush. Andrew's previous books include Beautiful Trouble, A Toolbox for Revolution, Daily Afflictions, The Agony of Being Connected to Everything in the Universe, 
and Life's Little Deconstruction Book, Self-Help for the Post-Hip. His lifelong ambition, cribbed from Milan Kundera, is to unite the utmost seriousness of question with the utmost lightness of form. Andrew lives in New York City.